I squinted against the harsh summer sun as the rusty doors of the old school bus creaked open. The sight before me made my heart sink, a large wooden sign that read, Camp Pinefall. Around me, a symphony of excited chatter, laughter, and the rustling of bags filled the air. Everyone seemed ready to dive headfirst into the world of adventure that lay beyond the sign. Everyone except me, Liam. My parents thought that summer camp would be good for me, that it would bring me out of my shell. I'd have preferred staying home, immersed in the new series of fantasy novels I'd just started. But my preference hadn't factored into their decision. So there I was, standing in the sun-kissed dust, surrounded by energetic teenagers whose enthusiasm felt as foreign to me as the expansive woods encircling the camp. Welcome to Camp Pinefall, an overly energetic counselor bounded towards us. I think his name was Jake. His grin was infectious, but it didn't lessen my dread. I picked up my bag and followed the other campers. Our cabins were nestled at the edge of the woods, tiny log constructions that looked like they had been built decades ago. My cabin was at the farthest end, the woods encroaching a little too close for comfort. Inside, the air smelled of pine and old wood. My bunkmate was already there, a lanky kid with wild, curly hair and a grin that matched Jake's. He jumped down from his bunk and extended a hand. Noah, he introduced himself, his eyes bright with a spark I immediately envied. I shook his hand, introducing myself in return. Noah seemed to fill the room with his vibrant energy, a stark contrast to my reserved persona. I wondered how we'd get along. The rest of the day was a blur of activities, swimming, canoeing, a never-ending series of team-building exercises, each more draining than the last. My muscles ached in protest, but there was something oddly satisfying about the physical exertion. As the sun began to set, painting the sky with hues of red and orange, we sat around a crackling bonfire. The warmth of the fire seeped into me, the flickering light reflecting in Noah's animated expressions as he shared stories about his life. Listening to him, I felt my defenses ebb away. Maybe, I thought, this wouldn't be as bad as I had imagined. That night, as I lay in the narrow bunk, staring at the rustic wood ceiling, the chorus of the nocturnal creatures felt almost soothing. I could hear Noah's steady breathing from the bunk below. Despite my earlier apprehension, a strange sense of contentment washed over me. But as sleep began to claim me, a faint whispering wind swept through the nearby trees, sending an involuntary shiver down my spine. In the eerie silence of the night, the woods seemed too close, the darkness too deep. Little did I know this was just the beginning of the story, the calm before the storm. Looking back, that first day was a paradox. It marked the beginning of my adventure and the end of my peace. It was my entry into a summer of friendship, fear, and the inexplicable. It was my arrival at Camp Pinefall. The days began to blend into each other, each morning marked by a cool breeze and the sweet song of birds. I slowly fell into a routine, hiking in the morning, swimming in the cool lake in the afternoon, and evenings around the bonfire, a group of teenagers sharing ghost stories as the embers glowed against the night sky. Noah was a constant in all this. His endless energy, curiosity, and innate charm made him popular at camp. His laughter was contagious, his ideas crazy and entertaining. But amidst all the fun, he had a maturity that belied his age. He listened when I spoke about my love for books, even when I knew it bored him. He stood up for a camper who was bullied, and when I slipped during a hike and hurt my ankle, he was the one to help me back, disregarding his own scraped knees. 
Despite our contrasting personalities, Noah and I grew close. We found ourselves paired for most activities, and our conversation stretched into the night, long after the other campers were asleep. In him, I found a friend, and through him, I found myself actually enjoying the camp. One afternoon, we sat on a high cliff overlooking the camp, the dense green forest stretching as far as the eye could see. The wind whispered through the trees, carrying the distant echo of our fellow campers. Noah was unusually quiet, his usually vibrant eyes pensive as they stared out into the wilderness. Do you ever wonder what secrets the woods might hold? He asked, his voice barely a whisper against the wind. I looked at him, startled by the sudden shift in his mood. Like what? I asked, not entirely sure where he was going. Legends, mysteries, creatures we don't know about, he replied, turning to look at me, a glimmer of the old Noah back in his eyes. In that moment, his question didn't scare me. Instead, it filled me with a thrill of excitement. I was still wary of the wilderness, but the fear was slowly giving way to a sense of adventure. The unknown wasn't as intimidating when I had a friend by my side. We spent the rest of the day exploring, delving into parts of the forest we hadn't seen before. The woods seemed almost welcoming in the daylight, the eerie whispers of the night forgotten. We returned to the camp as the sun set, both exhausted and exhilarated. That night, as the campfire cast dancing shadows around us, I realized that my initial dread had been replaced by a sense of belonging. The chirping crickets, the rustling leaves, and even the whispering woods had all become a part of my reality. This was my life now, filled with laughter, adventure, and the joy of the unknown. I watched Noah across the fire, his face illuminated by the flickering light, his laughter blending with the night's chorus. I felt a twinge of gratitude towards him. He was my beacon in this strange new world. As the fire died down and the campers retreated to their cabins, I had no idea how drastically our world was about to change. Our joy of the unknown was about to turn into a haunting echo of regret. The sun was sinking below the treetops as we began our evening hike. The warmth of the day gave way to a crisp coolness that seeped into the woods, the descending darkness painting the scenery with a different palette. Noah was at the front, leading the group with a confidence that was both reassuring and contagious. I trailed behind, entranced by the nocturnal symphony of rustling leaves and hooting owls. We ventured farther than we ever had, the path less defined and the trees growing denser. Our flashlights bobbed through the darkness, casting eerie shadows on the forest floor. Despite the foreboding environment, Noah's excitement was palpable. He reveled in the adventure, his spirit unbroken by the surrounding darkness. A sudden shout from the front of the group cut through the air, shattering the peaceful atmosphere. One of the campers had tripped over a root. Amidst the chaos and confusion, Noah went off the path to find a branch for support. Minutes turned into an eternity as we waited in the diminishing light. The whispers of the night seemed to grow louder, the forest more intimidating. Noah's absence loomed over us like a cloud, growing heavier with each passing moment. After what felt like hours, Jake decided to go look for Noah. He handed me his flashlight, his face a mask of concern. The light trembled in my hand, mirroring the unease spreading through the group. The woods around us came alive with unfamiliar sounds. The rustle of leaves, the snap of a twig, the hoot of an owl. Each sound seemed to mimic the rapid beating of my heart, escalating the fear coursing through my veins. When Jake returned, alone and breathless, a veil of silence descended on the group, 
The news hit us like a punch to the gut. Noah was missing. Panic swept through us, the word missing echoing ominously in the dense forest. We stumbled back to the camp, the path seeming longer and more treacherous than before. Noah's absence was a tangible entity amongst us, choking and oppressive. The camp, usually filled with laughter and chatter, was eerily silent. All activities were halted. A search party was quickly formed, flashlights cutting through the inky darkness, voices calling out for Noah. As the night wore on, hope waned. The search party returned, their faces etched with a hopeless despair. Noah was nowhere to be found. Retreating to our cabin, his empty bunk seemed to mock me, a harsh reminder of the friend who had been there just the day before. As I sat there, enveloped in darkness, I could hear the forest whispering, the wind carrying an invisible shroud of dread. I thought about Noah's question from a few days before, about the secrets the woods might hold. It seemed now that the forest had given us a taste of its mystery, a haunting enigma we weren't prepared for. The joy of the unknown had morphed into a nightmare. That night as the camp fell into a restless sleep, I lay wide awake. The chirping crickets and rustling leaves, once a comforting lullaby, now seemed sinister. A sense of dread settled deep within me, a dark premonition of the terror that was yet to come. We were lost, just like Noah, lost in the face of the unknown terror the woods held. Days turned into a week. The search for Noah continued, the surrounding woods combed through by professionals and volunteers alike. But all their efforts returned empty, Noah's presence erased as if he had never been part of Camp Pinefall. His absence hung heavily over us. The once lively camp was shrouded in gloom, laughter replaced by whispered conversations, excitement by anxious anticipation. Noah's empty bunk served as a constant reminder of our loss, of the friend who had mysteriously vanished into the woods. And then, something strange started happening. It began one night as I lay on my bunk, the cabin filled with a suffocating silence. The nocturnal symphony of the forest was in full swing, each note playing on my heightened senses. A soft whisper cut through the night, my name carried on the wind. It was so faint that I thought I was imagining it. The next night, it happened again. My name whispered through the rustling leaves, unmistakably Noah's voice. I sat up in bed, my heart pounding against my chest. I knew Noah's voice, its warmth, its cadence, its familiarity. And even in the whisper that floated through the night, I recognized it. Terrified and confused, I confided in Jake. He listened, his face an unreadable mask, but I could see the doubt in his eyes. Was it the wind, my mind playing tricks on me? But I was certain of what I heard. I knew Noah's voice, just as I knew the deep, gnawing fear growing within me. And then, other campers started reporting the same. The voice in the woods, a mother's soothing tones, a brother's laughter, a best friend's secret code, each one personal, each one familiar. Panic spread through the camp, the whispers of the night now a source of fear and terror. Every night we would huddle in our cabins, flashlights at our sides, hearts pounding as the sun set. The woods were no longer a source of adventure or mystery, but of a chilling dread. The whispers grew louder, more insistent, playing on our fears and heightening our paranoia. One night, I heard Noah's voice again, louder this time, a frantic plea for help that sent a jolt of fear through me. I rushed out, a foolish hope propelling me towards the voice, but all I found was the dark, silent woods, the trees standing like silent sentinels. Every echo, 
Every whisper seemed to hold a promise, a hint of Noah's presence. And each time, it led to nothing. The forest seemed to mock us, its secrets held close, impenetrable. The woods had turned into a living nightmare, its whispers an echo of the fear that had gripped us all. As the echoes in the dark grew, so did our desperation. Each whisper was a chilling reminder of our loss, a haunting memory of Noah. The once joyous camp was now a place of fear, the unknown not an adventure but a threat. And as each day passed, the reality of the situation weighed heavily on us. We were at the mercy of the woods, its secrets beyond our understanding. Lost and fearful, we could only listen to the echoes in the dark, a cruel mimicry of the past we yearned for and a future we feared. The days turned into a never-ending cycle of dread. The whispers continued, echoing through the dark woods and haunting our dreams. Each voice, mimicking someone we loved, added a layer of fear to the oppressive atmosphere of Camp Pinefall. And yet, there was no sign of Noah. One morning, I decided to venture into the forest. The voice had driven me to the brink of madness, the tantalizing hint of Noah's presence pulling me towards the wilderness. With each step, I could feel the fear hanging in the air, the forest a silent testament to the terror it held. I walked aimlessly, my eyes scanning the undergrowth, my ears straining for any sound out of the ordinary. Every crackle of leaves, every rustle in the bushes, sent a jolt of adrenaline through me. My heart pounded against my chest, the silence of the forest interrupted only by my ragged breathing. That's when I saw it. Nestled between two roots of a massive pine tree, almost hidden under a layer of fallen leaves, was Noah's hat. It was unmistakable, the faded red color, the frayed edges, the camp logo slightly smudged from use. It was a token of a life that now felt like a distant memory. I picked it up, the fabric feeling oddly cold against my skin. An image flashed through my mind. Noah, his face lit up by the bonfire, the hat perched atop his curls. A sharp pang of loss hit me, tears welling up in my eyes. I clung to the hat, my mind racing. This was a clue, a sign of Noah's presence, but it also raised a myriad of questions. How did it end up here? Why hadn't the search parties found it? Was Noah nearby, watching me? The silence of the forest seemed to press on me, every shadow a potential danger. I rushed back to the camp, the hat clutched in my trembling hands. As I showed it to Jake and the others, I saw a flicker of hope in their eyes. The hat represented Noah, our missing friend, a tangible proof that he had been real, that he was still out there, somewhere. But the hat was all we had. There were no footprints, no signs of struggle, no indications of where Noah might have gone. It was as if the forest had swallowed him whole, leaving behind only a haunting echo of his voice and a forgotten hat. The discovery of the hat sent a wave of despair through the camp. We clung to each other, sharing our fears and hopes, our stories of Noah. The hat became a symbol of our loss, a haunting reminder of our friend who had vanished without a trace. As I lay on my bunk that night, Noah's hat by my side, the whispers began again, but this time they sounded different. They were softer, sadder, almost as if the forest was mourning with us. I clutched the hat tighter, my mind filled with images of Noah, his laughter, his spirit, his voice. The hat was all I had left of my friend, a haunting memento of a joyous past and a terrifying present. As the night deepened, so did the mystery of the woods, its whispers a chilling serenade to the friend we had lost. 
The discovery of Noah's hat did little to ease our fears. Instead, it only served to deepen the mystery. The nights were long and filled with terror as the phantom voices continued to call out to us. Days turned into a haze of worry and trepidation, each sunrise a cruel reminder of Noah's absence. I found myself drawn to the woods, the place that had stolen Noah from us. I wandered through the trees, Noah's hat clutched tightly in my hands. Each whisper of the wind, each rustle of the leaves felt like a mockery. One day I ventured deeper into the woods than I ever had before. The trees stood tall around me, their canopies a jigsaw puzzle against the sky. The shadows lengthened, the light playing tricks on my senses. The forest seemed to close in around me, its silence deafening. And then, I heard it. Noah's voice, clear, urgent. It echoed around me, bouncing off the trees. Help! It sent shivers down my spine. My heart pounded in my chest, the plea resonating in my ears. I spun around, trying to locate the source, but the voice seemed to come from all directions, disorienting me. Frantic, I started to run, following the echoes of Noah's voice. The ground was uneven, littered with fallen leaves and branches. My breaths came out ragged, my pulse hammering in my ears. Suddenly, the ground beneath me gave way. I tumbled down, a scream ripping from my throat. I crashed onto a hard surface, pain radiating through my body. As I lay there, gasping for breath, I realized I had fallen into a concealed pit, the walls steep and impossible to climb. I was trapped. Fear gripped me, curling around my heart like a cold, relentless vice. I shouted for help, my voice bouncing off the pit's walls, disappearing into the empty forest above. My calls echoed unanswered, the forest indifferent to my plight. I felt a despair I had never known, a helplessness that chilled me to the bone. The day slowly faded into night, the pit turning into an abyss of darkness. Every sound was amplified, the scurrying of unseen creatures, the soft thud of falling leaves, the ghostly whispers of the wind. I was alone, trapped in the heart of the forest, my only companion the echoes of Noah's voice. In the stifling darkness, I clung to Noah's hat, my mind oscillating between panic and a grim determination. If Noah was out there, I had to survive. I had to find him. I promised myself that I wouldn't let the forest win. I wouldn't let it steal another friend. As I stared up at the sliver of night sky visible from the pit, my mind wandered back to the carefree days at camp, to the laughter and adventures, to the friend who was now a haunting echo in the woods. I missed Noah. I missed the life we had before this nightmare began. That night, the forest felt more alive than ever, its whispers a chilling lullaby as I slipped into an uneasy sleep. The pit was a prison, the woods my jailer. I was trapped in the belly of the beast, thrown into the abyss that had swallowed Noah. And as the reality of my situation sunk in, the whispers of the forest morphed into a terrifying symphony of our shared fate. I awoke to the cold dawn, my body stiff and sore. The pit seemed even more ominous in the gray light, a stark reminder of my predicament. The hours stretched on, each passing moment feeding my desperation. My throat was parched, my stomach grumbled, and my mind was plagued by fear. Despite it all, I couldn't let myself give in to despair. I needed to survive. I needed to find Noah. As I sat there, trapped in the pit, my mind wandered back to the stories Noah used to share of the Native American tribes who had once called these woods home, of the spirits they believed inhabited the land. Noah had always been fascinated by the history and myths of the area. I wished now that I had paid more attention.
Noah's voice echoed again, piercing the silence of the pit. Help! It was as desperate as before, but this time I noticed a strange echo to it, a slight distortion. It dawned on me then. The voice wasn't coming from Noah. It was a mimic, a chilling imitation of my missing friend. Just as I was losing hope, a familiar face appeared at the top of the pit. Jake. Relief washed over me. He looked terrified, but relief replaced the fear when he saw me. He had found me, just as we had to find Noah. With the help of other campers, they managed to pull me out of the pit. I was finally free from the confines of the pit, but I knew then that none of us were truly free. We were all prisoners of the forest, entrapped in a nightmare we didn't understand. Back at camp, the discovery of the pit, my rescue, and the chilling mimicry of Noah's voice sent a fresh wave of fear through the group. The forest had shown us its teeth, and we were all terrified. The camp counselors decided to end the camp early. Parents were informed, police were called in, but none of that mattered to me. I couldn't leave, not without Noah. Under the guise of the night, I slipped away from the main camp. I ventured back into the heart of the forest, drawn towards the pit that had been my prison. I wasn't sure what I was looking for. Perhaps I hoped that by understanding the forest, I could understand what had happened to Noah. As I stood at the edge of the pit, Noah's hat in my hands, I couldn't help but feel a chill run down my spine. The pit wasn't just a physical trap. It was a metaphor for our situation. We were all in the dark, all clueless about the true nature of our circumstances. As the moon bathed the forest in an eerie light, I thought of the ancient tribes who had once revered these woods. Had they known of the voice mimic? Had they understood it? I didn't have any answers, just a growing sense of dread and a haunting echo of Noah's voice, a constant reminder of our shared fate in these treacherous woods. Under the cold moonlight, the pit seemed like a gateway to another world, a world where voices echoed from the unseen depths and friends vanished without a trace. As I gazed into its dark, gaping maw, I felt an inexplicable pull. The pit, I realized, held more secrets than I had initially thought. Driven by a desperate need to understand, I ventured once again into the forest. I needed to find the root of these eerie phenomena, the echoing voices, Noah's disappearance, the hidden pit. Every crackle underfoot, every rustle in the undergrowth echoed Noah's absence and my fear. One day, while scouring the woods, I stumbled upon a secluded glade. In its midst stood a solitary stone covered with strange markings, etchings of animals, trees, and what appeared to be figures of men. I realized with a jolt that they were petroglyphs, ancient symbols left by the native tribes. As I traced the symbols, I remembered Noah's fascination with the local tribes. His stories of their reverence for the land and their belief in the spirits of nature echoed in my mind. Could the legends be true? Could the forest be haunted by a mimic spirit, as the stories suggested? Was this the explanation for the voice we heard, for Noah's disappearance? I spent days studying the petroglyphs, the whispers of the forest serving as a haunting backdrop. The forest seemed to watch me, its silence heavy with unspoken secrets. The echoes of the past lay etched on the stone, silently testifying to the age-old mysteries of these woods. One night, as I lay awake in my cabin, Noah's hat beside me, the whispers returned. But this time, they were not pleas for help. They were stories, echoes of the past recounted in familiar voices. I heard the laughter of my mother, 
the lullabies of my grandmother, and most chillingly, the tales of the tribes in Noah's voice. The forest was not just mimicking our voices, it was mimicking our memories, our stories. The realization sent a shiver down my spine. The forest was alive, in a way we didn't understand, in a way that was beyond our comprehension. As the voices faded into the night, I felt a renewed sense of determination. I had to solve this mystery, not just for Noah, but for all of us. The forest held our friend, it held our fears, and it held the answers, and I was determined to unearth them. As the dawn broke, casting long shadows across the camp, I found myself looking at the forest with new eyes. It was not just a collection of trees and wildlife, but a sentient entity, a living, breathing mystery. And as the whispers resumed, echoing our past and mimicking our present, I realized the scale of the challenge before us. We were not just fighting against the unknown. We were up against the echoes of time, the echoes of the past, the echoes of the forest. I spent my days at the stone in the secluded glade, absorbed in the cryptic petroglyphs. I began to sketch them, hoping that decoding their meaning would bring me closer to understanding the entity that inhabited the forest. I felt a kinship with the ancient people who had crafted these symbols, their knowledge and beliefs etched onto the unyielding stone, speaking across the centuries. As I immersed myself in this pursuit, I felt the forest watching me. The voices became more frequent, the whispers more distinct. I realized that the entity was not malicious, but curious. It echoed our voices, our memories, as a means to understand us. It was a sentient presence, woven into the fabric of the forest, seeking connection. The realization brought a strange sense of calm. I was not alone in my search for answers. The forest, in its own alien way, was trying to communicate, to bridge the chasm between our worlds. One evening, as I traced the final symbol on the stone, I heard Noah's voice again, but instead of a desperate plea for help, it was calm, reciting a story we had loved as kids. I closed my eyes, Noah's voice washing over me, carrying me back to simpler times. The entity was speaking through Noah, sharing our past, our stories, our bond. Overwhelmed, I found myself speaking to the entity, sharing my fears, my guilt over Noah's disappearance, my longing for my lost friend. The forest listened, its silence a soothing balm, the whispers echoed my words, my feelings, giving voice to my inner turmoil. It was then I realized that Noah was not lost. He was a part of the forest now, a part of the entity. He had not left us. He had simply changed, transformed into something beyond our comprehension. The thought was comforting and terrifying in equal measure. The nights at camp were no longer oppressive with dread, but filled with anticipation. I listened to the whispers, to the stories to the echoes of our shared past. Each voice, each memory, was a thread connecting me to Noah, to the entity, to the forest. The entity spoke to us in the language it knew, echoes and memories. It did not understand our grief, our fear, our concept of loss, but it understood connection, stories, emotions, and it shared them with us, painting a picture of a world far removed from our own. As I listened to the whispers from the shadows, I began to understand the true nature of our predicament. We were not victims of a sinister force. We were witnesses to a phenomenon beyond our understanding. We were participants in a cosmic dialogue, an exchange of stories and memories between the human and the non-human. 
The entity was not a foe to be feared, but a mystery to be understood. And as I delved deeper into the petroglyphs, into the whispers from the shadows, I was no longer alone. I had the forest, the entity, and the echo of my friend to keep me company. The darkness was no longer an enemy, but a canvas on which our shared stories came to life. Days melted into weeks, the whispers of the forest becoming my constant companion. The voices echoed tales of the past, painted pictures of the present, and stirred emotions deep within me. I felt myself changing, evolving, as the understanding of the entity and its nature deepened. The camp was now a ghost town. The laughter and camaraderie were replaced with an eerie silence, the empty cabins a stark reminder of the friends who had once lived there. But I wasn't alone. I had the forest, the entity, the echo of Noah. I missed Noah. I missed his laughter, his infectious enthusiasm, his insatiable curiosity. But every time I heard his voice echoing through the forest, I felt a strange comfort. He was here, with me, in the rustle of the leaves, in the whispers of the forest. With every passing day, I found myself less afraid, less anxious. I no longer saw the forest as a malevolent force, but an entity beyond our understanding, beyond our narrow definitions of life and consciousness. It was an entity that sought to communicate, to connect, to understand. I felt a sense of peace I hadn't experienced since Noah's disappearance. The guilt that had once consumed me now faded, replaced with acceptance. Noah wasn't lost. He had found a new existence, one that we couldn't understand, one that transcended our mortal comprehension. The petroglyphs on the stone were no longer a mystery but a bridge, a link between us and the entity. The symbols etched onto the stone held a wisdom, a knowledge that spanned centuries. The entity had been here long before us, witnessing the rise and fall of civilizations, the ebb and flow of life. As I spent my days deciphering the symbols, listening to the whispers, I realized that I was part of something much larger, much grander than my own existence. We were all part of this cosmic dialogue, part of a story that the forest was telling, a story that Noah was now a part of. The acceptance came with a newfound courage. I knew I had to share this with others, with the world. We had to understand, to listen, to learn. The entity was not a monster lurking in the shadows. It was a mirror reflecting our fears, our stories, our voices. As the days turned into nights, I penned down my experiences, my understanding, my journey. I wrote about Noah, about the whispers, about the entity. I wrote about the fear, the dread, and the eventual acceptance. It was not a story of a summer camp gone wrong. It was a story of understanding, of acceptance, of connection. It was a story that needed to be told, that deserved to be heard. As I penned down the last words, I felt a sense of accomplishment, a sense of closure. I was ready to leave the camp, to return to the world I had left behind. But I wasn't the same person anymore. I had changed, grown, evolved. I carried with me the echoes of the forest, the echo of Noah. And as I prepared to leave, the whispers of the forest bid me farewell, a gentle breeze rustling the leaves, a soft echo resonating in the air, a goodbye from Noah, from the forest, from the entity. My journey back to the town was filled with mixed emotions. I was leaving behind the forest that had been my home, my sanctuary, my prison, and my teacher. I carried with me the stories, the whispers, the echo of my friend, and the wisdom of the ancient tribes. When I reached the town, 
I was met with a mixture of relief and disbelief. The news of my survival spread quickly, bringing a wave of shock and joy to the townsfolk. But when I shared my experiences, my understanding of the forest and the entity, I was met with skepticism and fear. The police, the townsfolk, my family, they all wanted answers, a rational explanation, a villain to blame. But how could I explain something so alien, so outside our realm of understanding? How could I convince them that the forest wasn't haunted but inhabited by an entity beyond our comprehension? Every attempt to explain was met with resistance, every mention of the entity dismissed as hallucinations or trauma-induced delusions. But I stood my ground. I knew what I had experienced, what I had understood. The night after my return, I found myself standing on the edge of the forest, looking at the familiar landscape under the moonlight. It was then that I heard it. The echo of the forest, the whisper in the wind, the voice of my friend. It filled me with a profound sense of calm, of connection. I knew then that Noah was still with us, in the rustle of the leaves, in the whispers of the forest, in the echoes of our shared past. And with that understanding came a newfound resolve. I spent the following days in the town, tirelessly advocating for the forest, sharing my experiences, fighting against the fear and skepticism. I faced opposition, ridicule, even threats, but I remained undeterred. This was bigger than me, bigger than all of us. This was about understanding, about coexisting, about listening to the echoes of the forest. But the more I pushed, the more resistance I faced. I was labeled an outcast, a madman, a traitor. I was ostracized, alienated, shunned. But I wasn't alone. I had the forest. I had the entity. I had the echo of Noah. As the days passed, I found solace in the whispers of the forest. Every visit to the edge of the woods brought me closer to the entity, closer to Noah. It was a bond that transcended our mortal understanding, a connection that was born in the heart of the forest and echoed in the winds of time. I realized then that my fight wasn't against the townsfolk or the police. My fight was against fear, against ignorance, against the unwillingness to understand. And I knew I had to keep fighting, for Noah, for the forest, for the entity. As I walked away from the edge of the forest that night, the echo of Noah's voice lingered in the air, a gentle whisper carried on the winds of time. I carried that echo with me, a reminder of our bond, our shared stories, our shared journey. It was a constant companion, a source of strength, a beacon of hope in the face of adversity. Months turned into years, and the echoes of the forest became a part of my existence, my identity. I had become the voice of the entity, the voice of the forest. I stood alone against the tide of fear and ignorance, armed with the echoes of Noah, the wisdom of the ancient tribes, and the memories of a summer camp that had changed my life. My relentless advocacy for understanding and coexisting with the entity earned me many names, the Echo Man, the Forest Whisperer, the Madman of Utah, but it didn't deter me. If anything, it fueled my determination. Every whisper from the forest, every echo of Noah, every memory of our shared past was a reminder of my purpose, my journey. I wrote about my experiences, about the entity, about the forest, about Noah. I documented everything, the petroglyphs, the voices, the mimicry, the disappearance. I put my experiences, my understanding, my journey into words, into stories, into echoes of time. But the world wasn't ready for my story, 
for our story. It was dismissed as a figment of my imagination, a byproduct of trauma and isolation. My manuscript was rejected, ridiculed, forgotten, but I didn't lose hope. I continued to write, to document, to understand. Years later, on a quiet evening, as I sat on the edge of the forest, I heard it again. The echo of Noah, the whisper of the forest. It was as clear, as familiar, as haunting as the first time. It filled me with a sense of peace, of connection, of acceptance. In the echo I heard our shared past, our shared stories. I heard the wisdom of the ancient tribes, the curiosity of my friend, the stories of the forest. I heard the voice of the entity, the voice of understanding, of coexisting, of accepting. I realized then that the success of my journey, my advocacy, didn't lie in the acceptance of the world, but in the echoes of the forest, in the whispers of the entity, in the voice of my friend. I had understood, accepted, and coexisted with a consciousness beyond our mortal comprehension, and that was a victory, a triumph, an accomplishment. I spent the rest of my days living on the edge of the forest, listening to the whispers, understanding the echoes, writing about the entity. The world moved on, forgetting about the summer camp, about the disappearance, about me. But I wasn't forgotten. I was remembered in the heart of the forest, in the echoes of time. As I write these last words, I can hear it. The echo of the forest, the whisper of the wind, the voice of my friend. I am an echo, an echo of the past, an echo of the future, an echo of time. I am a part of the forest, a part of the entity, a part of Noah. My story doesn't have a happy ending, but it doesn't have a sad ending either. It's a story of understanding, of acceptance, of coexistence. It's a story of echoes and whispers, of voices and memories, of time and consciousness. And as I close this chapter, I know that the echoes will continue, the whispers will persist, the forest will speak. Because we are all echoes, echoes in the heart of the forest, echoes in the winds of time. From the moment our old bus trundled down the dusty road leading to Camp Echo, my heart was alight with anticipation. Alex, Mindy, Noah, and I exchanged excited glances. Summer stretched before us, a seemingly endless expanse of fun, freedom, and friendship. Little did we know how drastically it would change. The camp was nestled amidst sprawling woods, a charming patchwork of cabins and clearings. Our home for the summer was Cabin 4. Simple and rustic, it had a welcoming warmth about it. We threw our bags into a corner and claimed our bunks. Alex chose the one by the window, always wanting to be closer to the action. Mindy, Noah, and I took the others. Our first day was everything we'd hoped for. Activities filled the hours, canoeing on the lake, learning to tie knots, attempting to scale the climbing wall. Laughter echoed around the camp as we moved from one activity to another. We felt invincible, soaking up every bit of joy and thrill that the camp had to offer. As evening fell, we gathered around a large bonfire. Stories were shared, marshmallows were toasted, and campfire songs filled the air. The counselors told ghost stories that sent delicious shivers down our spines, but we dismissed them as nothing more than fun, campfire tales. Camp Echo was our haven, and nothing could rob us of our joy. Retiring to Cabin 4 later that night, our hearts were full of the day's adventures. We talked late into the night, 
recounting the day's highlights and making plans for the rest of the summer. However, as the night deepened, so did the silence outside. The happy chatter gradually wound down, replaced by the soft nocturnal chorus of the woods. It must have been around midnight when I first heard it, a sound that didn't belong to the woods. A soft whisper, like leaves rustling, and a faint scratch on the cabin door. It was distant, barely discernible over the night's natural symphony, but it was there. My heart skipped a beat, but I shook off the feeling, convincing myself it was just a critter. Alex was the first to notice my discomfort. You all right, Jamie? He asked, his voice a sleepy murmur from the top bunk. Yeah, I replied, forcing a laugh. Just a squirrel or something at the door. Alex chuckled and Mindy and Noah joined in. Their laughter was a comforting sound in the otherwise silent cabin. We all settled back into our beds, the rustling outside ignored for the moment. Our dreams that night were filled with the thrill of the day's fun, not yet shadowed by the unknown that awaited us. As I drifted off to sleep, the soft whispers of the night and the barely there scratches at our cabin door intermingled with my thoughts. I convinced myself it was nothing more than the harmless sounds of nature, but as the days would prove, it was the beginning of something far more disturbing, something that would transform our idyllic summer into an unforgettable nightmare. But that night, blissfully unaware, we slept on. After the initial thrill of arrival faded, the routines of camp life set in. Each day was a carousel of activity, archery lessons, orienteering, even building our own rafts. It was idyllic, the epitome of the perfect summer. But the nights, the nights began to shift in tone, their peace replaced with an undercurrent of unease. It was on the second night that I really began to notice it. That soft sound, the whisper in the wind, the faint scratching at the cabin door. It was louder this time, more pronounced. But again, we dismissed it as the wind playing tricks or nocturnal animals making their rounds. It was a comfortable lie, one we were all too willing to believe. We had returned from another night by the campfire, our bellies full of s'mores, our minds buzzing with the thrill of the day. Alex was animatedly recounting his near win at the canoe race, while Mindy laughed, teasing him about his competitive spirit. Noah was lost in thought, sketching away in his notebook by the dim light of the lantern. It was during one of Alex's exaggerated hand gestures that we all heard it the unmistakable sound of a soft scratch at the door. We froze, the laughter dying in our throats. The scratching continued, persistent but unhurried, a dreadful contrast to the racing beats of our hearts. Silently, we turned to look at the door. The dim light of the lantern threw grotesque shadows, making the ordinary cabin door seem ominous. The scratching stopped abruptly, replaced by a soft whisper that seemed to echo around the cabin. Alex, always the brave one, got up and moved towards the door. He took a deep breath, threw it open, and stepped outside. We held our breaths, waiting in a tense silence. After a few moments that felt like eternity, he came back in, shaking his head. Nothing. Not a squirrel or raccoon in sight, he reported. His words, meant to reassure, instead settled in the pit of my stomach like a stone. If it wasn't an animal, then what was it? I glanced at Mindy and Noah. Their faces mirrored my confusion and unease. To dispel the sudden chill, we all clambered back into our bunks, pulling the covers tightly around ourselves. We attempted to laugh it off, to lose ourselves in a new conversation, 
but the mood had shifted undeniably. One by one, we fell into an uneasy sleep, the sounds of the night a haunting lullaby. As I lay awake, staring at the wooden planks above me, I couldn't shake off the unease. The whispering seemed to fill the cabin, the words indiscernible, but their presence palpable. My thoughts raced, searching for logical explanations, but finding none. That was the night the summer lost its luster. The day's bright promise was tarnished by the night's mystery, casting a long shadow over the sunny camp days. We didn't know it yet, but the whispers were just the beginning. They were the first notes in a terrifying symphony that would keep us on edge, forever changing our memories of Camp Echo. The eerie happenings of the second night marked a turning point. What we initially brushed off as harmless woodland disturbances had taken on an unnerving edge. Yet, as the sun rose each morning, casting its golden glow over Camp Echo, the previous night's fear seemed silly, almost dreamlike. It was this relentless cycle of dread and daylight relief that began to fray our nerves. With each passing day, our apprehension grew. The whispering and scratching persisted, intensifying with each night. The sounds were no longer just background noise. They had become a haunting melody, dictating our moods, intruding our dreams, and testing our courage. I decided to document our experiences, hoping to find a pattern, a clue, anything that might shed light on these nocturnal disturbances. Each day, I scribbled in my journal, detailing our daily activities and the ever-louder whispers and scratches that terrorized our nights. On the fifth night, we gathered in our cabin, our earlier joviality replaced with a sober sense of anticipation. We listened as the night fell, the natural sounds of the woods slowly merging into the chilling whispers and scratches. The cabin, once a place of refuge, now felt like a cage, leaving us at the mercy of the invisible terror outside. We have to do something, Alex finally said, breaking the stifling silence. His face was taut, mirroring the tension that hung in the air. We can't just sit here listening to this, this thing, whatever it is. He was right. We couldn't let our summer be hijacked by fear. Gathering our flashlights and a bit of the bravado from our earlier days, we decided to investigate. We stepped outside, the cool night air brushing against our faces, carrying whispers of the ominous sounds. We searched around our cabin, probing the dark corners, expecting to find a reasonable explanation. But the woods remained cryptically silent, revealing nothing. We searched until the cold seeped through our clothes, until the flashlights flickered, and our hopes withered. We found no traces of any animals, no visible damage to the cabin door, nothing that could explain the sounds. As we trudged back to our cabin, the dread felt heavier, pressing down on us like a physical weight. The woods behind us seemed to hum with an uncanny energy, as if mocking our failed attempt to unveil its secret. The rest of the night passed in a blur of restless sleep and fearful wakefulness. The whispers and scratching continued unabated, our unsuccessful investigation adding to their haunting allure. What was happening to our idyllic summer at Camp Echo? The camp's daylight charm was losing its sheen, slowly overshadowed by the terror of our nights. As we lived our days in feigned normalcy and nights in creeping fear, the line between reality and nightmare blurred. We had started this journey as carefree teenagers, eager for a summer of adventure and camaraderie. But as the echoes of the night grew louder, we found ourselves thrust into a terrifying unknown, our laughter fading into the chilling symphony of whispers and scratches. 
In the harsh light of day, Camp Echo returned to its picturesque charm. The unsettling sounds that echoed through the night seemed like a distant memory, buried beneath the hum of daytime activities. We all clung to this illusion of safety, allowing the summer sun to wash away the fears of the previous night. Mindy, Alex, Noah, and I tried to throw ourselves into the camp activities. We learned to shoot arrows at the archery range, our faces grimly focused as if hitting the bullseye would somehow chase away the night's terrors. We swam in the lake, letting the cool water cleanse not just our skin, but also our anxiety-ridden minds. We climbed the towering trees, challenging ourselves to scale new heights. Yet, the thrill of the climb was marred by the unsettling knowledge that the same woods cloaked our nocturnal tormentor. I found my gaze wandering into the depths of the forest, expecting the trees to give up their secrets. Despite the unnerving thoughts that loomed in the back of our minds, we managed to snatch moments of genuine happiness. We laughed at Alex's jokes, sketched with Noah, helped Mindy set up her outdoor cooking experiments. These were moments of respite, moments that reminded us of the summer we'd envisioned, of the friendships we cherished. But the fear was never truly gone. It lay dormant during the day, buried under the laughter and fun, only to awaken as the sun dipped below the horizon. We finally confided in the counselors about our nightly experiences. They listened, their faces etched with feigned concern that did little to comfort us. They dismissed it as mere wildlife, probably a raccoon or squirrel. They advised us not to let our imaginations run wild, to focus on the daytime activities and the camaraderie of camp. Their indifference stung. It felt like a betrayal, deepening the chasm of isolation that had begun to form around us. We were on our own in this, a realization that added a new edge to our fear. Each night we would return to our cabin with heavy hearts, the door standing ominously in the soft twilight. As we huddled in our bunks, we listened to the whispers grow louder, the scratching more frantic. Our days of respite felt like a cruel illusion, a mere interlude to the nightly horror. The fear was changing us, changing our summer. The contrast between our days and nights was growing sharper. The jovial camp activities, the breathtaking beauty of the forest, and the warm camaraderie all seemed like a facade, masking the chilling reality of our nights. We were living a surreal existence, caught between the bright, bustling days and the fear-infused, whisper-ridden nights at Camp Echo. Our fear was a living thing now, a sinister undercurrent that seeped into every aspect of our time at Camp Echo. The divide between our jovial days and the eerie nights was a stark reminder of the bizarre situation we found ourselves in. We had always been a close-knit group, but the unexplained phenomena seemed to be pulling us apart. Each of us was dealing with the terror in our own way. I documented everything meticulously in my journal, trying to decode the enigma that was our nightly visitor. Alex began to distance himself, his usual energy replaced by a grim determination to protect us all. Noah seemed lost in his thoughts, while Mindy's usual laughter had turned into a forced smile. The lack of sleep and constant dread began taking its toll on us. Dark circles under our eyes became a constant feature. Our conversations were filled with unease, and a shared fear lurked behind our forced smiles. Our desperate attempts to cling to normalcy during the day were failing. The whispers and scratching were eroding our spirit, transforming our fun-filled summer into a psychological thriller. Despite the growing tension among us, we sought solace in our shared experiences. We discussed our fears, our theories, and our futile attempts to explain the eerie disturbances. 
we decided to spend our nights together in the common area of the cabin, hoping our unity would shield us from the fear. We slept in shifts, two of us staying awake while the others caught some rest. Yet even sleep offered no escape. The terror invaded our dreams, turning them into a twisted reflection of our reality. We spent our waking hours observing the cabin and its surroundings, hoping to find something, anything that could provide a clue. We questioned other campers, hoping someone else had experienced similar phenomena, but to no avail. Our ordeal was ours alone, isolating us further. As we searched and speculated, we began to lose track of time. Days and nights merged into a continuous cycle of dread and desperation. Our investigation was a futile exercise, yielding nothing more than increased frustration and fear. One night, after a particularly chilling round of whispers and scratches, Alex proposed a desperate plan. He suggested we venture out into the woods when the sounds were at their loudest. He believed that it was our best shot at confronting the source of our terror. I felt a chill run down my spine. The woods had a sinister aura, especially at night. Yet part of me knew that Alex was right. Our attempts to uncover the truth from the safety of our cabin had proven fruitless. Perhaps it was time to face our fear, to venture into the darkness. That night, as the familiar whispering began and the scratching echoed in our cabin, we braced ourselves. We were about to embark on a terrifying journey into the heart of the Camp Echo mystery. Unaware of what awaited us, we clung to our resolve. Our summer of joy was a distant memory, replaced by a haunting reality we were desperate to decipher. Equipped with flashlights, determination, and a mix of fear and curiosity, we set out into the woods, drawn by the sinister whispers and scratches. The night was alive with sounds, nocturnal creatures scurrying about, the wind rustling the leaves, but our focus was on the eerie melody that had haunted us for nights on end. The forest, which once held the promise of adventure, now echoed with unseen terror. The trees stood tall and menacing, casting long, obscure shadows that danced in the beam of our flashlights. Every rustle, every distant hoot, made our hearts race. We moved cautiously, our footsteps muffled by the thick carpet of leaves. As we delved deeper into the forest, the whispers seemed to grow louder, guiding our path. The scratching became more desperate, resonating with our own mounting anxiety. Suddenly, Noah, who was leading the way, stopped. His flashlight had picked up something unusual, a clear path, barely noticeable, winding deeper into the forest. The whispers and scratching seemed to pulsate from this path, like a beacon in the eerie darkness. We exchanged glances, our apprehension mirrored in each other's faces. Alex squeezed my shoulder, his grip tight. We can turn back if you want, he said, but I could see the determination in his eyes. We had come this far. There was no turning back. Not now. We proceeded, the path winding its way through the dense trees, the ominous sounds leading us further into the forest. Suddenly, the path ended in a small clearing. In the middle of the clearing stood an old tree, its gnarled branches reaching towards the sky, standing eerily still despite the gentle breeze. The whispers and scratching sounds seemed to emanate from this tree. They were louder here, more coherent as if we had intruded upon a ghostly conversation. As we approached the tree, a chill wind swept through the clearing. The whispers turned into an anguished wail that echoed through the night, causing us to clamp our hands over our ears. Then, as quickly as it had started, it ceased. The forest fell into an unsettling silence, the kind that amplifies the pounding of your heart and the ragged sound of your breathing. Look, 
Mindy gasped, pointing at the tree trunk. We followed her gaze, our flashlights illuminating the coarse bark that was marked with long, deep scratches, too precise to be the work of any animal. Our hearts pounded in our chests as the gravity of our discovery sank in. This was the source of our torment. The wailing started again, a mournful cry that sent shivers down our spines. We fled the clearing, propelled by raw fear, our thoughts a chaotic mess. The wails followed us, echoing through the forest, until we burst out onto the familiar grounds of Camp Echo. That night we huddled together in our cabin, too shaken to speak. We had come face to face with the terror of Camp Echo, but our quest for answers had only deepened the mystery. As I finally fell into an uneasy sleep, the image of the tree, with its haunting wails and ominous scratches, remained etched in my mind. Our summer camp had turned into a nightmare, and the night was far from over. In the cold light of dawn, the memory of our midnight excursion felt like a bad dream, but the fear was real and tangible. That morning, we gathered in the cabin, our uneaten breakfast forgotten, the horror of the previous night fresh in our minds. I pulled out my journal, flipping through the pages filled with our experiences. But this time, we weren't looking for a pattern in the strange occurrences. We were searching for a clue, something about the tree and the strange sounds. Mindy suggested we seek out some of the older staff, hoping their knowledge of the camp's history might shed light on our haunting experiences. Reluctantly, we split up to gather information, each taking a different member of the camp staff to talk to. I approached Mr. Jenkins, the grizzled old maintenance man who had been at Camp Echo for as long as anyone could remember. He listened to my tale, his face revealing nothing of his thoughts. When I finished, he was silent for a moment before his rough voice filled the air. Sounds like you've come across the whispering tree, he said, his eyes holding a distant look. He went on to tell me an old camp legend about a man who had gotten lost in the woods many years ago. According to the tale, the man had encountered a wild animal and, in his fear, had climbed a tree to escape. However, he never found his way back and eventually succumbed to the harsh wilderness. It was said that his spirit haunted the tree and the surrounding forest, his whispers and scratches echoing in the night. Chills ran down my spine as the legend eerily paralleled our experiences. The whispers, the scratching, the tree, it all fit. The story seemed far-fetched, yet after what we had experienced, it felt frighteningly plausible. Back at the cabin, we shared our findings. Each conversation had revealed bits and pieces of the same legend. The staff had dismissed it as a spooky tale to scare the younger campers. To them, it was a part of Camp Echo's charm. But to us, it was the horrifying reality we were living. The legend of the Whispering Tree was like a puzzle piece that fit into our terror-filled summer. The fear that had once been formless now had a name, a story. It didn't make our nights any less terrifying, but it gave us something to hold on to. As the whispers and scratches continued to haunt our nights, we found ourselves trapped in a chilling reality. The friendly confines of Camp Echo had transformed into a stage for a ghostly presence, leaving us caught in a tale that was as old as the camp itself. Our friends had turned into fellow victims, the forest had become a haunted playground, and our cabin was the center stage for a ghostly performance. As the line between legend and reality blurred, we were left wondering, would we ever escape the haunting grip of the Whispering Tree? The knowledge of the Whispering Tree legend was both a relief and a curse. It offered a semblance of understanding to our terror, yet it painted our reality with a darker hue. 
Our nights were no longer just scary. They were a tragic symphony of a lost soul's cries, echoing in the haunting darkness. We tried to confide in some of the other campers, hoping that sharing our fears would lessen their weight. Most laughed it off, a few looked scared, but none seemed to believe us. Our ordeal felt lonelier than ever. Each day we grappled with our sanity, wrestling with the irrational fear that gripped us. Sleep was rare, filled with nightmares that mirrored our nights, and each day we grew more desperate. The forest, once a sanctuary of fun and adventure, now seemed more foreboding than ever. On a particularly hot afternoon, as we sat huddled in our cabin, Alex proposed a new plan. His idea was risky, even dangerous, but in our desperation, it held a strange appeal. He suggested that we try to communicate with the spirit. He reasoned that if the legend were true, then perhaps we could find a way to free the lost soul, to put an end to our nightmare. We hesitated. The thought of willingly interacting with the entity terrified us. Yet, we were running out of options. Our summer was slipping away, replaced by a haunting reality that no one else understood. With fear etching our hearts but determination setting our resolve, we agreed to Alex's plan. We decided to return to the tree, armed with the legend, and confront our ghostly tormentor. That night, as darkness claimed Camp Echo, we set out once again. We held on to each other, our flashlights casting long shadows as we followed the path that led to the whispering tree. As we reached the clearing, the whispers and scratches grew louder, the tree standing as an ominous beacon in the eerie silence. Stealing ourselves, we stood before the tree, the whispers turning into mournful cries. Alex stepped forward, his voice shaking as he spoke to the unseen entity. We know your story, he began. We want to help you find peace. Tell us what you need. Please, let's end this. His words hung in the air, a plea echoing in the silence of the night. We waited, holding our breath, as an uncanny calm settled around us. But our answer wasn't words or understanding. Instead, the cries grew louder, more frantic, the scratching echoing our rising fear. As we fled the clearing, our plan in ruins, the whispers seemed to follow us, filling the night with their anguished cries. Our hopes of ending the terror seemed futile, our desperation growing as the haunting melody of the whispering tree became a grim serenade to our failure. Back in the safety of our cabin, we pondered our dwindling options. The legend had offered us a name, but it didn't have a solution. The mystery was far from over. Our nightmare at Camp Echo continued, the haunting whispers and scratches a stark reminder of the terror that had claimed our summer. In the aftermath of our failed attempt to communicate with the entity, we found ourselves at a loss. The haunting melody of the whispering tree continued, its spectral performance unabated. Each day, our determination was slipping, replaced by a growing sense of despair. Then, one sunny afternoon, Noah brought a piece of news that piqued our interest. In his quest for answers, he had stumbled upon a local historian, Mrs. Miller. She had shared with him an old tale that added another layer to the legend of the Whispering Tree. According to her story, the lost man wasn't alone in the woods. He had been part of a group of settlers, pioneers who had made their home in a cabin near where our camp was located. However, the cabin was abandoned after the man's mysterious disappearance and presumed death. The tale breathed new life into our quest. We reasoned that the cabin could be the missing piece of our puzzle, the key to unraveling the mystery that had consumed our summer. With renewed vigor, 
we planned a new expedition. Guided by the vague details from Mrs. Miller's tale, we would search for the settler's cabin. If the legend was real, perhaps something in the cabin would give us the clue we needed. We set out the next morning, armed with maps and provisions. The forest that once brought us joy now seemed to mock our fears. Yet we pressed on, driven by our desperate hope for answers. We trekked through dense undergrowth, followed hidden trails, and explored unfamiliar terrain. The sun moved across the sky, casting changing shadows on our expedition. Hours later, just as we were about to give up, we found it, a dilapidated structure, hidden deep within the forest, nearly consumed by the wilderness. The sight of the cabin stirred a mix of emotions in us. It was eerie and ominous, yet it held a promise of answers. As we cautiously approached it, we could feel the weight of its history, its forgotten stories resonating with our fears. The cabin was decrepit, its wooden walls bearing the scars of time. Moss and vines covered its exterior, while the interior was filled with dust and decay. Yet, amidst the wreckage, we found fragments of a bygone era, old furniture, faded photographs, a dusty journal. We spent hours sifting through the remnants of past lives. It was a surreal experience, touching relics of a time that felt both distant and intimately connected to our terror. However, nothing seemed to provide a clear link to our spectral tormentor. As the day faded into evening, we left the cabin, our hearts heavy with disappointment. We returned to the camp, the cabin's silent testimony doing nothing to ease our fears. That night, as the familiar whispers and scratches filled our cabin, we couldn't shake off the feeling of despair. The cabin in the woods had offered a glimmer of hope, but it had faded as quickly as it had come. The mystery of the whispering tree was as impenetrable as ever, our quest for answers shrouded in the shadows of the unknown. After our expedition to the abandoned cabin, we returned to camp heavy-hearted. The cabin had offered no tangible solutions, no clear path forward. Our nights were filled with the haunting melodies of the whispering tree, a chilling lullaby to our unending nightmare. Yet, amongst the remnants of the cabin, we had brought back one item, an old weather-beaten journal. The pages were brittle and yellowed with age. The words almost faded, yet it held a compelling allure. Maybe, just maybe, it could offer us some insight. Over the next few days, we pored over the journal, straining to decipher the old-fashioned handwriting. It was a tedious task, but it was the last thread of hope we clung to. The journal belonged to a woman named Martha, a member of the Lost Settler Group. It was filled with the mundane details of their life, their struggles, and aspirations. It was a window into a past life, the forgotten story of the forest that was now our haunted playground. As we delved deeper into the journal, a particular entry caught our attention. Martha wrote about her husband, the man who had disappeared. His name was George. He was described as a man of strength and kindness, his loss deeply felt by all. As we read her heartfelt words, our spectral tormentor became more human, but it was the final entries that held us captive. Martha wrote about strange occurrences, similar to our own experiences, starting after George's disappearance. Whispers in the wind, unexplained scratches on their cabin door, and an overwhelming feeling of dread. It seemed the whispering tree's haunting began much earlier than we had thought. One entry stood out. It described a night when George's voice seemed to come from the woods, leading her to the tree we had come to fear. She wrote of seeing a figure, George's figure, disappearing into the woods. She tried to follow, 
but was lost in the darkness. The next morning she found herself near the tree, a deep sense of sorrow enveloping her. The entry ended with a strange note. Martha wrote of her belief that George was trying to communicate with her, that he was lost and trying to find his way back. She believed the tree was a beacon, a link between their world and his. But what he wanted, or how to help him, was a mystery that remained unsolved as the entries abruptly stopped. Reading Martha's entries was a chilling experience. The parallels with our own encounters were uncanny. The whispering tree was not just a nameless horror. It was George, lost and calling for help through the veil of death. Armed with this new insight, we were left with a new challenge, how to reach out to George, how to help him find peace. But time was running out. Our summer at Camp Echo was coming to an end, and the mystery of the whispering tree, now tinged with an undertone of tragic love, was far from over. The revelation of the journal filled us with a renewed sense of purpose. The unknown entity that had haunted our nights was George, a man lost in time, his whispers a plea from the other side. Our terror turned into empathy, our resolve strengthened. Time was against us. We had to make a final attempt to free George from his eternal torment before summer's end. We needed a plan. We spent hours discussing our options. Eventually, we agreed on a risky yet seemingly plausible plan. We decided to recreate the night when George disappeared as closely as we could, in hopes it might create a connection strong enough to help him move on. We knew that George had climbed the tree out of fear of a wild animal. We collected our courage and made a plan to enact the scenario near the whispering tree, with one of us playing George. Alex volunteered, his bravery giving us hope. The evening arrived too soon. As the sun set, we moved towards the whispering tree, a mix of fear and determination guiding our steps. The whispers seemed more intense, the scratches more desperate, heightening our nerves. With the darkness as our shroud, we enacted our play. Alex climbed the tree, his voice shaking as he called out George's name, his pleas for help echoing in the forest. George, he called out. We know you're lost. We want to help you find peace. You're not alone anymore. His words, filled with desperate hope, hung in the air. The forest seemed to hold its breath with us, our hearts beating in rhythm with the eerie silence. We waited, every second stretching into an eternity. Then without warning, a gust of wind swept through the clearing. The whispers grew louder, frantic, the scratches more desperate. In the eerie glow of our flashlights, we saw it, an ethereal figure, George's figure, just as Martha had described, near the tree. Our hearts pounded as the figure looked at us, its form flickering in the wind. Alex called out again, his voice filled with conviction. George, it's time to go home. The figure seemed to nod, a sad, mournful sound filling the air. Then it turned and walked into the woods, disappearing into the darkness. As silence settled over the clearing, we stood stunned, our minds racing to process what we had just witnessed. Had we succeeded? Had George found peace? Back in the cabin, a strange calm replaced the usual dread. That night, for the first time in weeks, the forest was quiet. The whispers and scratches were gone, replaced by the peaceful sounds of nature. Exhausted but hopeful, we fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. The mystery of the whispering tree seemed to have finally found its resolution, or had it. We fell asleep, not knowing what the morning would bring, but hopeful that we had turned the page on our haunting summer at Camp Echo. The morning came with an unusual calmness, the rays of the sun filtering through the cabin windows, casting long shadows on our weary faces. We stirred from our sleep, 
the quietness of the night still lingering in our minds. For the first time in weeks, we had slept peacefully, undisturbed by the eerie whispers or the dreadful scratches. We ventured out of the cabin, drawn to the whispering tree. Its tall figure stood solemn against the morning sky, but its menacing aura seemed to have faded. It was just a tree again, its haunting whispers silent, its bark free of new scratches. The rest of the day was surreal. We participated in the camp activities, mingled with the other campers, shared meals, and laughed. It felt like a normal day at summer camp, a stark contrast to the haunting weeks we had endured. But as the day slipped into evening, an uneasy feeling crept in. We couldn't shake off the feeling that something was amiss, that our ordeal was not over. As darkness fell, we huddled in our cabin, bracing for the familiar terror. Yet the night was silent. The tree stood quiet, its whispers a thing of the past. It felt like we had finally turned a corner, that our nightmare was over. We dared to hope that we had helped George find peace, that we had freed ourselves from the spectral torment. As the night wore on, we found ourselves drifting into sleep, the silence lulling us into a sense of security. But just as sleep was about to claim us, we heard it, a faint whisper, a soft scratch against our cabin door. Our hearts pounded in our chests, our hopes shattered by the chilling reality. The whispers, the scratches, they were back. Fear gripped us, our peace shattered, the specter of the whispering tree looming large again. The morning found us exhausted and confused. We left Camp Echo that day, our summer of adventure ending with an unsettling mystery. We had thought we had found the answer, that we had helped George, but the haunting whispers and scratches suggested otherwise. As we said our goodbyes, the tree stood tall against the sky, a silent witness to our ordeal. Its whispers, now a chilling memory, served as a reminder of the summer we would never forget. We left with more questions than answers. Had we really encountered George, or was it something else? And if it was George, why hadn't our attempt to help him worked? The mystery remained, a chilling testament to our haunting summer at Camp Echo. We never returned to the camp, but the memories stayed with us. The whispers, the scratches, the figure disappearing into the woods. They became parts of our shared past. Chilling stories we would recount in hushed tones. And so, our story ended. Not with a resolution, but with a lingering mystery. The tale of the whispering tree became our legacy. A haunting reminder of the summer when our lives intertwined with a spectral presence leaving us forever marked by our encounter with the unknown. Growing up in Arizona, myths and legends are a part of life. Native traditions, mystic places, vortexes, UFO abductions, and dozens of other stories of the unknown that I always found fascinating. I grew up spending a lot of time wandering around the desert and the mountains, hunting, camping, etc. So I felt very at home in the wilderness. One late spring day on one of my many hiking adventures, I wandered off the trail and after several hours came upon a small group of old mud adobe houses. A few people heard me coming and came out of the houses to investigate, and after apparently making the collective decision that I was not a threat, one of the elders dressed in old-style traditional native clothing and a headdress came over to greet me. The man spoke slowly and told me that I had wandered onto a Navajo reservation and asked me if I was lost, or if I needed help. When I told him no, I was lost, but intentionally, 
He chuckled and invited me in to eat with his family. The next several hours were one of the great experiences of my life. The whole thing was like being thrown back in time. While we ate and talked, others from the surrounding houses began coming over to join us, and I got the feeling they didn't get many outside visitors. We shared stories for hours about life, family, their history in the area, and time spent in the wild, and the longer we talked, the more they opened up, and the more interesting the elders' stories got. Throughout the time, there was one man who never spoke. He just sat out of the circle listening and watching me. At one point, I told them I did what I called my walkabouts every year around September, where I would go out by myself into the wilderness for two to four weeks at a time, and this got the attention of the one silent old man. When I finished, he came over to the circle around the fire, sat directly on the ground in front of me, and asked me to join him on the ground. He told me that years ago he used to do the same thing, and went on to tell me about the canyon he went to. He described it as a dangerous but magical place, and that I would see the world differently if I came back. If. Must be for dramatic effect. When he finished, he invited me over to his home. The house was small, and through an open door in the back room, I could see it was filled with various animal pelts, coyotes, and wolves mostly. He walked over and closed that door, then picked up and handed me an old map and some written directions that seemed like he had been holding onto them for a long time, and just walked away into that back room and closed the door behind him. It was late, and one of the families had invited me to stay the night, which I gladly did. The next morning, as I prepared to leave, one of the old women came over to me with something in her hands, handed me a talisman, and simply said, dip your bullets in the white ash at the hottest part of the fire, then just walked away. September came, and as I packed for my walkabout, I saw the talisman in a drawer, and something felt right about taking it with me. After a beautiful drive, I was very happy to find the Forest Service Road marked on the old map. The entrance to the area was remote and overgrown, and tough to get to even in my jeep, and took me much longer to get to than expected, so I decided to make camp and start the hike in the morning. After a few hours on a trail that looked like it had been forgotten, I came to a stream and the entrance to the secret valley. It was a narrow crack in the tall cliffs, with about four feet of water running gently through, but too narrow for a kayak or canoe. I hoisted my gear over my head and began the wade sideways through the chest-deep water. The crack in the cliffs seemed to go on forever, but after almost two hours I came to the place where it opened up into a small lake in an incredible valley surrounded by tall rock faces. This may have been the most remote place I have ever been, in the sense that there was no sign that people had ever been there. No trash, no bullet casings, not even the evidence of campfires. My first night there was the quietest night I have ever spent in the wild. No birds, no frogs, not even crickets, but I didn't feel like I was alone there. In the morning, after breakfast, I headed out on my first exploratory hike to explore my new home for the next couple of weeks. After being stalked by a mountain lion on a hike about ten years ago, I make a point of now bringing a pistol with me when I'm out wilderness hiking. After some looking around, I found a narrow path that appeared to be a game trail that led up the side of one of the cliffs and towards what looked like caves from the canyon floor. I made my way up to them and came upon an entrance that was much larger than it appeared from below. I made some noise to alert any possible animals I was there, and made my way inside. 
The cave was an expansive single chamber that went back a couple of hundred feet. As I walked, I inspected as much as I could see with my light, but there were no tracks of any kind in the dirt besides mine, so I decided I was alone in there and pushed on toward the rear of the cave. As I came around the last bend in the cave and approached the end, my headlamp panned across a large pile of bones, some animal, some human, and a very old-looking small candle sitting on a natural stone shelf. This is the first thing that has scared me in as long as I can remember. But focusing my wits, I remembered that there were no other tracks in the cave, and figured it was all from a long time ago. I was still a little uneasy as I exited the cave, and was ready to get back to camp. As I came out into the light, about 75 feet away, there was the largest wolf I have ever seen that looked like it was coming down from standing on its hind legs. It dropped down to all fours on a rock and just began staring at me, not growling or baring its teeth, just staring. I pulled my 45 and fired two shots to the side of it to scare it away, but it didn't even flinch. Not only have I never seen a wolf in this part of northern Arizona, but I have never seen a wild animal that did not at least flinch at the sound of a gunshot. We both stood there staring at each other for a moment. I turned and set my backpack down to grab my binoculars and get a little closer look, but when I turned back, the wolf was gone. I made my way cautiously down the path back toward camp. I have encountered wolves before, and usually it's not the one wolf you can see that should worry you, it's the ones you can't see, so I was extra cautious for the return trip. Back at camp I made sure my gun was fully loaded, and got my recurve bow strung just in case the wolves came back. I have seen plenty of predatory animals on my adventures, it's a part of being in the wilderness, so I wasn't too worried just prepared myself the best I could and went over to the lake to go fishing. Within about 20 minutes, I caught two of the biggest brown trout I've ever caught, so I decided to stop fishing for the day and take a swim. Back at camp, I made a fire, cleaned my trout, and made dinner while the sun went down. As soon as the sun went down, all of the life in the canyon seemed to go silent again. As I put out my fire and prepared for bed, I noticed there was a small flicker of light coming from the area where the cave I had explored earlier up the cliffside, which didn't make sense. It was a moonless night, and stars don't reflect that way. It couldn't have been the candle I had seen. It was too old and would not have burned so bright. I decided to keep my gun close and try to get some sleep. I would investigate the cave again the next day. When I woke at sunrise, there was a haze along the ground throughout the whole canyon floor, but as the sun rose it disappeared quickly, and the area came back to life. I made my breakfast, gathered my gun and bow, and headed back up toward the cave. When I reached the entrance, I saw there were still no tracks besides mine around the entrance, and decided to push up the hill further. Just a little further up, I came upon the entrance to another cave, much smaller than the first one. There was a small flat landing with a large, heavily twisted juniper tree, that to my absolute surprise had many small objects hanging from thin, old-looking ropes tied to the branches. There were bones, but there were also old things definitely made by humans, and looked like they were old Native American artifacts. Thinking I might have found the spot where the old man I met on the reservation had stayed when he was there decades ago, I went into the cave. This cave was much different from the first one. Just a few feet in, I noticed the walls were covered in what looked like ceremonial cave paintings. As I pushed further back, the cave got dramatically colder, much colder than it should have been, 
and the walls were completely covered with paintings the entire way. When I reached the back of the cave, I was not prepared for what I saw. There was what looked like an old altar made of wood and bones. As I looked around, I saw that a little before the back of the cave, there was another shaft in the ceiling that went up, and on a ledge about twenty-five feet up sat the small figure of what appeared to be a woman. She was small and pale, with her face painted white, and wearing something like a crown made of woven branches with two small antlers at the front. I stopped and stared for a few minutes, and the figure did not move, so I assumed that it was mummified remains from a long time ago. Not wanting to disturb a burial site, I turned to walk back out of the cave, but I began to walk. I heard what sounded like a faint voice in an unknown, ancient language. I instinctively looked back up towards the figure, but it was gone. I was immediately terrified and ran from the cave as fast as I could get out, but my headlamp flickered and died. I made my way out, feeling along the wall to find my way, and the whole way I felt like there was something right behind me. When I saw the first light from the cave entrance, I began to sprint towards it. Just before I made it out, I looked back, and there was nothing, so I slowed down, but I could still hear the faint voice, and the volume never changed. When I got outside, all the bones and artifacts hanging from the tree were gone. I ran down the path as fast as I could, headed back to my campsite by the lake. Just as I reached the floor of the canyon, I noticed the large wolf at the tree line to my left, but this time it stayed standing upright on its hind legs. I stopped running, hoping to not initiate its predatory response to chase me, and again, it just stood there staring at me. I reached my campsite safely and immediately began packing up. It was too late in the day to make it out before dark, and I did not want to make the hike out at night with all that was going on. I moved my tent so it would back up to the canyon wall by the crack in the cliffside, so I didn't have to worry about anything sneaking up behind me. I built my fire much larger, and knew I wasn't going to get any sleep that night. Just as the sun was going down, I began to hear noises coming from the trees, and I felt like I was being hunted. Finally, in the last light of day, I saw the wolf slowly walking around by where the path led out of the trees, and it began to slowly walk towards me. This time I drew my gun and fired toward the creature intending to hit it, and while I saw a couple hit the dirt around it, several bullets hit it. Several rounds from a forty-five will at least slow down anything I've ever encountered, but this giant wolf kept walking towards me like nothing had happened. I continued to fire at it until the inevitable click of an empty magazine. I reached down and fumbled around in my backpack looking for my other magazines to reload, and as I lifted it, the talisman the old woman gave me fell out onto the ground. I picked it up and put it around my neck, and immediately remembered what she had told me. Dip your bullets in the white ash. I looked around but didn't see my backup magazines, so I grabbed my bow, pulled an arrow that was tipped with a hunting broadhead, and dipped it into the white ashes, drew, and fired. I hit the creature just in front of its right hip, and it let out a noise somewhere between a growl and a person screaming that made my blood curdle. I can hear that noise in my head to this day. It immediately turned and ran back to the trees, and in the flicker of the firelight, I saw the small woman with the antler crown standing there waiting for it. They both retreated into the trees, and for the rest of the night, I could hear the same faint voice I had heard in the cave. I spent the night outside of my tent, as awake as I have ever been, but no longer afraid, and at dawn finished packing up so I could get out of that canyon. The next spring, 
I went back to the small group of houses on the Navajo reservation I had found the year before. I was wearing the talisman as a necklace, and the first person to greet me was the woman who had given it to me, and she ran up to give me a big hug. You heard me, was all she said. I asked the group about the man who had given me the map, as I was almost desperate to talk to him about the experience I had, so I could compare it to his own. They told me that he had disappeared shortly after I had visited them the first time and had not been back. Strangely, when I tried to tell them what had happened to me, no one would let me tell the story, and the oldest man there who sat in the corner kept mumbling skinwalker. We all once again sat and shared other stories of life and a meal. Before I left the next morning, I found the old woman who had given me the talisman and offered it back to her. She smiled and told me I had a good heart, then just closed my hands around it, telling me to keep it to watch over my next walkabout. I went back to that small village on the reservation several times over the next ten years or so, till I moved to Oregon, but they never let me tell them what happened. I never went back to the canyon, and while curiosity sometimes gets the best of me, I don't think I ever will. Back in my twenties, I was what you might call an adventurer. About ten years ago, give or take, something happened that changed that. I moved to the city, got a boring job and a boring apartment, and became decidedly averse to the outdoors. I haven't really told anyone about it in all that time, save my now wife, because, well, for one, they'd think I'm crazy, and for two, I don't want to think about it. I'm finally putting it here, though, because you all deserve to hear it. After all, you probably saved my life. At the time, I had just graduated college and moved from Texas to Alaska, out of a desire for, you guessed it, adventure. I had a job doing stuff I liked. It paid well and gave me enough vacation days to get out and do something really adventurous every once in a while. One thing I'd had on my bucket list since moving north was driving the Dalton Highway. For the unfamiliar, that's a highway that goes from Fairbanks to Prudhoe Bay on the Arctic Ocean. It's a 500-mile, 11-hour drive in the summer, but thanks to work realities, I wasn't able to get out there until early autumn. By early autumn, the snow had started, but the plows were still able to keep the highway pretty clear, and I was driving a 95 Toyota Land Cruiser kitted out for expeditions. I loved that thing. Besides that, I was an adventurer. I was prepared. I had camping gear, emergency gear, a satellite phone, plenty of food and water, enough jerry cans for the trip there and back, and Sam Colt's greatest invention in the center console, just in case. For the unfamiliar, that's the 1911. I was planning to make the trip in two days, sleeping in the back of the land cruiser halfway. I had enough blankets to keep warm, and I had a nice comfy space back there that I could fit in. I'd have to drive slower because of the snow. I wanted to enjoy the scenery, and the sun was setting pretty early by that time of year. I had a good start that day, and the driving was fine. By the time crap went down, it had been dark for about an hour, and I was getting into the foothills of the Brooks Range. That's good scenery, and also terrain I didn't want to be going through in the dark. So I was just about ready to pull over for the night when I saw caution flashers up ahead. For the unfamiliar, a hard rule for any Alaskan is that you always, always pull over when you see someone in distress on the side of a remote road like that especially after the snow starts. If they aren't prepared for an emergency, there's a very good chance that you could save their life. So that's exactly what I did. I pulled over next to a Nissan SUV, 
Not as nicely kitted out as mine, but not bad either. I figured they were doing the same thing I was. Small world. By the jack under one axle and the wheel sitting next to the car, they'd blown a tire. What I didn't see, though, were the people. I got out of my land cruiser, crunching down into the snow, and looked around. There aren't a ton of trees that far north, but there are quite a few patches of evergreens that, while not quite forests, can be pretty dark and thick on a snowy night. Hey, I called, my voice going silent a few yards away, as sound does in snowy woods. Y'all need help? No answer. Complete silence, save the faint clicking over the flasher from inside their Nissan. I shouted again. Anybody there? I've got tools. No answer. Silence. I considered myself a pretty brave person back then, but I'll admit that I was creeped out at this point. This vehicle definitely hadn't been here for all that long, but there was no one to be seen. Besides that, the total quiet and the darkness of the night were unnerving. It wasn't that weird for it to be silent on a snowy night like this, that far north, but still, creepy. Creepy enough that I hopped back in the car and grabbed my weapon, storing it in one of the big pockets in the front of my jacket, just in case. There were bears up there. I approached the Nissan and saw footprints in the snow. Okay, not a ghost car. One pair had been crouched down at the removed tire, and the other had been standing a couple of feet away, by the rear of the SUV. The latter pair had then, at some point, headed off toward the tree line. It stopped a few yards down, paced around a bit, then continued into the woods. The pair near the tire had then, presumably later, gotten up and ran after the first. I was no tracker, but it's not hard to tell when someone was running in the snow. Now I was really creeped out. I was tempted to hop back in the car and keep driving for a good long while, but, like I said, this could easily have been life or death up there. Besides, I had my weapon. It could handle a grizzly. Probably. That was the worst I'd find up here. Probably. So off I went, following those two sets of footprints into the woods. It was really dark, but don't worry. I had a really nice flashlight. Surefire. The complete quiet seemed to get even quieter as soon as I passed the tree line, as sound does in snowy woods. The only thing comforting me that I hadn't gone deaf was the sound of my breath and my boots crunching in the snow. Hey, I called again, maybe 20 yards into the woods. Is everyone okay? This time I got a response. It was a woman's voice and it sounded afraid. Over here, it called. Help! I got a spring in my step at that, jogging toward the sound of the voice, shining my light through the trees to try and catch a glimpse. Over here, it called again, much closer. Help! Remember when I said y'all probably saved my life? This is when that happened. I stopped. The hair on the back of my neck had stood on end and a chill had run down my spine. Something was off about that voice. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it was just slightly wrong. I pointed my light toward where I had heard it. Are you hurt? I said, voice raised but not quite shouting anymore. Help! The voice called again, only it was even closer this time. I hadn't heard the crunch of any footsteps. Over here! My grip on my flashlight tightened and my heart started to hammer in my chest. This was not right. I'd read a lot of no sleep back then and had watched and listened to my fair share of spooky stories. At the time, I didn't think any of this stuff was real, but what was happening to me felt way too familiar, and it was setting off alarm bells. Something about this exact situation was tugging at the back of my mind as something I should be terrified of. I tried one more time. What's your name? I asked cautiously, 
Help, the voice called, and it couldn't have been more than a few yards off. That was enough for me to swap my light to my left hand and bring out the colt with my right. I pointed both in the direction of that voice and finally caught a glimpse of something besides trees. Off in the distance, barely visible, I could see a bundle of something laying in the snow. It was human-sized, and the snow all around it was stained dark. My head was in the middle of processing what it was seeing when I saw movement between me and the body. Oh no, that was a body. I pointed my flashlight and gun at the source of the movement. It was humanoid, with two arms and two legs. But it was all wrong. The limbs were too long and it was too tall. Its hair was thin and wiry. It had antlers, freaking antlers. And its face, which was also, I assure you, really wrong, was stained dark with what I can only assume was blood. I fired two shots and hauled out. I don't know if the bullets slowed it down. I don't even know if I hit it. I ran faster than I'd ever run before, and by the cracking branches and crunching snow behind me, it was giving chase. My heart felt like it was going to explode out of my chest, and my lungs burned from taking in the frosty air. Once or twice I saw death flash before me as I nearly lost my footing in the snow, but I managed to stay upright. As I ran I heard more snapping, more crunching, not just behind me now, but all around. There were more. I got really lucky that night. I was lucky to have spotted the body, lucky to have run just fast enough and not fallen on my face, lucky none of the whatever they were, I have a guess but I'd rather not hazard it, were just a bit closer or faster. I was lucky that I had dabbled in enough spooky stories that my alarm bells had gone off, and I was lucky that the poor couple, maybe, in that Nissan had gotten stranded there and suffered the grisly fate they suffered. After all, I was planning to stop just as I saw those caution flashers. I'd have been right there, in those same woods, asleep. I don't want to think about what would have happened to me if that had been the case. I made it to my car, which I was again lucky to have left running, thinking I wouldn't go far. I leapt in, slammed and locked the door, and threw it in reverse as I saw dark, lanky shapes coming out of the trees. As I got moving, the headlights revealed what had been chasing me. I can't say exactly how many it was, at least half a dozen. All of them were similarly stretched, pale to the point of being almost white, with various forms of antlers and primitive-looking clothing. I reversed down the road as fast as I dared, without risking going off and dooming myself to certain death, for a good half-mile before I finally got the nerve to turn around. Then I flew down the highway all the way back to Fairbanks only stopping once I found a nice, well-lit hotel in the middle of the city. The next day, I was back in Anchorage. I thought about calling the state troopers. Someone was going to find the Nissan, probably find the bodies. They'd find my casings, my tire tracks. I could end up a murder suspect. I decided against it, though. If I ratted myself out, I'd be a murder suspect anyway, and then they'd know it was me. Better to bet that no one could tie me to that scene especially being as far from local as I was. Over the next week, I packed my stuff, bailed on my job and my lease, and moved back to Texas. I never ended up with police banging on my door, so I guess I made the right choice. I still have nightmares about those wrong, elongated things chasing me. I probably have PTSD, but it's not like I can talk to a therapist about it without ending up in a loony bin. I'm not an adventurer anymore. I never go anywhere at night and I stay in the city as much as possible. I didn't get out of there unscathed, but I got out of there alive, which is better than can be said for the folks in the Nissan. I was lucky.
vacant, voidless, their eyes will forever be changed and stripped of the life they once deserved. They are walking lies, being inhabited by a deceiver of life itself. I'm overwhelmed and trapped by the countless thoughts that pass through my conscience on a day-to-day -day basis. Where have you gone, Mike and John? Where will we meet again? Cabins. The very word evokes a sense of peaceful retreats in nature, away from the chaos of everyday life. For many, it's a place where they have created fond memories, such as family vacations, or simply enjoying time in the great outdoors. The crisp, fresh air, the tranquil sound of rivers flowing, the stunning beauty of nature all contributes to a sense of euphoria and contentment. Despite the idealistic setting, there can be an underlying sense of eeriness that can cast a shadow over the experience. Perhaps it is a feeling of isolation that creeps in when the sun goes down, coming to the realization that one is never truly alone. It is in these moments that one may lose their purity and mindfulness, that sense of being fully present and in the moment. The mind can wander and conjure up all sorts of unsettling thoughts and emotions. The memory of that cabin still lingers in my mind. Every time I close my eyes, I can see the darkness, an emptiness that filled that place. The air was heavy, and the atmosphere was thick with unease. The creaking floorboards and the howling wind outside sounded like screams, as if the cabin itself was alive and trying to warn me to leave. Sometimes I wonder if I've left a part of myself behind in that run-down shack of hell. It's as if a piece of my soul was stripped away and left to rot there, unable to escape. The thought sends shivers down my spine, and I can't help but feel a sense of foreboding whenever I think about that cabin. Despite my ongoing unease, my purpose today is not to dwell on the past. Instead, I am here to warn you of something that inhabits our world. Something that we must be aware of and prepared for. I am warning you of the masked, the hidden, and the mimic. It all began when my close friend Mike called me up and pitched the idea of an exploration campout at some abandoned trails with our entire friend group. The place he described was supposedly located on the outskirts of town, far away from the city. Despite my reservations and lingering superstitions, I agreed to go. The idea of spending time out in nature with my boys surrounded by nothing but the sound of the wind and the rustling of leaves, was too enticing to resist. Not to also mention the opportunity for exploration and adventure. The next day, Mike and I loaded up my truck with supplies for our hike. We were also joined by two other friends, Brandon and John. As we made our way toward the outskirts of town, Brandon shared his insight on what he came across while researching the trails. Apparently, there were several hiking trails in the area that had been abandoned and shut down due to funding issues. This didn't make much sense to us, considering the popularity of hiking in the area, but we were eager to explore nonetheless. We arrived at the trailhead and started gearing up for our hike. The trailhead had a rundown look to it, with overgrown weeds and broken signs. As we started walking down the trail, we couldn't help but notice the eerie silence that surrounded us. The trees were dense, and the only sounds we could hear were the crunching of leaves beneath our feet and the occasional bird call. As we continued on the trail, we started to come across strange objects. There were rusty cans, broken glass, and old camping gear scattered around the trail. We also noticed that some sections of the trail had been washed out by rain, making it harder to navigate. As we hiked deeper into the woods, we started to notice that the trees were becoming twisted and deformed. 
The trail seemed to be leading us toward a section of the woods that was darker and more foreboding than the rest. Despite our growing unease, we pressed on. We were determined to solve the mystery of the abandoned trails. Our theories ranged from budget cuts to supernatural forces, but we couldn't shake the feeling that something was watching us. I heard that within two years of its opening, 15 people went missing, Mike said as we hiked deeper into the woods. Maybe there were a lot of black bears around, he continued, trying to rationalize the disappearances. Come on, man. Why do you have to have such a bland answer? I mean, think about it. There were no remains left of all 15 people who went missing. No remains. So tell me, Mike, who got them? John replied, his voice rising with frustration. John was always the one to entertain the idea of something more sinister lurking in the shadows. His fascination with the supernatural clearly frustrated a one-dimensional intellect in Mike, although I couldn't deny the logic in his argument. Well, what else could have done this? If you're going to go on a tangent about some supernatural bullcrap, don't even talk. Seriously, you know I'm not the type to sit around and listen to bogus theories, Mike added, clearly annoyed. But John wasn't deterred. Hey man, it's not personal. Maybe start to allow yourself to think outside the box. Not everything can be explained through logic, he said, trying to reason with Mike. We continued hiking, our conversation shifting to the various theories we had about the abandoned trails. The deeper we went, the more the woods seemed to close in around us, suffocating us with a sense of entrapment. Despite our apprehension, we were all determined to uncover the truth that was buried in the past. With a sense of relief, we finally arrived at our destination and found the perfect campsite by the river. The sun was setting, and the golden rays painted the sky in a warm glow. The sound of the river flowing gently by was soothing, and we all stood there in awe, admiring the beauty of nature. Our apprehension and fear seemed to dissipate as we took in the peaceful surroundings. We set up our tents, started a fire, and shared stories and jokes that made us laugh till our faces hurt. As we sat around the campfire, roasting marshmallows and telling ghost stories, it felt like we had been transported to a simpler time, away from the pressures and stress of our normal lives. We were in our element, surrounded by the raw beauty of nature, and nothing else seemed to matter. For a moment, we forgot about the abandoned trails and the unsettling feeling that had accompanied us on our hike. We were free, and that feeling of euphoria returned to us, filling us with a sense of joy and wonder. This campfire is coming out nice, ain't it, guys? John said with a grin on his face. We all nodded in agreement, savoring the presence of each other's company. Brandon chimed in, expressing his longing for more moments like this, where he could be in nature and escape the boredom of daily life. I agree, I added. I feel alive when I'm out exploring new things. I mean, think about it, guys. We slave our lives away working and paying taxes. Don't you think we're meant for something more than that? Mike, who had been quietly observing the conversation, spoke up. Evolutionarily speaking, we used to travel all across the world in small tribes. It's in our nature to want to explore new lands and experience something new every day. Most of us don't have anything remotely similar to that. That's probably why there's mass depression across the world. As Mike's words lingered in the air, we fell into a thoughtful silence, contemplating our own existence and the choices we had made. But in that moment, with the fire crackling and the stars twinkling above us, we were content with just being in each other's company and enjoying the beauty of the natural world around us. I think we should go on more camping trips like this, 
John said, breaking the silence. What do you guys think? We all nodded in agreement, our spirits lifted by the promise of more adventures to come. For the time being, we were happy to be exactly where we were, surrounded by friends and the wonders of the great outdoors. As night began to fall, we all gathered around the campfire and got our sleeping blankets out. We spent our last few moments awake goofing around, telling stories and jokes, and continuing to maintain our high spirits. The crackle of the fire and the sound of the nearby river created a soothing ambiance, lulling us into a state of relaxation. However, that peacefulness was suddenly shattered by John's blood-curdling scream. We all jolted upright, our hearts pounding with fear and confusion. It took us a moment to realize what was happening, but when we did, we rushed over to John's tent to see what was going on. John was huddled in a corner, his face contorted in terror, sweat pouring down his forehead. He kept muttering something about it being outside and watching us. We tried to calm him down and ask him what he meant, but he was inconsolable. Whoa, whoa, calm down, man. Explain to us what happened. I replied, someone caressed my face. Not gently, not aggressively, but firmly. I woke up and no one was there. I thought for a second you guys were messing with me, but it continued randomly throughout the night. I woke up just now because I had a nightmare, a vivid nightmare of a strange creature hovering over us all. Its eyes were filled with malice like I've never seen before, although it had a touch of admiration and curiosity in its gaze, John added. Okay, John, I know you're freaked out. Any of us here would be too, but Brandon has always been known for sleepwalking. It could have just been him, Mike said. Mike, seriously? I was sleeping on the other side of John. Also, I have sleepwalked in the past, but I've never done it more than once a night. John, don't tell me you've been messing around with psychedelics lately. Maybe it's finally starting to catch up to you. I mean, all that tripping has got to cause damage, Brandon replied. You know what? Forget it, John said with a sigh. I don't want to overthink it. Maybe I'm just still mentally drained from my past psychedelic trips. I mean, I've experimented with all sorts of them in the past. Maybe it's finally catching up to me. Brandon nodded in agreement, looking concerned. Yeah, man, that stuff can really mess with your head. I've seen it happen firsthand with some other friends. Maybe it's time to take a break from all that tripping for a while. We can't have you running into the woods naked because you heard a bird chirp, Brandon sarcastically remarked. We all laughed, feeling relieved that the tension had dissipated and went back to bed. The next morning, we woke up feeling refreshed and ready to continue our hike. As we walked down the trail, we started goofing around and laughing again, feeling a sense of brotherhood. I couldn't believe that exploring an abandoned trail with a group of friends could relieve me of the stress and anxiety that had been weighing me down in my normal life. In spite of the fact that our initial plan was to sleep over one night and hike until noon, we ended up extending our stay for one more night due to our constant stops and goofing around. It was a perfect day, until John spotted something unusual. Hey guys, I see something over there, John said. Please hand me the binoculars in your bag, Mike, Brandon asked. Finally something creepy. I think all of us could have a good scare today. Things have been a bit too mellow, I added. Guys, there's a cabin here, John exclaimed. Hell yeah, finally some action. Let's go check it out, John suggested. Okay guys, it seems like it's on the other side of the river by the bank. From what I could tell, it's gotta be at least two miles out. Brandon informed the group. We made our way down to the river, 
but we were unlucky as we didn't have a boat to get across to the other side. However, we quickly devised a plan to create a makeshift walkway by grabbing a large tree trunk and throwing it down to bridge the gap. Fortunately, our physical strength from lifting weights made it easier for us to be successful. We continued hiking for another 300 meters or so until we caught sight of the cabin. The cabin was neither large nor small, and it didn't look old. It was a two-story, all-wooden structure with dark and moldy wood. Strangely enough, it had no windows. We stared at the cabin in awe, taking in the cold, decrepit view. What left us speechless was how the cabin even got there. The trails had been abandoned since the 70s, and it was puzzling to think how someone could have brought all the necessary supplies deep into the trail on the other side of the river. Try to imagine that scenario and visualize the puzzled state we were in. Nevertheless, our curiosity grew too strong, and we weren't going to stop at anything. We hit the jackpot. We're going to make the news once we tell everyone what we found here, John exclaimed. Shut up, jerk. We're not even supposed to be here right now, so keep your mouth shut, Mike retorted. Yeah, Mike's right. Let's make a pact that we keep this to ourselves. This just doesn't add up. A trail gets abandoned for no apparent reason, and 15 people went missing without a clue. And now there's a cabin in the middle of nowhere, Brandon said, adding to the confusion. Guys, are we making a mistake? What if the owner comes back and shoots us, or worse, skins us? There's no way anyone living out here is mentally sane, I said, voicing my concerns. Look, Adrian, if you don't feel comfortable, please stay out as a lookout. I'm curious to see what's up with all this mess, Mike said, determined to explore further. As we walked towards the cabin, with every crunch my feet made against the leaves on the ground, I was filled with a void of thoughts. I was engulfed with the idea of whether I would be alive and breathing fresh air tomorrow morning, still conscious and aware of my own existence, or if this was the beginning of the end, my last few steps into my destined demise. As we walked up the steps towards the door, the moment of truth came. The smell inside the cabin was metallic, so much so that we all threw up. The repulsive smell was something alien in nature. The floor was scattered with many books and files which we started picking up and reading. Many of the files contained information about cryptid creatures such as skinwalkers, wendigos, Bigfoot, and the Kraken, while a few contained information on lost civilizations. Despite my awe of these findings, one particular file stuck out to me, the Mimic. As I read this document, I felt a chill crawl down my spine. I distinctly remember a quote from the document, Level 4.7 Danger Warning. The origins of mimics are shrouded in mystery. While we don't know much about these elusive creatures, some speculate that they may be therianthropes or other kin, terms used to describe beings that possess both human and animal characteristics. Despite their unknown physical form, it is believed that mimics have the ability to consume a human's consciousness and use their body as a vessel, retaining all of the memories of the previous human. This allows them to perfectly imitate their host's personality and behavior. It is important to exercise caution when traveling to unknown or densely populated areas, as these are believed to be hotspots for mimic activity. Hiking trails and national parks are common hunting grounds for these creatures as they search for their next potential host. One way to identify a potential mimic is by staring into their eyes, as it is believed that they are unable to fully replicate the human gaze. However, it's important to note that the true nature and abilities of mimics remain largely unknown, 
making encounters with these creatures both rare and unpredictable. In other words, with a deep, long gaze into their eyes, you will be able to see the vacantness in their eyes, soulless. Its purpose for wanting to partake in these actions is surrounded by a big cloud of mystery. Although it's speculated that it wishes no more than to be a human, to breathe the same air as we do, to love as we do, or more so to hate as we do, stay away. This cryptid is the most precise killer of them all because of the fact that there is no evidence to prove someone is gone when it inhabits the body of the deceased person. It could be your mother, your father, your friend, it could be anyone. There are more of them than you think, all around us, lingering in the shadows. This is all I could remember reading. It definitely wasn't word for word, but again I'm just trying to give a summary of what the mimic is. You may be questioning whether whoever lived in this cabin before was a total nut job, but trust me when I say this. These looked like authentic government documents. They couldn't have just been printed out. No freaking way. I thought all of this was just folklore, John said. Can you please shut the hell up for once? This isn't a joke until we get out of here alive. We need to go now. Brandon replied. I'm with you, man. Let's bail. This is way too sketchy. I added. No, come on, guys. We only live once. This place hasn't been opened up in a while. We should be safe here. How about we stay? There's a fireplace in here, and it'll be a great experience to talk about years from now, Mike insisted. I'm with you, Mike. I'm scared, but come on. There's only one experience like this in our lives, so let's live it up. I say screw it, John remarked. No, come on, guys, Mike exclaimed, his voice filled with excitement. We only live once. This place hasn't been opened up in a while. We should be safe here. How about we stay? There's a fireplace in here, and it'll be a great experience to talk about years from now. I'm with you, Mike, John chimed in. I'm scared, but come on. There's only one experience like this in our lives. So let's live it up. I say screw it. Okay, I'm in as long as we do sleeping shifts to make sure we don't get skinned alive in the middle of the night, Brandon added, his voice trembling slightly. Well, I can't leave my boys alone, I said, my voice filled with a hint of hesitation. Guys, there's a basement and upstairs, John exclaimed, his voice rising with excitement. Mike and I will check upstairs, and you and Brandon can check out the basement. His voice trailed off as he made his way towards the staircase, his flashlight illuminating the darkened room. Fear paralyzed me, my heart pounding in my chest as I hesitated at the top of the steep staircase. I wasn't built for these kinds of situations, but like always, my pride and ego persevered, forcing me to continue. The stairs were extremely steep, and I stumbled several times, grateful for Brandon's steady hand as he helped me down. It felt like we were descending for ages, and I estimated that we were now about 50 feet underground. As we made our way deeper into the basement, not much was visible at first, but our flashlights illuminated the way. We stopped for a moment, both feeling unsure of what to do next. That was until we heard a human whimpering. My heart raced with fear, and I looked to Brandon, who had a similar expression of concern on his face. We both took a deep breath and followed the sound until we came to a dark corner of the basement. As we approached the dark corner of the basement, our flashlights illuminating the way, we heard the sound of something moving on the ground. Suddenly, we turned our flashlights on and collapsed to the ground in fear. There, lying on the ground, was a middle-aged skinny man with terrible fear in his eyes. For a moment, we stared at the man in shock, unsure of what to do next. He didn't move or say anything, and his eyes were filled with terror. It was clear that he had been through something traumatic. 
I looked over at Brandon, who was just as scared as I was. We knew we had to help the man, but we didn't know how. Who the hell are you? Don't mess with us, we have a gun! Brandon exclaimed, his voice shaking with fear. Shush, shush, the unknown man said, putting his hands up in surrender. I could feel my heart pounding in my chest as I realized we were in a dangerous situation. We didn't have a gun or any weapon to protect ourselves, but at that moment, I was relieved that Brandon had said that. We had to figure out what to do next, and fast. Before we could make a move, the man spoke again, his voice trembling with fear. I know you guys are human, I sense it. Please let me explain myself, I swear I'm not crazy, he said. I could feel my blood boiling as the unknown man spoke. The tension in the air was palpable as we all waited for him to explain himself. Finally, he continued. Me and a group of friends decided to come out here to hike for fun, since we heard it was abandoned. Next thing you know, we hear a man calling out for help. We rushed over to see where it was coming from. We ended up here at this cabin. We cautiously walked in. There laid a man on the floor bleeding, crying out to us for help. As he spoke, I felt a sense of relief wash over me. It seemed that the unknown man was telling the truth and that we were all just victims of a terrible situation. However, we still had to figure out how to get out of there safely. I listened intently to the man's story, my mind racing with questions and theories. When he mentioned the documents, I couldn't help but interrupt him. I don't mean to interrupt you and I know this might sound crazy, but does this have anything to do with the documents we found here? I asked, hoping to get some clarity. The man's eyes widened in surprise and I could see the fear etched into his face. The mimic, he said, his voice barely above a whisper. If you read anything about it, then you'll know what I'm talking about. I lost my two friends to those creatures, those wretched demons. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The documents we found mentioned something about a mimic, but I had assumed it was just a legend or a myth. Now, it seemed that there was more to it than we had thought. As the man continued his story, Brandon interrupted him with anger and suspicion in his voice. Your story sounds like bullcrap to me. What are you plotting? He shouted. I tried to calm Brandon down, sensing that there might be some truth to the man's story. Brandon let him finish. We'll judge his story later, I said. The man continued, his voice trembling with fear. Look, I know you don't trust me, but please keep me hidden here and leave before they get y'all too. It's too late for me. It's just a matter of time. As he spoke, I could feel my own fear rising. We were in serious danger, and we had to find a way out of there before it was too late. Look, man, it's all right. Just calm down and please continue your story, I said, trying to reassure the man. The next day, I returned to the cabin to investigate what had happened to my friends. As I approached the cabin, I felt a sense of unease and apprehension, almost as if the very air around the cabin was charged with an otherworldly energy. When I entered the cabin, I was immediately struck by how eerily quiet it was. There were no signs of a struggle or any disturbance, but the silence was suffocating. As I called out for my friends, they suddenly appeared as if out of thin air. They greeted me casually and spoke as if nothing had happened. They told him that he must be suffering from schizophrenia and that the man they had heard yelling never existed. I couldn't believe what he was hearing. I knew I had seen and heard things that were real but now I was being told that I was crazy. Two weeks passed, and I spent my time scavenging for food and avoiding detection. I was in a constant state of fear and paranoia, never sure if the mimic was still nearby. I eventually returned to the cabin three days ago to try and make sense of what had happened. 
As I dug through the documents, I began to understand the true nature of the mimic. It was a creature that consumed the consciousness of its host, imitating their personality and memories perfectly. The mimic aimed to confuse the masses by leaving no trace of anything unusual or out of the ordinary. I struggled to comprehend the implications of what I had discovered. I was horrified by the thought that the people around me could be nothing more than hosts for these creatures. His voice trembled as he spoke, unable to fully process the weight of the knowledge he had gained. Look, man, I'm not going to say you're lying or that you're crazy. You can leave now while my friends are upstairs. I'll explain to them later, I said. No, don't tell your friends. You guys have to leave too. You can't trust anyone, the unknown man added. We're not going to leave our friends behind. Good luck, man. Please stay away from us. We won't be here for long, I added. The man ran off into the woods, leaving me and Brandon shell-shocked and unsure of what to do next. We were filled with doubts and fears, wondering if he was really crazy or if his story actually added up. Brandon didn't utter a single word, lost in thought. We gotta get out of here, Brandon finally said, breaking the silence. I agree. Something in my gut tells me he's telling the truth, I replied nodding in agreement. As we turned to head back upstairs, John's voice interrupted us. Brandon? Adrian? What's taking so long, guys? We just finished checking out upstairs. Whoever lived here before was definitely tripping on something. I exchanged a worried glance with Brandon, unsure of how to respond. It seemed that the bizarre events we had experienced were far from over. Me and Brandon headed upstairs retaining the knowledge that the mimic could be anywhere. We both agreed to pull an all-nighter to ensure our safety. Mike and John seemed to be in great spirits, almost forgetting that we were in an abandoned cabin in the middle of nowhere. Although we made the best of our situation, we started up a fire on the fireplace and started reminiscing about old times. Mike, remember that time you jumped into the lake because I told you I accidentally dropped your phone in there? Brandon said. Haha, yeah, you've always been a jerk. I hope you know I'm going to get you back worse one day. Mike replied. You'll try, you dweeb, Brandon added. Wait, hold on, guys, did you hear that? Mike said. No, what's up, man? Brandon said. Mike, is everything okay? I asked. No, guys shut the fire off, Mike demanded. Mike, start explaining what the hell is going on, John said. There's someone outside of this cabin. I hear footsteps nearby, Mike said. A few moments later, we felt the walls rattle with vibrations as someone banged on the door continuously yelling, come out, you little weasels. Me and Brandon knew all too well that this was the mimic. We couldn't help but look at one another in an overwhelming disturbance. The way the man yelled was truly bone-chilling. It was as if his voice had been stripped of all humanity, replaced by a primal growl that rattled the very foundation of the cabin. The banging on the door seemed to intensify, as if the man was growing increasingly angry and desperate to get inside. As we huddled together in the room, the atmosphere became thick with tension and unease. The air seemed to grow heavier as if it were pressing down on us with an otherworldly force. The man's voice continued to deteriorate, morphing into a guttural snarl that seemed to come from deep within his throat. Despite our fear, we couldn't help but be fascinated by the strange and unsettling sound. Suddenly the banging stopped and the silence was unbearable. We held our breath, waiting for what would come next. And then we heard it the sound of footsteps slowly making their way toward the door. Each step echoed through the house like a hammer on a drum, and we knew all too well what was about to take place. We huddled together, trying to keep our composure, 
but the fear was overwhelming. Our hearts were pounding in our chests, and we could feel the sweat running down our foreheads. We knew that we had to be ready to defend ourselves, but we had no idea what we were up against. Mike, what the hell are you doing? I asked. Mike started yelling and threatening whoever was behind the door. He rushed to open it, and as he did, the man's yells turned into laughter. In fact, Mike and the other man started laughing hysterically. We were left in a state of confusion. Before we could even respond to Mike, he and the other man attacked us, beating us so badly that we were knocked unconscious. When I woke up, my head was pounding, and I struggled to focus my vision. Mike and the other man were standing over us, their eyes black as night, devoid of any emotion or humanity. Their presence was suffocating, as if the very air around them was being drained of life. Suddenly, I felt a deep sense of grief and loss wash over me. It was as if I had just realized that my childhood best friend Mike had been gone for a long time, his soul replaced by some malevolent force. The other man was no longer a stranger, but a vessel for the same entity that had claimed Mike's life. The weight of the situation was overwhelming, and tears streamed down my face as I tried to process what had happened. I knew that it was only a matter of time before I, too, would be taken over by the creature they called the Mimic. You finally woke up, huh? Mike slash Mimic said. What are you waiting for? Why not just be done with it, whatever you are? I replied. At this point, Brandon and John started waking up as well. Brandon knew all too well, just as I, that our demise was soon to come. John, on the other hand, was in a shocked state. He couldn't even mutter up a sentence. Well, there are three of you and two of us. We're waiting for another one of us to get here, Mike slash Mimic said. What even are you? What do you truly look like? Brandon asked. Haha, you humans have always been curious. Even hundreds of thousands of years ago, you guys never seem to change, Mike slash Mimic replied. What the hell are you even talking about? If you're about to eliminate us, at least do us the justice of telling us what our bodies are going to be used for. Why do we even deserve it? Brandon added. How about this? You tell us where you're from. Why do you even need us to sustain yourself? Whatever you may be, I suggested. We aren't from here. We come from another place and evolve slowly over time by consuming the consciousness, or what you humans call the mind. We begin by taking over the smallest insects, then move on to more intelligent animals, and the cycle continues. We learn as we grow and consume. We have witnessed it all, the fall of the dinosaurs and the rise of mammals. The excitement never ends. Each new life brings a new experience. Please understand that our actions are not personal. It is simply a matter of survival, Mike slash Mimic explained. Do you have emotions? Why do you sound like any other ordinary human? This all has to just be a bad dream, I replied. One thing that most humans lack is the ability to delve deeper into every small detail given to them. As I mentioned earlier, we learn as we grow and consume. We possess everything a human could possibly have, as well as many other types of organisms on this planet. We are scattered across the cosmos, growing and consuming. Our only desire is to experience all that life has to offer and to be immortal, Mike slash Mimic explained. Well, if you already have Mike's body, why would you need another vessel? Brandon asked. That document you read on Mimics didn't specify the context that we can't completely consume the conscience of our host immediately. It takes about four years. Not to also mention it can vary depending on various factors such as age, size, and lastly their health. Once we've almost completely consumed their conscience, 
We are in a hurry to find our next host, Mike slash Mimic clarified. Wait, so Mike's alive somewhere deep down in his mind? Indeed he is, or at least just fragments of him. Our host goes into a dreamlike state, never able to wake up once we have fully implanted ourselves into them. Matter of fact, I feel his fear and confusion as we speak. He isn't aware of what's going on, but I feel his precious fear and sorrow. It overwhelms me with life. Mike slash Mimic said. All of a sudden, John started screaming out in terror. He cried continuously, overcome by great sadness, confusion, and fear. Before I could join John in his delve into darkness, I was interrupted by the sound of footsteps outside the cabin. A tall, mutilated man entered through the door, with dry and flaky skin, and most importantly, empty eyes. You see, our friend here who just walked through the door is in dire need of a new host. So tell me, which one of you is it going to be? Mike slash Mimic said. One last question before it's our time to go. What does life mean to you? I inquisitively asked. Life is a rare and precious phenomenon, surpassing anything else in existence. It is driven by an unyielding will to survive and fueled by the profound depth and richness of human emotions and experiences. Mike slash Mimic replied. The three Mimics then approached us with hungry, curious eyes. They all placed their hands on our heads, caressing us as if we were precious children, almost as if these creatures admired our entire existence as a whole. Suddenly, the human host skin started to flare up in a plethora of bright colors. As the Mimic released its hold on the human bodies, they all dropped to the ground. And then I saw it, the Mimic's true form. Its body didn't resemble any earthly animal, as if the most twisted, eerie minds couldn't even conceive such a creature. The Mimic had thin, almost otherworldly limbs that seemed to be able to grab onto anything in their path. Their structure was unlike that of an octopus. They were arranged in an irregular and unorthodox fashion. The Mimic's face was even more unnerving, with a disconcerting and displaced structure that defied all logic. Imagine long, spindly limbs jutting out in all directions, and a face that was terrifying yet inexplicably puzzling. And the colors and textures of the creature were equally baffling, bright primary dark shades surrounding its disfigured face. In short, the Mimic's true form was something out of a nightmare, a freakish, otherworldly entity that defied explanation. Despite its grotesque appearance, there was an unexplainable beauty to the being that filled me with both admiration and terror. But before I could even begin to comprehend the Mimic's true form, hundreds of its thin, skirmish limbs gripped my body, constricting me with an otherworldly strength. As the Mimic tightened its grip, I felt my consciousness begin to slip away. In that moment, I was overcome by a deluge of emotions that weren't my own. It was as if I was experiencing the memories and sensations of every creature the Mimics had ever assimilated, from the tiniest insects to the mightiest sea beasts, and ultimately to the most complex and enigmatic species of them all, humans. In those moments, it was all too apparent to me that I was going to delve into that dreamlike sleeping state that the Mimic had explained to me before. With my few conscious thoughts, I thought to myself, was this the only outcome? In a way, I assumed it was better than me dying in a painful way. Although realistically my body was being used and mimicked to the touch. My phrases, my mannerisms, my emotions. This was an assault on humanity, I thought. This was far worse than simply just becoming non-existent and out of the picture we call life. Complete darkness engulfed me, and I slowly felt myself getting tired. Then, without warning, gunshots were fired, and I awoke to the mimic's corpse on the ground 
and an all-too-familiar face. It was the man Brandon and I had encountered in the basement, the one we let flee away because we thought he was crazy. Before I could cry out in appreciation, the unknown yelled to me, There's only two corpses on the ground. He got John's body, it's too late. We gotta make a run for it. Let's go. Brandon and I, without second guessing, ran out of the cabin and followed the man who saved us. He explained to us that he had been monitoring us for days to ensure we didn't meet the same fate as he and his friends had prior. Luckily, his compassion for his fellow humans saved us in the end. We ran and ran and ran for hours on end, our fear fueling our desperate attempts to escape. Eventually, a small town emerged on the horizon, and we found refuge in an abandoned house. My friend Brandon and I grieved for our fallen companion John, our tears flowing freely in deep sorrow for the remainder of the day. It has now been three weeks since that fateful incident, and we have been accused of murder by those who believe that John is still alive, or at least his imposter is. This turn of events has forced us to live in constant fear, always on the run from both mimics and humans alike. Despite this, I hold on to the peace in my heart, knowing that I have not lost my soul to those walking deceivers. To the parents of Mike and John, if you are reading this, remember that your sons are gone. Mike has been missing for far longer than you know, and the John you see before you is not your son. Who knows what that creature may do in the night when no one is around to see. Its stares are filled with deep selfishness and hunger, an envy you couldn't even begin to comprehend. To my brothers, wherever you are, know that I love you always. Brandon and I have taken it upon ourselves to hunt down these parasites and protect humanity from their malevolent schemes in the shadows. This was not the life I had envisioned for myself, but it is the life I have been given, and I will not rest until my long-lost friends have been given the justice they deserve. I leave you with this final thought. Within the shadows lie secrets far more terrible than you can begin to fathom. Hold the ones you love dear close. No one is safe from the mimic. There's a strange kind of thrill in starting anew, in stepping into a space that is yours to claim and cultivate. This was the sensation that stirred in my chest as Mark and I pulled into the driveway of our new home, an elegant Victorian house nestled in the quiet of a small Oregon town. It was everything we dreamed of and more. What struck me most about it was the price, astoundingly low, almost as if someone was in a hurry to let it go. This is it, Jess, Mark said a wide grin on his face as he killed the engine. The car ticked in the afternoon sun, cooling from the long drive as we sat for a moment, taking in the sight before us. It's perfect, I breathed out, hardly believing that we'd finally achieved our dream. The house stood tall and dignified, its old world charm enhanced by the backdrop of lush trees and the sleepy town. Yet I couldn't shake a feeling of unease. It seemed too good to be true. I shook off my doubts as we stepped out of the car, our dog Marvin jumping excitedly between us. The lawn was sprawling and immaculate, perfect for Marvin's afternoon frolics. As we stepped onto the creaky wooden porch, the scent of varnish and aged wood filled the air. Welcome home, Mark whispered into my ear, taking my hand. We unlocked the heavy front door, its paint slightly chipped, revealing decades of history beneath. As we stepped inside, the house greeted us with an echo that sent a chill up my spine. For the rest of the day, we busied ourselves with unpacking and arranging our things. 
We filled the house with our laughter, our hopes, and our dreams. Yet, as the sun dipped below the horizon and the rooms filled with shadows, I couldn't shake the feeling of eyes on me, a presence lingering in the corners of my vision. Every creak of the floorboards, every gust of wind through the attic felt amplified in the silence of the night. Marvin seemed restless too, pacing at the foot of the stairs, his eyes unblinking and ears alert. His usual jovial demeanor was replaced with unease. First night in a new place, Marvin, I tried to soothe him. It's going to be okay, boy. Mark and I settled down for the night, the fatigue of the day pulling us into a deep sleep. Yet, even in my dreams, I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. When I woke in the middle of the night, the house was eerily quiet. A cold breeze blew in from the window, causing the curtains to flutter. I turned to find Marvin sitting at the foot of our bed, his eyes fixed on the bedroom door, a low growl reverberating from his throat. Mark's breaths were steady and deep next to me. Just the first night jitters, I whispered to myself, pulling the covers closer. Yet despite my attempts at comfort, the strange feeling persisted, a sense of foreboding that turned our dream into an enigma. We didn't know then that this was just the beginning of our unwelcome journey into the unexplainable, the first night in the house that seemed too good to be true. A new day dawned, chasing away the unease of the previous night. Mark and I began the grueling task of unboxing our lives, carefully arranged and compartmentalized into cardboard containers. We wanted everything to be perfect, for our belongings to find their new home within our dream house. I handled the delicate task of arranging our books on the tall, built-in shelves in the study. Mark, meanwhile, was busy assembling our furniture. The sound of his hammering echoed through the house, a comforting backdrop to my thoughts. Marvin alternated between supervising us, his tail wagging in contentment. It was a simple day, filled with sweat and laughter, and the strange feeling of the previous night seemed a distant memory. As dusk fell, we sat down for a well-earned rest, marveling at the order we had created out of our chaos. The house already felt more like home, our possessions breathing life into it. We retreated to our bedroom, exhausted yet satisfied. Marvin seemed calmer too, settling down at the foot of our bed, his watchful eyes slowly drooping with sleep. Yet when I woke up the next morning, I was greeted by an unsettling sight. The neatly arranged books in the study were now scattered across the floor, some even resting on the couch across the room. I stood in the doorway, my heart pounding, my mind racing. Mark, I called out, my voice echoing through the house. He came rushing, his face pale as he took in the sight. We must have had a visitor, he said, attempting to inject humor into the bizarre situation. But his eyes told a different story, filled with the same confusion and worry that churned within me. We spent the rest of the day setting things right, trying to convince ourselves of ordinary explanations. Marvin, who would usually be running around in excitement at the unusual activity, seemed subdued. He lingered in the hallway, watching us with wary eyes. The kitchen was no better. Our utensils, carefully arranged the previous day, were in disarray. Pots and pans were littered across the floor as if thrown in a fit of rage. Even our bedroom was not spared. Clothes we had neatly folded were strewn around. The drawers of the dresser left ajar. Throughout the day, we laughed it off, attributing it to the hustle and bustle of the move, perhaps even a prank by some neighborhood kids. Yet, the laughter didn't quite reach our eyes, the unease growing with each passing hour. By evening we were on edge, 
the house not feeling quite like the sanctuary we'd hoped it would be. Marvin clung to our side, refusing to venture on his own. The joy of setting up our new home was quickly being replaced by a creeping sense of dread. That night we went to bed with heavy hearts, the events of the day casting a long shadow over our dreams. As I closed my eyes, I couldn't shake off a distinct feeling, a cold whisper in the back of my mind. It seemed the house had a mind of its own, a mind that didn't appreciate our intrusion. And as the moon cast eerie shadows across our room, I couldn't help but wonder if our dream house was morphing into a nightmare. The morning light brought little relief. The unsettling chaos of the previous day weighed on us as we navigated through breakfast. Our conversations strained and filled with unspoken worries. Marvin was unusually quiet, sticking close to me as if sensing my unease. We decided to focus on setting up our electronics, hoping the familiarity of our devices would bring some semblance of normalcy. Mark worked on connecting the television and the home theater system while I dealt with setting up our computers and home office. By late afternoon, we had managed to organize everything. We synced our phones and set our digital clocks to the correct local time. We took a step back to admire our handiwork, a sense of accomplishment lightening the mood. For a moment, it felt like our lives were slowly falling into place again. As we settled in for the night, I noticed the time flashing on our bedroom clock. It was wildly off, showing three hours ahead. Confused, I reached for my phone, but the screen remained stubbornly dark. My battery was drained, despite having charged it to full just a few hours ago. Mark, is your phone working? I called out, my voice shaky. He came over, pulling his phone out and staring at it in disbelief. His battery too was drained. We must have some electrical issue, Mark murmured though his brow was furrowed in worry. The events of the past few days had started to chip away at our skepticism, allowing fear to seep in. Marvin seemed to pick up on our anxiety. His ears perked up, and he gave a low growl, his gaze focused on the darkened hallway outside our room. We reassured him, our words sounding hollow even to our ears. The anomalies continued into the night. The television turned on and off by itself, the flickering screen casting grotesque shadows across the living room. Our laptops, though fully charged, shut down abruptly. Even the lights seemed to dim and brighten of their own accord, leaving us in a state of heightened unease. Every rational explanation we could think of felt strained, inadequate. These were not just random, isolated incidents, but a string of occurrences that seemed calculated, as if someone, or something, was playing with us. That night, we huddled together, the house no longer feeling welcoming. Our shared fear was a palpable entity in the room, creeping into our dreams when we finally managed to sleep. Marvin, who had always loved sprawling at the foot of our bed, seemed unwilling to stay in our room. He whined, pacing around before finally settling down at the bedroom door, his eyes trained on the darkness beyond. In the silent hours of the night, I found myself staring at the ceiling, my mind filled with dread. The house, our supposed haven, was turning into an enigma, and as our devices continued to glitch around us, it became clear that whatever was happening was far from ordinary. Every tick of the inaccurate clock seemed to echo my escalating fear. The dream house we had been so excited to make a home was revealing its true nature, one glitch at a time. The sun was barely up as I found myself standing in the kitchen, a cup of untouched coffee in hand. The eerie silence of the house weighed heavy around me, 
disrupted only by the occasional whir of our glitchy appliances. Marvin was a disconcerting sight, skulking around the house with his tail between his legs. His usual spark was replaced with a tense alertness, eyes constantly darting around. He had always been our jovial companion, his energy and cheer filling our days. Seeing him subdued and afraid was deeply unsettling. As the day progressed, Marvin's behavior only grew more erratic. He refused to leave my side, his whimpers echoing my own internal dread. As night approached, he became increasingly nervous. He paced around the house, his gaze fixated on our bedroom. Come on, boy, I tried coaxing him as I climbed the stairs. But he refused to follow. He planted himself at the bottom of the stairs, a whine escaping his lips. I felt a shiver run down my spine as I stared into his scared eyes. He was sensing something we couldn't. Maybe he's just not used to the new place, Mark suggested, but his voice lacked conviction. Marvin's behavior was not normal, not for our adventurous and fearless companion. We tried to carry on as usual, going about our night routine. Yet the sight of Marvin, fearfully refusing to enter our bedroom, hung over us. That night, we slept fitfully, our dreams filled with shadowy figures and unintelligible whispers. Waking up in the middle of the night, I was startled by the unusual silence. Marvin, who usually filled our home with his happy snores, was missing. I found him downstairs, crouched by the front door. His eyes were wide and alert, his body taut as he stared intently at the door. A shiver ran through me. I called out to Mark, who appeared at my side, his face pale. We tried to coax Marvin to comfort him, but he wouldn't budge. He seemed intent on guarding us, his fear reflecting our own growing terror. The next few days were a blur of unease and fear. Marvin's behavior served as a constant reminder of the unnerving occurrences. He refused to step foot into our bedroom. We found him on multiple nights, huddled by the front door, his gaze unwavering. Our dream house was quickly becoming a house of fear. Our laughter had been replaced with hushed whispers, our dreams with nightmares. The joy of our new beginning was overshadowed by a deep sense of dread. But the worst was yet to come. As Marvin cowered, his canine instincts on high alert, we were forced to confront the reality of our situation. Our beautiful Victorian house held secrets we couldn't decipher, its history whispering in our ears, crawling under our skin. Every room, every corner seemed to be watching us, waiting. It was our dog who first sensed the lingering dread, and as his fear escalated, so did ours. Unbeknownst to us, we were merely on the edge of the precipice, about to plunge into a world of unknown terror. The strange occurrences in our house continued, each day bringing a new oddity, each night filled with unsettling sounds. The house no longer felt like ours, but rather like we were intruders in a place that didn't want us. The unease clung to us, tinging every moment with a lingering sense of dread. We began to hear footsteps at night, soft thuds echoing through the silence. At first, we convinced ourselves it was just the house settling, the old structure creaking and groaning, but soon the sounds became more distinct, more intentional. Footsteps, hushed whispers, the soft closing of doors. Our sleep was frequently interrupted by these noises, jolting us awake in the darkness of the night. We would lie there, our hearts pounding in our chests, listening to the footsteps that seemed to wander through our house, to the whispers that filled the silence. Then came the banging on the walls. It would start as a soft thud, like a hand lightly tapping, but slowly it would grow louder, more insistent. The walls would echo with the sound, 
the noise so real that it felt like someone was trapped within them, trying to get out. Marvin refused to go inside the house entirely, spending his days in the yard, his eyes constantly on the house. His fear only served to heighten our own, his whimpers a chilling soundtrack to our escalating dread. Our cheerful companion was now a shadow of his former self, mirroring our descent into fear. We tried to rationalize, to find plausible explanations. Perhaps it was animals, or maybe the wind. But deep down, we knew these were weak attempts to deny the reality. This was not normal, not natural. We were living in fear, under the roof of our own house. Days turned into weeks, the line between our nightmares and reality blurring. We were caught in a chilling loop, every day a mirror of the last. Footsteps, whispers, bangs. The dread seeped into our lives, tainting every moment. Our dream house was turning into a nightmarish reality, our hopes dissolving into a haze of fear. There was something in our house, something we couldn't see but could feel. It was there in the eerie silence, in the unexplained noises, in Marvin's terrified eyes. It was like living with an unseen presence, a silent observer that didn't want us there. Every creak, every whisper, every footstep was a message, an eerie, bone-chilling message. As fear wrapped around us, holding us captive in our own home, we could only wonder about the nature of our invisible housemate. We were yet to uncover the true horror that awaited us, our terrifying journey far from over. The echoes of the unseen were merely a prelude to the symphony of terror that was about to unfold. A month had passed since we moved into our dream-turned nightmare house. The terror we felt was insidious, poisoning every moment of our lives, sucking the joy out of our once-cherished domestic bliss. The haunting sounds, the shifting objects, the technological malfunctions, all these anomalies created an atmosphere of terror that was impossible to escape. One day, while preparing dinner, the ordinary suddenly morphed into the extraordinary. Marvin, who had been unusually quiet, suddenly erupted into a frenzy of barks. His frantic whines filled the house, raising the hairs on the back of my neck. He was staring at the kitchen counter, his eyes wide and fearful. And then I saw it. A knife, one that I had just used, suddenly lifted off the counter, hovering in the air for a terrifying moment before it flew across the room, narrowly missing us. I screamed, my body frozen in terror, my heart pounding in my chest. Mark! I cried out. He came rushing in, his face going pale as he saw the knife embedded in the wooden cabinet across the room. Marvin continued to bark, his frantic sounds mirroring our own fear. Pack your things, Mark said, his voice shaky but determined. We're leaving tonight. As we hastily packed a few essentials, the house seemed to resonate with a malicious energy. The lights flickered ominously, the footsteps sounded louder, the whispers more urgent. Marvin whined at the door, eager to leave the house that had been terrorizing us. Stepping out into the night, I felt a rush of relief. But as I turned to close the door, my breath hitched in my throat. There, standing in the kitchen window, was a shadowy figure. It was hazy and indistinct, but there was no mistaking the glint in its hand, the same knife that had narrowly missed us. Mark was at my side in an instant, his arm around me as we stared at the terrifying sight. A shadow in our home, holding a knife, an echo of our own terror. We scrambled into our car, our hearts pounding as we left our dream house behind. From the safety of a nearby hotel, we contacted the police. Their search of the house yielded nothing. No signs of forced entry, no shadowy figures, just an eerie, empty house. We were left with more questions than answers, 
our fear validated yet unexplained. We had been living with a malicious unseen presence, sharing our space with a spectral entity. Our home, the embodiment of our dreams, had turned into a playground for a shadowy figure, its motives unknown, its presence chilling. Our story was far from over. The spectral figure, the haunted house, they were parts of our lives now. The fear, the terror, they had seeped into our existence, forever altering our perception of home. Leaving the house was just the beginning. As we sought to reclaim our peace, we found ourselves delving deeper into the shadows of the past. The figure in the window was a chilling reminder of the supernatural ordeal we had lived through, a symbol of the terror we had left behind and the unknown that lay ahead. We spent a few uneasy weeks at the hotel, an uncomfortable limbo between the terror we left behind and the uncertain future. The image of the shadowy figure holding the knife, the haunting sounds, Marvin's fear, all lingered in our minds, keeping us on edge even away from the house. Returning to that house was out of the question. We decided to hire a moving company to retrieve our belongings. Over the phone, we gave them detailed instructions, explaining where everything was. It felt odd, like we were talking about someone else's home, not the place we'd been so excited to move into just a month ago. The movers were efficient, wrapping up their work in a single day. They brought our belongings to a storage unit we'd rented, a temporary solution while we figured out our next steps. They mentioned the eerie feeling they had in the house, the unsettling quiet, but found no signs of the malicious entity that had forced us out. A new fear crept into our lives then, uncertainty. Our life had been thrown into disarray. The home we'd invested so much into was no longer ours to enjoy. We had no idea where to go or what to do next. The comfort and security we once took for granted was replaced by a sense of being lost, of being adrift. Yet, amid this chaos, there was an undeniable sense of relief. We were out of that house, away from the inexplicable events that had turned our lives upside down. Even Marvin seemed happier, his cheerful energy returning little by little in the new environment. Eventually, we made a decision. It was time to move on. We put the house on the market, ready to take a financial hit. We just wanted to be free from the nightmare, to distance ourselves from the terror that had tainted our lives. In a twist of irony, the house was sold to a group of paranormal investigators who were intrigued by our experiences. We shared everything with them, the eerie sounds, the moving objects, the shadowy figure. We warned them of what they were getting into, their excited smiles a stark contrast to the dread that filled our hearts as we recalled our horrifying experience. It was a bittersweet moment when we handed over the keys. There was relief, but also a sense of loss, a mourning for the dreams we had woven around that house. But we knew it was a necessary step, the only way to move forward. The ordeal had taken a toll on us, but it had also brought us closer together. We leaned on each other for comfort and strength, our bond deepening in the face of adversity. The haunting had stripped us of our home, but it had given us a renewed appreciation for the intangible, our love, our courage, our determination to overcome. As we drove away from the house for the last time, a feeling of closure washed over me. It was truly the end of a chapter, a dark and terrifying one. Ahead of us lay a new journey, full of uncertainties but also hope. We were survivors, ready to face whatever came next. The house in our rearview mirror was a symbol of our past, a testament to our resilience, 
and a reminder of the haunting experience we'd never forget. After the sale of the house, we decided to leave the state entirely. The painful memories, the terrifying experiences, all seemed too close, too raw. We needed a fresh start, a place unmarred by the shadows of our past. So we packed our belongings into a moving van, set our sights on the horizon, and began our journey toward a new beginning. Mark and I found a cozy apartment in a bustling city, several states away from our haunted past. It was different from our previous home. The building was modern, the neighbors were close, the noise of the city constant, but it felt right, it felt safe. We slowly started unpacking, filling our new home with familiar belongings, but this time the process was different. Each box we opened, each item we placed, felt like a small victory, a testament to our resilience, a rejection of the fear that had plagued us. Marvin adjusted well to his new surroundings. He seemed more relaxed, his cheerful personality resurfacing. His renewed spirit brought a sense of normality back into our lives, a cherished reminder of the peaceful times before the haunting. Despite the relief of being in a new place, the memories of our old house were never far from our minds. The slightest creak in the night would have us bolting upright in bed, hearts pounding, a silent testament to the deep-seated trauma we carried. I found comfort in writing. I started to pen down our experiences, hoping that sharing our story might help others going through similar ordeals. It was a cathartic process, allowing me to revisit our past without the paralyzing fear. I found strength in the retelling, a sense of empowerment that helped me come to terms with our experiences. We tried to get back into the rhythm of our lives, to rebuild the normalcy that the haunting had stripped away. But we were forever changed. Our perspectives had shifted, and our priorities realigned. We were more appreciative of each other, more aware of our own strength, and more resilient in the face of adversity. Yet even as we started anew, there was an unease that clung to us, a ghost of our past ordeal. We often found ourselves looking over our shoulders, listening for sounds in the silence, anticipating the inexplicable. It was a harsh reminder of our haunted past, a constant undercurrent in our new lives. As we started to settle into our new home, the terror of our past started to feel like a distant nightmare. Life was gradually returning to normal, but beneath the surface, there was a quiet acceptance that things would never be the same again. The haunting had forever marked us, leaving an indelible imprint on our lives. We had moved away from the haunted house, away from the state, and yet the specter of our experiences followed us. It was no longer a threatening presence, but rather a shadow of our past that pushed us towards a stronger future. We were starting over, embarking on a new journey. Our story, a mix of dread and resilience, was a testament to our survival, a narrative of a haunting that propelled us towards a new beginning. Months passed, bringing a comforting routine back into our lives. Work, home, weekends, a semblance of normality we'd long yearned for. We began to embrace our new city, exploring local haunts, meeting new people, and allowing ourselves to enjoy the simple pleasures of life once again. But the past was never entirely forgotten. We received occasional updates from the paranormal investigators who had bought our house. They had yet to experience anything as drastic as our encounters, but they did share their findings of strange occurrences, unexplained noises, moving objects, sudden drops in temperature. There was an odd comfort in these updates, in knowing that we weren't crazy, that the things we experienced weren't figments of our imagination. 
Yet with each new piece of information, the past returned, the memories flooding back, the trauma fresh once again. Our past experiences began to bleed into our present life, often in unexpected ways. Every odd noise, every flickering light, every glitch on our devices brought back flashes of our haunting. We found ourselves constantly on edge, the echoes of our past refusing to let us forget. The fear had lessened over time, replaced by an acceptance that the past would always be a part of us. We found comfort in each other, in sharing our fears, in confronting our nightmares together. We leaned on each other, our shared experience creating a bond that was stronger than any ghost or unseen presence. I continued to write, using my words to weave a tapestry of our experiences. My writing evolved from a personal coping mechanism to a shared narrative, resonating with others who had faced similar trials. I began to receive messages from strangers who had been touched by our story, their words of comfort and understanding providing a salve for our lingering wounds. Life went on. We began to reclaim our sense of safety, our sense of home. The trauma from the haunted house had changed us, but it didn't define us. We were more than the couple who had lived in a haunted house. We were survivors, resilient in the face of adversity, united in our journey. Our conversation slowly drifted away from the haunting, focusing more on our present life, our future. We planned trips, discussed our dreams, celebrated small victories. The haunted house became a chapter in our life story, a part of our past that had shaped us, but did not define our future. Despite the trials, despite the fear, we found a way to move forward. We learned to live with the ghosts of our past, to accept them as part of our journey. Our lives, once overshadowed by fear, now shone with resilience and love. We had been tested, pushed to our limits, and had come out stronger on the other side. The haunted house, the shadowy figure, the chilling occurrences, they were now just memories remnants of a time when fear had dictated our lives. We had learned to live with the ghosts of our past, finding strength in our shared experiences, building a life that was no longer dictated by fear, but by hope, love, and resilience. As we settled into our new life, the echoes of our haunted past began to fade. Life in our new city was bustling and vibrant, a stark contrast to the eerie quiet of our previous home. Each day brought new experiences, new faces, new joys, gradually filling the spaces in our lives that had once been consumed by fear. Yet, we never forgot. The haunting was a part of us, a bitter memory that had shaped us in ways we never anticipated. We found ourselves growing stronger, more resilient. We learned to appreciate the little things, to cherish the peace of an undisturbed night, the joy of a simple, uneventful day. We started seeing a therapist to help us deal with the lingering trauma. It was a hard step to take, admitting that we needed help, that we were still struggling, but it was a necessary one. The therapy sessions were tough, bringing back memories we'd rather forget. But with each session we felt lighter, the heavy burden of our past experiences lessening bit by bit. Even Marvin seemed to be healing in his own way. His playfulness returned, and he found new joy in exploring the city parks. Seeing him happy again, running around without a care, brought us immense relief and happiness. Despite the challenges, our life was slowly getting back to normal, or at least a new kind of normal. A normal that included accepting our past, acknowledging our scars, and moving forward with courage and hope. 
Our experience with the haunted house had, in a twisted way, given us a unique perspective on life. We had faced our deepest fears, survived a terror that most people could not even fathom. We had learned to face the unknown, to challenge our own limits, to find strength in each other, and we carried these lessons into our new life. Mark found a job he loved in the city, and I continued to write, sharing our experiences, our journey. We found new passions, new joys that gave our life meaning beyond our haunting past. We kept in touch with the paranormal investigators, their stories serving as a distant connection to our past. Over time, their messages brought more curiosity than fear. The house was no longer our nightmare, but a distant mystery we were detached from. As we moved further away from our haunted past, we found ourselves drawn closer together. Our shared experiences, our struggles and triumphs, had forged a bond that was unbreakable. We found solace in each other, comfort in our shared understanding, strength in our unity. The haunting had scarred us, but it had also taught us about ourselves, about each other. It showed us our strengths, our ability to endure, to overcome. As we looked towards the future, we were no longer afraid. We had faced the unknown, braved the terrors of the night, and emerged stronger. The echoes of our haunted past faded into the distance, but they never disappeared. They were a part of our story, a part of who we were, but they no longer held power over us. We had survived, and we were ready to face whatever came our way. One year after moving to our new city, we received a letter from the paranormal investigators. The house was more active than ever, they said. The events had escalated. The shadowy figure had been seen multiple times. The disturbances were more frequent, more aggressive, but they were undeterred, excited even. They were close to finding some answers, they claimed. They thanked us for our patience and for sharing our experiences with them. Reading their letter, I couldn't help but shudder. I could still remember the terror, the chilling feeling of being watched, the suffocating fear that consumed us. But there was a strange sense of relief, too. We were not alone in our experiences. Our fears were not baseless. There was something in that house, something unexplainable and terrifying. That night, as Mark and I sat on our balcony overlooking the city lights, we found ourselves reminiscing about our past, not with fear or anxiety, but with a sense of disbelief. It felt like a lifetime ago, a different chapter of our lives. We talked about the good times in the house, the hopes we had when we moved in, the dreams we had for our future there. We talked about Marvin and how he, too, had been affected by the haunting. We talked about our fear, our desperation, and our eventual decision to leave. It was a cathartic discussion, a way to acknowledge our past without letting it consume us. The haunted house had become a part of our history, a terrifying memory that had shaped our present. But it was no longer a part of our daily lives, no longer a source of constant fear. We had moved on, we had started anew. As the evening turned into night, we sat there, hand in hand, our hearts beating in rhythm. We looked at each other, our eyes reflecting our shared journey, our shared resilience. We had faced our nightmares together, and we had survived. The haunted house was now just a memory, a distant echo in the landscape of our lives. We were no longer its victims, no longer trapped in its grasp. We were survivors, living proof that even the most terrifying experiences could be overcome. As we gazed out at the city, the lights shimmering like a sea of stars, 
We knew that we had made the right decision. The haunted house was no longer our home, no longer our nightmare. We were free, unburdened by the past, looking towards a future filled with hope and possibility. The letter from the paranormal investigators had stirred up old memories, but it had also reaffirmed our strength, our courage. We had faced the unknown, we had survived the terror, and we had emerged stronger. We were ready to face whatever came our way, together. As we retreated into our peaceful home, I felt a deep sense of gratitude. We had survived, and we had each other. We had a home that was safe, a life that was our own. We had moved on from our haunted past, and we were ready to embrace whatever the future held for us. Years later, our lives were so different from the nightmarish time in that haunted house that it almost felt like someone else's story. We were living in a different state, immersed in a city full of life and energy. We had new jobs, new friends, and had built a peaceful life together. The haunting, though still a part of our past, was no longer a specter looming over us. We had moved on, but we had not forgotten. It had become a part of our narrative, a chilling chapter in our shared history. Our haunted house was now the subject of a popular ghost hunting show, its terrifying history a source of fascination for viewers. We watched an episode once, curious and a little unnerved. It was surreal, watching others navigate the house we once called home, their fear echoing our own past terror. Mark and I would sometimes find ourselves discussing those strange and terrifying days, not with dread, but with a sense of distance and disbelief. We would remind each other of the strength we discovered, the resilience we developed, and the bond that was forged in those haunted rooms. Marvin, our ever-faithful companion, was getting older but still loved his walks in the park. His fear had faded over time, replaced with the carefree joy of a dog living his best life. His happiness was a symbol of our triumph over the horrors of the past. We had moved on from our haunted past, creating a life far removed from the fear and uncertainty that had once consumed us. We had survived, and we were stronger for it. One day, while packing up our apartment to move into our new house, we found an old photo of us in front of the haunted house. We were young, full of hope and dreams. It was taken on the day we moved in, oblivious to the horrors that awaited us. We looked at it for a while, silent, lost in memories. Then Mark put his arm around me, pulling me close. We looked at the picture again, not with fear or regret, but with a sense of resolution. That was us then, he said, his voice soft but firm. We're different now. And he was right. We were different. We had faced the unimaginable, had walked through the shadows of fear, and had come out the other side. We were survivors, stronger and more resilient than we ever thought possible. We put the photo in a box, a reminder of our past, a symbol of our journey. But it was just that, a memory, a moment in time that had shaped us, but no longer defined us. As we closed the door on our apartment for the last time, looking ahead to our new house, our new beginning, I felt a sense of peace. We had survived the haunted house, and we had built a new life together. We were no longer the scared couple who had fled from a haunted house in the dead of night. We were survivors, stronger than our fears, ready to face whatever life had in store for us. The haunted house was a part of our past, a chapter in our story, but it was just that, a part of our past. Our story was far from over, and we were ready to write the next chapter, together.
I've always been a peculiar breed, a unique sort of individual with an insatiable curiosity for the mysterious and unexplained. I am James, a devoted collector of the uncanny, the chilling, the peculiar. Every item in my collection tells a story, an eerie narrative that threads the line between reality and the supernatural. The morbid attraction began when I was a mere child, an unusual penchant for a boy of my age, but it clung to me, growing with me into adulthood. At the heart of my suburban home lies a dedicated room, housing a myriad of peculiar objects. An old withered doll from an abandoned attic in Maine, a mirror said to be possessed from a dilapidated house in New Orleans, a strange amulet I found in the rural backwoods of Virginia, each item a testament to my relentless pursuit of the eerie and unknown. But there was something missing, something big, bold, and terrifying, something that would be the piecing crescendo to my collection. A trip to Texas, the grand repository of all things haunted and scary, was the next step. Texas, with its vast expanses, desolate barns, and unsettling legends, had always intrigued me. And so, with my thirst for the paranormal guiding me, I set out on a journey that, unbeknownst to me, would alter my life forever. The day of departure arrived faster than anticipated. I was overtaken by an overwhelming mix of excitement and apprehension as I left my cozy home and my tabby cat, Luna, behind. I packed lightly, a few clothes, essential toiletries, and a camera to capture any spooky discoveries. As I embarked on the road trip, the cool wind in my hair and the open highway stretched out in front of me. I felt the thrill of adventure and the allure of the unknown. I had always enjoyed road trips, the sense of freedom they bestowed, the endless possibilities that the open road hinted at, but this trip had a different taste to it. There was an added intensity, a distinct layer of anticipation that cloaked the journey. I wanted to uncover stories buried within time, narratives whispered in the wind and the trees, secrets locked away in old dilapidated barns, and dusty forgotten items in obscure shops. As my old Chevy hummed along the Texan highways, I lost myself in the thoughts of what I would find, the stories I would uncover, and the eerie objects I would add to my collection. Little did I know then how much my world was about to tilt on its axis, how drastically my collection was about to evolve. The first leg of the trip was uneventful, a calm before a storm I wasn't even aware was brewing. With the soft glow of the setting sun on the horizon, I ventured deeper into Texas, into the heart of the unknown, driven by my obsession. And that's when I saw it, an antiquated shop, standing in solitude, almost daring me to uncover its secrets. The old shop, waiting silently for its story to be unraveled, was the first chapter of my thrilling, terrifying journey into the unknown. Little did I know then, the truth was waiting just beyond its threshold. As I parked the Chevy alongside the gravelly path leading to the shop, a distinct chill ran down my spine. The shop, a standalone entity in an otherwise deserted landscape, was as eerie as the stories I'd only read about. It was old and faded, with an aging wooden sign swinging precariously in the dusty wind. Walking towards it, I felt a strange energy that seemed to be pulling me in, beckoning me to discover what lay inside. As my boots crunched on the gravel, I could almost hear the whispers of the past, as if the shop itself was a testament to countless untold tales. Pushing open the creaky wooden door, a wave of cool, musty air enveloped me. The shop was dimly lit, casting long shadows that danced eerily against the walls. An odd assortment of items, 
each seemingly steeped in a haunting past, was scattered throughout. Old dolls with faded glassy eyes, strange talismans, withered books, and antique furniture lay haphazardly around, creating a sense of organized chaos. It was then that I noticed her. Sitting in the corner behind an old oak desk strewn with yellowing papers was an old woman. She looked as ancient as the shop itself. Her pale skin was a network of deep-set lines, and her watery blue eyes held a curious mix of weariness and sharpness. A veil of silver hair was pulled back into a loose bun, revealing her piercing gaze that held an unsettling intensity. Welcome, young man. Her voice, though frail, carried a weight, echoing in the quiet room. Take your time to look around. I nodded, my curiosity piqued. As I wandered through the shop, I could feel her gaze following me, adding a layer of discomfort to my already heightened senses. Despite the unease, I was intrigued. Every item in the shop seemed to whisper a narrative of its own, inviting me to delve into its history. Dusty portraits, time-ravaged ornaments, tattered dolls, and mysterious trinkets seemed to stare back at me as I moved along the cramped aisles. There was a pervasive sense of the uncanny that hung heavy in the air. Yet, despite the shop's eerie aura, it was fascinating, drawing me deeper into its labyrinth of mystery. In the midst of this peculiar chaos, my eyes were drawn to a glass case at the back of the shop. Behind the smeared and streaky glass, a painting was visible. It depicted an old barn house, standing alone in a barren landscape. It seemed both simple and ominous at the same time. I felt an indescribable pull towards it, a magnetic force drawing me closer. The atmosphere around me shifted. The whispers of the past seemed to grow louder, and a chill ran through me. Ah, you've found the painting, the old woman's voice echoed through the room. I turned around to see her staring intently at me. The ghost of a smile played on her cracked lips, an enigmatic look in her eyes. Every instinct told me that this painting was what I had been searching for, something that would lead me on a path of mystery and terror. Unaware of the uncharted journey I was about to embark upon, I walked towards the old woman, ready to learn about the painting's unsettling past. The painting was beautiful, yet haunting. It showed an old barn house in a desolate field, a lonely structure standing against the backdrop of a dark, looming sky. The artist had brilliantly captured the essence of isolation and melancholy that seemed to radiate from the canvas. I felt a shiver of anticipation run down my spine as I stepped closer. Interesting piece, isn't it? The old woman croaked, her voice breaking the eerie silence of the shop. I'd say so, I replied, unable to peel my gaze away from the canvas. There's something unsettling about it. A slow, mirthless chuckle escaped her, filling the quiet room. That's because it carries with it a tale, she said, leaning back in her rickety chair, her gaze never wavering from my face. With bated breath, I asked her to share the story. The room seemed to darken, the whispers quietened, and I could hear my own heart pounding in my ears as she began to weave the narrative of the barnhouse painting. It belonged to a couple, she began, her voice wavering but resolute. In the 1920s they lived, a simple pair, living a quiet life in the heartland of Texas. Their happiness reflected in their abode, their safe haven, that barnhouse you see in the painting. She paused, her roomy eyes reflecting a far-off melancholy as if she were lost in the recesses of time. One tragic night their world turned to ashes, she continued, her voice barely above a whisper. A fire erupted, out of nowhere and engulfed their haven. The barnhouse was mostly destroyed, their lives lost within. They were never found, 
and their disappearance birthed stories, eerie narratives of the couple in the cursed barn house. The tale sent chills running down my spine. I stared at the painting, the barn house now seeming more haunting, shadowed by its chilling past. The strange part is, she continued, her eyes twinkling with a hint of macabre delight, that the painting was found unscathed, in one of the few rooms the fire hadn't touched, like it was protected, guarded. My heart pounded in my chest. The story was exactly the type of narrative that would perfectly accompany an addition to my collection. The painting was not just a canvas of colors, it was steeped in a history that was both fascinating and terrifying. And how did you come across it? I asked, my voice barely a whisper, not wanting to break the heavy silence that had fallen in the room. A traveling art salesman sold it to me in 1985, she said, shrugging her frail shoulders. Been in my shop since. Nobody's shown any interest till you. I couldn't help the exhilaration that bubbled inside me. I was on the precipice of acquiring an item that was not only visually appealing, but also carried an eerie tale of a time long past. I could hardly contain my excitement, oblivious to the chain of events this painting was about to unleash in my life. The old woman's story about the painting hung in the air, enveloping the shop in a cloak of mystery and intrigue. As I continued to stare at the painting, my reflection caught in the glass casing. I felt a connection with the haunted barn house and the couple who had once called it home. The melancholic atmosphere, the tragic history, and the enigma surrounding the untouched painting had kindled an irresistible pull. How much is the painting? I asked, my voice barely above a whisper, a strange sense of reverence coloring my tone. She turned her ancient eyes back to me and after what seemed like an eternity, she said, well, young man, I reckon it's 150. But seeing your interest, I'd let you have it for 100. A surge of elation rushed through me. This was more than I could have hoped for. I quickly pulled out my wallet and counted the bills, placing them on her worn-out desk. As I did, I noticed a sudden shift in her demeanor. The ghostly glint in her eyes appeared to brighten, and as she took the money, her mouth twitched upwards into what could only be described as a creepy grin. Ignoring the discomfort her expression caused, I picked up the painting, my fingers brushing against the cold frame. A shiver ran down my spine, but I chalked it up to the thrill of owning such a significant piece. I thanked the old woman, her unsettling grin still etched on her face. Take care of it, young man, she murmured as I exited the shop, the painting safely wrapped under my arm. The shop door creaked shut behind me, sealing the old woman and her collection of eerie items inside. The drive back to the motel was silent, the only sound the occasional hum of passing vehicles and my heart pounding with anticipation. The painting sat on the passenger seat, its presence filling the space. I couldn't help but steal glances at it, the thrill of the acquisition still coursing through me. It was more than just a painting. It was a piece of history, shrouded in mystery and melancholy, a perfect addition to my collection. As I pulled into the motel's parking lot, the orange glow of the setting sun casting long shadows across the landscape, I felt an odd sense of foreboding. Shrugging it off as nothing more than the after-effects of the creepy tale, I gathered my belongings and the painting, my excitement for the new addition to my collection outpacing the feeling of unease. I couldn't have been more mistaken, for I was not only bringing in an artifact, a piece of painted canvas, but I was also inviting in an unseen presence, a dormant force that would soon awaken. Little did I know then, my journey with the haunted barnhouse painting was just beginning.
The drive home was a long one, stretching over several hours of flat landscapes and faded signs. My cat, Whiskers, had already finished greeting me with enthusiastic purrs and nestled in my lap as I unloaded the car, bringing in my new acquisitions. As I carefully unwrapped the painting, Whiskers stiffened, her green eyes darting towards it. Dismissing it as a momentary distraction, I continued to reveal the canvas. The painting was even more compelling in the comfort of my own home. Its haunting aura was heightened against the backdrop of my living room. The barn house, a solitary structure under the stormy skies, seemed to come alive, almost as if it existed somewhere within the confines of my home, not just on the canvas. It took a few minutes to find the perfect spot for it, the wall facing my aged leather couch. As I hung it up, a gust of cold air swept through the room. Strange, considering it was midsummer in Texas. Intrigued, yet somewhat unnerved, I spent the rest of the day cleaning and arranging the other items from the shop. An antique pocket watch, a worn-out journal, and a couple of other peculiar items found their places within my growing collection. Whiskers watched from the corner, her gaze occasionally darting back to the painting. Over the next few days, I noticed oddities around the house. Whiskers would sit staring at the painting, her usually playful demeanor replaced by an unnerving stillness. The house itself felt colder, especially around the living room. I would crank up the heating, but it was as though the warmth refused to touch that particular area. When the quirk with the thermostat persisted, I called the landlord. The idea of sitting in a cold living room while the Texas sun blazed outside was uncomfortable to say the least. The maintenance crew arrived, poked around the vents, checked the heater, and scratched their heads. Nothing seemed out of place. No drafts, no issues with the heater, nothing that would explain the unseasonal coldness. As they left, exchanging puzzled glances, I shrugged and decided to put on a sweater when watching TV in the living room. A little odd, I mused, but nothing overly concerning. Whiskers, however, seemed less comfortable. She'd stopped venturing into the living room entirely, her unease around the painting growing more pronounced. I found this strange, but attributed it to her capricious feline instincts. I remained oblivious to the subtle changes that were gradually encroaching upon my peaceful life. Even as the clocks around the house started malfunctioning, always freezing at the same eerie time of 3.33, even as whiskers became more anxious, I remained unconcerned. If only I had known that the chilling story that had drawn me towards the painting was not mere folklore, not just an eerie tale spun by an old woman. The painting, a silent observer on my wall, was a gateway, one that had just begun to open, ushering in a chain of events that would unravel my reality, piece by piece. A week passed. My life had started to seem like an episode straight out of a horror anthology, and yet, I was more intrigued than frightened. The constant chill in my living room, the bizarre behavior of my cat, and the weird ticking of the clocks had started to feel like an adrenaline rush, pushing the boundaries of my fascination with the supernatural. It was a particularly gloomy night. A heavy storm had rolled in, the thunderstorm providing a perfectly eerie background score. I had just settled down on my couch for a movie marathon, the creepy painting keeping me company. Halfway through a classic horror film, the TV abruptly turned to static, the sharp white noise slicing through the room. Then, without any warning, it shut off completely. In the blank screen I caught a glimpse of my reflection, but there was something else, something that didn't belong. A silhouette, 
a vague shape of a woman in a dress, appeared in the reflection behind me. A cold shiver ran down my spine as I turned around swiftly, expecting to face an intruder. But there was nothing. The living room was empty except for the regular furniture and the chilling painting hanging on the wall. My heart pounded in my chest. I searched the house, going from room to room, every creak and thump amplified by my heightened senses. But there was nothing amiss, nothing out of place, except the uneasy stillness that hung in the air. Reluctantly, I decided to sleep, putting off the strange occurrence as a trick of the mind, perhaps the result of watching one too many horror films. I retreated to my bedroom, leaving the living room in darkness, the painting of the barn house a mere shadow against the wall. I don't know how long I slept, but I was jolted awake by the hissing and growling of whiskers. My heart pounded in my chest as I snapped on the light, only to be greeted by a terrifying sight. There, stabbed into the couch where I had been sitting earlier, was a pocket knife. The painting of the barn house had been turned upside down. My blood ran cold. This wasn't some minor quirk, not a flickering bulb or a malfunctioning thermostat. This was something real, tangible, and chilling. The eerie story behind the painting was no longer just a story. It had trespassed into my reality. I called the police, my hands shaking as I dialed the number. Whiskers, her fur on end, huddled close to me, her eyes wide with fear. As the distant sirens grew closer, I couldn't shake off the feeling of being watched, of not being alone in my own house. I looked over at the painting, its upside-down image seemingly more ominous. The image of the barn house seemed to pulsate in the dim light, almost as if it was alive. The uncanny feeling of dread enveloped me as I waited for the police, the beginnings of regret slowly seeping into my thoughts. This was more than I had bargained for, more than just an addition to my collection. It was a dark entity, one that was ready to reveal its terrifying reality. The police arrived, their blue and red lights casting strange shadows around my living room. The sight of the officers in my home, investigating a situation that had arisen from an item in my collection, was unsettling. I explained the strange incidents that had led to this moment, my voice shaky as I recounted the eerie events. They looked skeptical, but dutifully went about their work, examining the pocket knife in the couch, questioning me about possible intruders, and noting the upside-down painting. Despite the gravity of the situation, I saw one of the officers suppress a smirk when I explained the history of the painting and its possible connection to the events. Hours later, after a thorough inspection of my house and its surroundings, they had found no signs of forced entry or any evidence of a break-in. Their final assessment was that Whiskers must have somehow caused the commotion, a theory that I found ridiculous. Yet without any other logical explanation, they advised me to keep an eye out for further disturbances and to call them if anything else happened. The officer's departure left me feeling a strange combination of relief and frustration. Their lack of belief was infuriating, yet it was comforting to have rational minds dismiss the eerie occurrences as mere coincidence. Over the next few days, things spiraled further out of control. My TV started turning on and off at odd hours, startling me awake with random bursts of sound. Whiskers had become exceedingly jittery and refused to set foot in the living room. The chill in the house was more pronounced, and the unexplainable incidents more frequent. My initial fascination was giving way to a creeping sense of dread. It was becoming increasingly clear that the painting was more than just a piece of art with a tragic backstory. I was dealing with something intangible, 
something beyond my understanding. There were nights when I woke up, feeling the distinct chill of the living room seeping into my bedroom. More than once I heard strange sounds, like whispers in a language I couldn't understand. On one particularly terrifying occasion, I woke up to the painting missing from the living room, only to find it back on the wall in the morning. This wasn't what I had signed up for. My interest in the supernatural was meant to be thrilling, not terrifying. Yet here I was, stuck in a situation straight out of a horror novel, living with a haunted painting and a terrified cat. The painting had stopped being a piece of art. It had become a source of fear, a gateway to the other side, or perhaps a curse that was slowly claiming my home. The realization hit me hard, the gravity of the situation sinking in. This was not just about an unusual piece in my collection anymore. It was about my sanity, my safety, and the increasingly threatening presence that I had unknowingly invited into my home. With every passing day, my fear grew. The once familiar confines of my home now tainted with a sinister presence. Sleep eluded me, my dreams invaded by images of the barn house, each more disturbing than the last. The terror-stricken cries of whiskers often echoed through the house, sending shivers down my spine. One evening, after yet another terrifying encounter, I decided it was time to end this. The haunted painting needed to go. I couldn't bear the thought of another night of fear and uncertainty. I was desperate to reclaim the peace of my home. I removed the painting from the wall, its grim image seeming to mock me. I wrapped it up, tucking it away in the old box I'd initially brought it in from the shop. As I closed the box, it felt like I was shutting away a dark chapter of my life. The relief was immediate, a physical weight lifted from my shoulders. But where was I to take it? Who would willingly accept such a terrorizing artifact? I considered throwing it away, burning it even, but the thought of igniting an angry spirit terrified me. No, it needed to go back to where it came from. I contacted the old woman who owned the shop in Texas, my voice shaking as I relayed my experiences. There was a long silence on the other end of the phone, followed by a quiet acceptance of my request to return the painting. She seemed unsurprised, almost as though she had expected my call. I wasted no time. The following morning, I loaded up my car and set out on the familiar route back to the little shop in Texas. The drive was long and grueling, each mile seeming to take forever, yet I was resolute in my determination. Upon reaching the shop, I was greeted by the familiar sight of the old woman, her eyes filled with an odd mix of empathy and resignation. I handed her the box, the painting wrapped securely inside. She took it without a word, her gaze lingering on the box, her expression unreadable. As I turned to leave, she looked at me, her voice grave. Remember, some things are best left alone, son. Her words echoed in my ears as I drove away from the shop, leaving behind the cursed painting and hopefully the terrifying events of the past weeks. Back home, I felt the difference immediately. The eerie coldness that had once gripped my living room was gone. Whiskers seemed to breathe a sigh of relief, her nervous energy replaced by her typical playful demeanor. The clocks ticked away normally, and my house once again felt like home. Yet the relief was tainted. The memories of the terrifying ordeal remained, like a dark shadow in the corners of my mind. The nightmares were less frequent, but still a stark reminder of the fear I had lived with. I burnt sage throughout the house, a cleansing ritual to rid the space of any residual energy. As the smoke curled up into the air, I hoped for a new beginning, a fresh start devoid of eerie paintings and the shadows they cast. 
But little did I know, the aftermath of my encounter with the haunted painting was far from over. Days turned into weeks, and life started to regain some semblance of normalcy. I immersed myself in the mundane, desperately trying to forget the chilling events associated with the painting. I started taking walks, spending time outdoors, trying to shake off the eerie memories that clung to my home. Yet the echoes of the supernatural refused to leave. Every creak of the wooden floor, every gust of wind rattling the windows, brought a chill of unease. The living room, once my favorite spot in the house, had become a room I dreaded entering. Its very walls seemed to whisper tales of the past. Whiskers, too, was different. Though she was more at ease than before, I noticed her frequently glancing towards the spot where the painting once hung. It was as if she could still sense the malevolent energy that had once resided there. Despite the relief of having gotten rid of the painting, a lingering dread continued to hang over my home. I found myself jumping at the slightest sounds, my dreams invaded by the haunting image of the barn house. Sleep was often elusive, and when it came, it was filled with nightmares. In my dreams, I found myself standing in front of the barn house from the painting. The structure loomed ominously in the moonlight, its once vibrant colors now a dull, decaying gray. I could hear the faint crackling of fire, smell the acrid smoke, and the gut-wrenching sensation of fear that hung in the air. I would wake up in a cold sweat, my heart pounding, the image of the barn house burned into my mind. The dreams were a constant reminder of the terrifying ordeal I had been through, and a haunting suggestion that it wasn't over yet. My home, once a place of comfort, felt different now. Despite the removal of the haunted painting, there was a lingering coldness, an invisible shroud of unease that had settled over it. My once prized collection of spooky items no longer held the same appeal, each object a painful reminder of the horrifying ordeal with the painting. I had thought that by returning the painting, I would put an end to the paranormal occurrences that had turned my life upside down. Yet, the strange things didn't end. I could still feel a spectral presence, a chill in the air, a feeling of being watched. It was subtle, not as terrifying as before, but it was there, a reminder of the haunting past. I started to question my actions, wondering if I had done enough to rid my home of the paranormal entity that had once resided in the painting. Was it truly gone? Or had I merely muted it, its presence still lingering within the confines of my home? The chilling uncertainty became my constant companion, overshadowing the relief of having gotten rid of the haunted painting. The once fascinating world of the supernatural had become a living nightmare, a chilling chapter of my life that refused to close. As I lay awake night after night, plagued by the echoes of the past, I realized the terrifying truth. The painting was gone, but its spectral imprint had been left behind, its ghostly shadow cast over my home a haunting reminder of the supernatural terror I had once welcomed into my life. The spectral remnants of the painting continued to cast a pall over my life. The dread that had once consumed me now simmered on a low burn, a constant reminder of the ordeal I'd been through. However, as weeks turned into months, the intensity of the ghostly presence seemed to fade. In the silence of my home, I still felt whispers of the past, traces of an energy that had once held me captive. My dreams were less frequent, but the image of the barn house still haunted me, the flames dancing in my subconscious. Yet, I noticed that with each passing day, my fear was gradually being replaced by a sense of melancholic acceptance. 
I started spending more time in the living room, reclaiming the space that had been tainted by fear. I began to rearrange the furniture, fill the room with new art, and most importantly, the wall where the painting had once hung was now adorned with a vibrant landscape, a stark contrast to the eerie barn house. Whiskers seemed to sense the change, too. She gradually returned to her old self, her attention shifting from the wall to the numerous balls of yarn I'd scattered around for her. There was still an occasional moment of tenseness, a flicker in her eyes that reminded me of our shared trauma, but those moments were fewer and far between. My collection of spooky items was stored away, their presence a painful reminder of the ordeal. Instead, my interest shifted towards artifacts that offered comfort and warmth, things that reminded me of the beautiful aspects of life, rather than the eerie and uncanny. Every so often I would find myself standing in front of the landscape painting, my gaze locked onto the serene depiction of nature. I'd remember the haunted painting, the terror it had instilled, and the silence that had followed its removal. It was a poignant reminder of the ordeal, a testimony of the fear I had overcome. The burning of sage became a regular ritual. The earthy aroma filled my home, seeming to cleanse it of its painful past and imbue it with a sense of calm. It was a therapeutic practice, one that allowed me to assert my control over my home, to declare it a place of peace, free from the influence of the supernatural. As time passed, the remnants of the supernatural faded further into the background. My home started to feel like a sanctuary again, the ghostly whispers reducing to faint echoes. My nights were still occasionally plagued by nightmares, but they too were less intense, less terrifying. The calm was slow and gradual, but it was there. It was in the peaceful purring of whiskers, the normal ticking of the clocks, and the comforting warmth of my living room. It was a calm that came after a storm, a tranquility that followed chaos, a peace that came with the understanding that the haunted painting, while gone, had left an indelible mark on my life. Life was getting back to normal, the past was fading into a dark memory, yet the shadow of the haunted painting, though faint, remained a constant in my life. It served as a reminder, a cautionary tale of my brush with the supernatural, a testament to the fact that some things, indeed, were best left alone. With each passing day, the normalcy that had gradually crept back into my life took firmer root. I went about my days, finding comfort in the familiar rhythms of life. Whiskers playful antics, the comforting aroma of my morning coffee, even the mundane task of sorting through emails, everything seemed to serve as a gentle reassurance that I was moving on from the ghastly chapter of my life. Yet, there were nights when the calm was punctuated by terrifying nightmares, vivid and visceral, each one an echo of the past. I would wake up gasping, the memory of the burning barnhouse fresh in my mind. The sense of fear, though lessened, lingered, a ghost of what it once was. One particular nightmare stands out. I was standing in front of the burning barnhouse, the crackle of the flames deafening in the stillness of the night. A woman in a dress appeared out of nowhere, her figure glowing in the inferno's light. She pointed towards the painting, a pleading look in her eyes. As I reached out to her, I woke up, my heart pounding in my chest. That morning, as I sat with a cup of coffee, I reflected on the dream. Something about it felt different, more profound. It felt less like a nightmare, and more like a farewell. It was as if the spirit associated with the painting had come to say goodbye, 
to finally sever the connection that had been formed when I brought the painting into my home. In the weeks that followed, the nightmare ceased completely. The phantom coldness that had once shrouded my living room lifted, replaced by a warmth that felt comforting. The sense of unease that I had come to associate with my home was replaced by a peace that felt genuine and lasting. The cat, too, seemed more at ease. Whiskers no longer glanced warily at the wall where the haunted painting had once hung. Her behavior was reminiscent of the time before the painting, when she was just a regular cat with a penchant for yarn balls and sunlit window sills. The landscape painting on my wall became a symbol of the new chapter of my life. It represented the transition from a life plagued by supernatural dread to one filled with normalcy and peace. It was a reminder that while the past was a part of me, it did not define me. I had journeyed through a terrifying encounter with the supernatural, experienced fear and desperation, and emerged stronger. The echoes of the past were now just that, echoes. The lingering dread had faded, replaced by a sense of resilience. In this newfound calm, I found the strength to face my fears, to come to terms with my past, and to embrace the promise of a brighter future. The haunted painting was now just a dark chapter in the story of my life, one that I had successfully navigated. My home was my sanctuary again, a place where I felt safe and at peace. In the end, the nightmare had ended, the shadows had retreated, and all that was left was a man and his cat, living their life in their peaceful abode, with the knowledge that they had faced the worst and come out the other side. In its place, they found a new appreciation for the normalcy and a renewed love for their home. And in that, they found their happy ending. A year had passed since I had rid my home of the haunted painting. It had been a year of healing, of rediscovering the joy of a life unburdened by supernatural dread. My home was no longer a place of fear, but a sanctuary where I could find peace. I no longer collected spooky items. The fascination I once had with the supernatural had lost its charm. Instead, my interest had shifted to art, nature, and the simple joys of life. The quiet beauty of the landscape painting that now hung on my wall held more appeal than any ghostly relic. Whiskers was as spirited as ever, her feline curiosity no longer directed at spectral presences, but at the simple pleasures of a cat's life. We spent our days in peaceful companionship, her purring a comforting soundtrack to my quiet existence. I found myself appreciating the smaller things, the aspects of life I had once overlooked, the warmth of the sun on my skin, the sound of birdsong from outside the window, the rich aroma of freshly brewed coffee. Each was a reminder of the calm, normal life I had reclaimed. The memories of the haunted painting and the fear it had instilled were still there, but they no longer held the power to terrify me. They were a part of my past, a chapter of my life that had been dark and frightening, but was now over. Occasionally I'd find my gaze drawn to the wall where the painting had once hung. The landscape painting that now adorned it was vibrant and alive, a stark contrast to the eerie stillness of the barn house. I'd remember the fear, the sense of dread, and then I'd look around my home, at the peace I had found, and feel a sense of quiet satisfaction. I had faced the worst, been gripped by fear, but I had survived. I had taken back control, reclaimed my home, and found a new lease on life. I was no longer James, the man with the haunted painting, but simply James, a man with an appreciation for the peace of normal life. At night, I would lie in bed, 
whiskers purring softly at my feet, and listened to the familiar sounds of my home. The ticking of the clocks was no longer a chilling reminder of supernatural dread, but a comforting rhythm in the silence. I'd often fall asleep with a smile on my face, grateful for the peace that had returned to my life. My dreams were no longer haunted by burning barn houses or spectral women. Instead, they were filled with sunlight, nature, and the simple pleasures of life. In the end, my encounter with the supernatural had taught me a valuable lesson. Some things are better left alone. The world of the supernatural with its allure and mystery also held a darkness that was terrifying and real. I had sought it out, been drawn into its depths, and had barely escaped. Now I was content to live my life in the realm of the normal, away from the shadows of the supernatural. I had found my peace, my normalcy, and most importantly, I had found a new appreciation for the simple, beautiful things in life. I had survived the haunted painting, and in doing so had discovered a new, peaceful chapter of my life. And that was more than enough for me. Every small town has its stories. Whispers of the unexplainable and the eerie tend to float around, but not in my town. We were the poster image of normalcy, until that night when my sense of reality was thoroughly jumbled. I remember it was a quiet evening. The clock had struck nine, the crickets were humming their night song, and the sky was a blanket of deep velvet speckled with stars. I was sitting on my back porch, the cool wind carrying the scent of damp earth, a byproduct of the evening's light rain. It was just another night in suburban tranquility, or so it seemed. That's when I saw it, an odd flicker of light. It caught my peripheral vision, just a quick dash against the starry backdrop. Startled, I turned, squinting into the darkness. At first, I dismissed it, assuming my eyes were playing tricks on me. But then, it appeared again, more prominently. This time, it was undeniably real, an ethereal dance of lights, moving in the sky with a sort of orchestrated chaos. It dashed across the sky, defying logic and laws of gravity with its sharp turns and high-speed maneuvers. I remember blinking hard, rubbing my eyes, trying to shake off the spectacle as some visual delusion, yet it persisted. Intrigue soon replaced my initial shock. I found myself drawn towards this enigma, watching it for what seemed like hours. It performed a ballet of sorts, the lights twisting and turning at impossible angles. The spectacle was both beautiful and disconcerting, shattering my small-town tranquility with something completely foreign, completely alien. Every fiber of my being told me that I was witnessing something extraordinary. The lights were not of this world. They had a strange rhythm, a peculiar hum that I could feel resonating within me. It wasn't a plane, wasn't a helicopter, and certainly not a drone. I've seen those, and they don't move like that. No, this was different, otherworldly. After an hour or so, it disappeared as suddenly as it had appeared, leaving me in a state of bewildered awe. I stood there, frozen on my porch, staring into the now empty sky, where the strange lights had danced just moments ago. Questions swarmed my mind like bees to a hive. What was it? Why was it here? Could it be? I shook my head, laughing off the ludicrous idea taking root in my mind. UFOs? Aliens? That was the stuff of movies and conspiracy theories, not of my quiet life. Yet, as I turned to head back inside, I felt a chill run down my spine. The night was no longer ordinary, 
and something told me that my life wouldn't be either. Little did I know, this was just the beginning, the opening act of a series of events that would shake my perception of reality to its very core. But for that night, as I finally retired to bed, I remember looking back out of the window one last time. The sky was as it always was, calm, serene, hiding its secrets behind a veil of darkness. As I drifted off to sleep, I couldn't help but wonder if I'd dream about the strange lights. Unbeknownst to me, the reality that was to unfold was scarier than any dream I could have imagined. The next day was surreal. I found myself torn between the logical part of my brain, which wanted to dismiss the strange lights as a trick of the mind, and the part of me that couldn't forget their alien dance. The sun shone as usual, kids played in their yards, birds chirped in the trees. Yet, under this veneer of normalcy, my world had shifted on its axis. As night fell, I felt an odd mixture of trepidation and anticipation. Would I see the lights again? Was I ready to face the inexplicable? There was an electric tension in the air, a stillness that felt as if the world was holding its breath with me. The clock ticked away, its monotonous rhythm the only sound piercing the silence of the night. I sat there out on the porch again, waiting. Each passing minute felt agonizingly slow, dragging my expectations through the muck of disappointment. It wasn't until the clock hands united at twelve, the witching hour, that it happened. Once again, the calm night sky erupted into a spectacle of moving lights. They returned with a kind of punctuality that was uncanny, their movements as bewildering as before, their sharp turns and impossible speeds, their rhythm. It was all exactly as I remembered. I watched, entranced and terrified. The lights seemed to pulse, drawing me into their rhythm. They moved with a purpose, communicating something I couldn't comprehend, yet felt intimately. I felt my heart beating in sync with their dance as if pulled by an unseen force. This display went on for an hour, repeating the eerie ballet from the previous night. It was as if they were trying to communicate, to tell a story that I was too naive to understand. As the hour concluded, the lights vanished abruptly, leaving the sky to its silent, lonely vastness. I was left reeling, my mind teetering on the precipice of the unbelievable. The peculiar punctuality of their appearance made it even harder to dismiss as a hallucination or a fluke. A nagging feeling told me that this was something significant. But what did it mean? Why was it happening? The questions were numerous, but the answers were none. I headed back inside, my body heavy with the weight of the unknown. The house felt empty and enormous, each creak and groan amplified by my heightened senses. Every shadow held potential threats. Every silence screamed louder than noise. I felt a strange sense of vulnerability, like I was a part of something much bigger than myself, and infinitely more frightening. As I lay in bed that night, the darkness felt more profound. Every tick of the clock echoed through the silence, marking the relentless march of time towards another midnight. A part of me wanted the lights to be a mere figment of my imagination, a trick of the light, or a temporary madness. But another part, the part that felt touched by their extraterrestrial grace, yearned for their return. I closed my eyes, but sleep was elusive. The dance of the lights played on the insides of my eyelids, drawing patterns of the unknown. Little did I know that the coming nights were about to plunge me into a darkness far more profound, into a reality far stranger than these midnight dances in the sky. The third day arrived with an uncanny sense of normalcy. The sun was out casting long shadows as the town awoke to another day. 
It felt oddly mundane in the light of the bizarre phenomena I had been witnessing. Even as I went through the motions of my daily routine, I couldn't shake off the undercurrent of anxiety and expectation, a suspense that hung in the air, unspoken. Daylight waned, and dusk painted the sky in hues of orange and purple, hinting at the impending night. I waited, my heart pounding against my ribcage, as if trying to break free. An unsettling cocktail of dread and anticipation was brewing in my gut. I positioned myself on the porch as I had for the past two nights, eyes glued to the heavens. Minutes turned into hours, and the sky turned from twilight blue to the deep black of night. The world was silent around me, save for the occasional hoot of an owl or the rustle of wind through the trees. Yet, as the clock struck midnight, there was nothing. No swirling lights, no celestial ballet. The sky remained just that, a sky. The lack of activity felt anticlimactic, like the silence after a riveting symphony. The void left by the lights was deafening, filled with a plethora of unanswered questions. I found myself staring at the empty space where they should have been, a strange sense of loss washing over me. An entire night passed, the moon making its journey across the starlit canvas, but there was no sign of the lights. The absence was more bewildering than their presence had ever been. The question echoed in my mind, what happened? With the arrival of dawn, I found myself grappling with a fresh wave of confusion. The lights had become a constant over the last two days, an extraordinary part of my otherwise ordinary life. Their sudden disappearance left me feeling disoriented. Doubts began to creep in, whispering insidiously at the back of my mind. Was it all just a dream? An elaborate hallucination? Was my mind playing tricks on me? Yet I knew what I had seen. I had witnessed it not once, but twice. It was as real as the earth beneath my feet or the stars above my head. I couldn't have imagined it all. Days turned into nights, and nights into days. Yet there was no sign of the mysterious lights. Each night I found myself on the porch, searching the sky for any signs, but was met only with the ordinary spectacle of the night sky. Even as a sense of normalcy returned to my life, I couldn't forget. The memory of the lights, their uncanny movements, their midnight appearances, all lingered like a specter, refusing to be banished. The experience had marked me, leaving an indelible imprint that was hard to ignore. As I prepared for another ordinary night, I couldn't shake off the feeling that the calm was deceptive, a precursor to a storm. Little did I know how right I was. The storm was coming and it was more terrifying than anything I could have imagined. The events of the past few days had left me in a state of constant vigilance, even when everything appeared ordinary. I had spent the subsequent nights in an anxious anticipation, eyes peeled on the sky, waiting for the mysterious lights to make their return. But they didn't. Instead, the nights were eerily normal, devoid of any otherworldly spectacle. One night, as I was about to retreat to the deceptive comfort of my bed, it happened. The silence of the night was shattered by a sudden commotion on the roof. It sounded like footsteps, a hurried frantic pacing that made my heart lurch in my chest. I stood frozen, my ears straining to catch any hint of the sounds. They were distinct, not something you'd mistake for the house settling or the wind blowing. It was as if someone, or something, was walking on the roof. Just as I was trying to make sense of it, another sound pierced the silence, a distinct scratching at my back door. It was like nails on a chalkboard, making me cringe in discomfort. 
My blood ran cold, and a shiver ran down my spine. Panicked, I immediately dialed the police, explaining the situation in hurried breaths. The dispatcher assured me that a patrol car was on its way, urging me to stay on the line and keep myself safe. With the phone clenched tightly in my hand, I locked all the doors and windows, casting nervous glances towards the back door. The minutes stretched out like hours as I waited for the police to arrive. The sounds continued intermittently, serving as a chilling reminder of the unidentified presence at my home. I felt like a cornered animal, every instinct screaming at me to run, yet I had nowhere to go. Finally, the flashing lights of a police car cut through the darkness, followed by the reassuring figure of a uniformed officer. I hurried to open the front door, relief washing over me. The sounds had ceased by then, leaving nothing but a chilling silence. I watched as they inspected the premises, their flashlights cutting through the darkness, their expressions serious. They checked the roof, the backyard, and the back door. There was no sign of any intruder. Probably some animal, one of them suggested, but his eyes held a hint of uncertainty. They left after a while, advising me to call again if I heard anything unusual. I was left alone once more, the silence of my home feeling oppressive. I checked all the locks again, a newfound fear taking root in my heart. Was this connected to the lights? Was it just a coincidence? My mind was a whirlpool of questions, answers far out of reach. As I crawled into bed that night, the events of the day replayed in my mind. I was on edge, every creak of the house making me jump. Sleep was elusive, the darkness of my room seeming to harbor unseen threats. My nights had become a theater of fear and uncertainty, my home a stage for the bizarre. I longed for the mundane, for the ordinary, for the peaceful nights before the lights appeared. But as I was about to find out, the play was far from over, and the next act would bring with it a terror beyond anything I had experienced so far. In the aftermath of the night's events, my sleep was plagued by nightmares, the sounds of footsteps and scratches echoing in my subconscious. Waking up felt like a reprieve, but the harsh light of day did little to quell my anxiety. As night fell, an ominous sense of dread settled over me. I was filled with a chilling certainty that the darkness would bring with it yet another strange event. Despite my fear, I found myself drawn to the backyard, curiosity overriding my sense of self-preservation. Out there, bathed in the glow of the moon and the backyard lights, everything seemed eerily serene. I kept scanning the shadows, my senses on high alert, when a movement in the corner of my eye drew my attention. Behind the old oak tree, I spotted a figure, tall, thin, unmistakably humanoid. My breath hitched, my heart pounding in my chest like a frantic drum. I squinted to get a better look, and that's when I saw them, its eyes. They were disproportionately large, terrifying, reflecting the light in a way that made them seem to glow. The sight was chillingly uncanny, an entity that was clearly not human, standing in the shadows of my own backyard. It felt as though those eyes were looking straight into my soul, seeing beyond my fear, reaching into the deepest corners of my being. Almost instinctively, I pulled out my phone, intending to capture this unearthly visitor in a photograph. But just as I raised it, the backyard lights blinked out, plunging everything into darkness. My phone flickered for a moment before the screen turned black, the battery drained to zero in an instant. In a blind panic, I stumbled back into the house, locking the door behind me. The pitch-black darkness inside felt like a monstrous entity, swallowing me whole. 
I tried turning on the lights, but the switch flicked uselessly. The power was out. It felt as though I was being isolated, cut off from the world by this alien entity. I made my way through the dark house, double-checking all the doors and windows, ensuring they were locked. A sense of vulnerability washed over me, a feeling of being a prey in my own home, hunted by something beyond my understanding. Once I had made sure all possible entries were secure, I retreated to the safety of my room. My mind was a whirlwind of terror and confusion, the image of the creature seared into my memory. The house was eerily silent, the usual nighttime hum of appliances absent due to the power outage. I found myself straining to listen, dreading the possibility of another sound breaking the silence. Just when I thought the night couldn't get any more terrifying, I heard it. The sound of the doorknob rattling. Fear gripped me, my blood turning to ice. I waited, my breath hitched, praying for the sounds to stop. As I was soon to discover, my night of terror was far from over. The alien visitor was not done with me yet, and its next move would leave me more terrified than ever before. The unsettling noise of the doorknob rattling finally ceased, leaving behind a silence so profound it felt as though the world itself was holding its breath. Each tick of the clock echoed in the quiet of the house, amplifying my sense of isolation. I forced myself to move, the need to ensure my safety overpowering my fear. Every creak of the wooden floor beneath me seemed deafening in the silence. I checked each room, a creeping dread uncoiling in my stomach as I peered into the shadows, half expecting to see the creature lurking there. Finding nothing, I started towards the back of the house, the image of the humanoid figure from the backyard still vivid in my mind. I reached the kitchen, its windows providing a clear view of the backyard and the old oak tree. I dared a glance outside, praying for it to be empty. But it wasn't. The figure was there, standing behind the window, its terrifying eyes staring straight back at me. I froze, my heart hammering against my ribs, my breath hitching in my throat. It was real. Unmistakably, horrifyingly real. Before I could react, a loud booming sound echoed from the backyard, making the house shake. The figure vanished from the window, leaving behind a chilling emptiness. The sudden disappearance was as terrifying as its presence. Shaking, I dared another look out the window. In the distance, behind the trees, a bright light descended. It was so blinding I had to shield my eyes. My mind immediately conjured the image of the strange lights I had seen in the sky just nights before. The connection was unmistakable. Then, as suddenly as it had appeared, the light shot back into the sky, disappearing from view. I watched, awestruck, as it bolted into the stars, leaving behind an ordinary night sky. A sense of disbelief washed over me. Had I really seen what I thought I saw? Just as I was grappling with my reality, the lights in the house flickered back to life, the appliances humming back into operation. My phone beeped back to life, the battery fully charged. The return to normalcy felt jarring, a stark contrast to the otherworldly events of the night. I found myself standing in the middle of my kitchen, questioning my sanity. Was I dreaming? Was I hallucinating? But I knew, deep down, that what I had witnessed was real. I considered calling the police again, but I hesitated. What could I tell them? That I saw a UFO? A humanoid creature with terrifying eyes? I could already hear their disbelief. Could already see their skeptical faces. They wouldn't believe me. I hardly believed it myself. So I did nothing. I locked all the doors and windows again, crawled into bed, but sleep was far from my grasp. My mind was a jumbled mess 
filled with too many questions and no answers. Little did I know, my ordeal was not over. The strange events had only just begun, and they were about to take an even more horrifying turn. The nightmare I was living was about to intensify, threatening my sanity and everything I held to be true. Following the chilling encounters, I entered a state of numbed shock. I passed the days mechanically, every routine task seeming surreal. Nightfall would bring with it a sense of dread, but the mysterious lights and the terrifying figure did not return. It was as if they had never been there, leaving behind no trace but the scars on my psyche. But even as the external quiet returned, my internal world began to unravel. Sleep, once my sanctuary, became a torment. Night after night, I was visited by horrendous nightmares. The dreams were vivid and frighteningly real. They always started the same way, with the lights in the sky. Then the creature would appear, its soul-piercing eyes staring into mine. It would stretch its hand towards me, a silent invitation or perhaps a threat I could never tell. Each night, the dream would take a different terrifying turn. Some nights, I'd find myself aboard their craft, the alien figures standing around me, their eyes devoid of any emotion. Other nights, the figure would be inside my house, lurking in the shadows, its eyes the only discernible feature. I would wake up drenched in sweat, heart pounding in my chest, the echoes of the nightmares still lingering. Sleep was no longer a reprieve, but a plunge into a new kind of horror. I tried to make sense of these dreams. Were they mere products of my terrified mind, conjured by the fear and stress of the past few days? Or were they something more, a warning, a message? I began to dread the nights, the thought of sleep filling me with fear. But exhaustion would eventually win, and I'd slip back into the terrifying realm of my nightmares. Each morning, I'd wake up with the memory of the horrifying dreams, their images burned into my mind. I considered seeking professional help, but the fear of disbelief, of ridicule, held me back. I was trapped in my own personal horror, a prisoner to my fear and anxiety. The isolation felt crippling, the feeling of being alone in my experience, unbearable. With each passing day, I became a shadow of my former self. The vibrant man I once was had been replaced by a scared, anxious insomniac. I could hardly recognize myself in the mirror, the dark circles under my eyes and the pallor of my skin a testament to my internal turmoil. Despite the terror, I kept my ordeal to myself, the weight of my silence adding to my distress. I was adrift in a sea of fear and uncertainty, with no land in sight. Little did I know my nightmare was far from over. The worst was yet to come, the horror about to escalate in ways I could never have imagined. This was just the beginning of my terrifying journey into the unknown, a journey that would change my life forever. Desperation drove me to seek out answers. I turned to the internet, trawling through countless articles and discussion boards dedicated to UFO sightings and extraterrestrial encounters. I searched for stories similar to mine, for any hint of understanding or validation. My hunt led me to obscure blogs and anonymous forums, places where people like me gathered to share their experiences. As I read their stories, a strange mix of comfort and horror washed over me. Comfort, because I was not alone, and horror, because their experiences only confirmed the reality of mine. I also sought out scientific explanations. I read articles on sleep paralysis, hallucinations, even psychological breakdowns. I visited doctors, underwent physical and neurological exams, all in a futile attempt to find a rational explanation. 
but every test came back clear, and every doctor shrugged, unable to provide a definitive answer. In my quest for answers, I stumbled upon a community of ufologists who suggested the use of surveillance cameras. Desperate and willing to try anything, I installed a network of cameras around the house, covering every possible angle. The monitors in my study became a constant companion, the live feed serving as both reassurance and a reminder of my fears. Yet, as days turned into weeks, my cameras captured nothing but the ordinary. No strange lights, no eerie figures. The activity seemed to have ceased as mysteriously as it had started. The silence was both a relief and a source of frustration. Relief because the terror seemed to be over, and frustration because it offered no closure, no answers. Nightmares continued to haunt my sleep, their intensity unmitigated by the apparent calm. Each night I'd wake up, heart pounding, images of the terrifying figure etched in my mind. I began to record these dreams, jotting down every detail in a notebook. It was an attempt to find patterns, to decipher any hidden message they might hold. In my loneliness, I considered reaching out to the online community, to share my story as others had done. But fear held me back, the fear of being labeled, ridiculed, or dismissed. The anonymity of the internet offered a measure of safety, but it also held the potential for mockery. The thought of turning my traumatic experience into a spectacle for skeptics was unbearable. Through this ordeal, my life had changed dramatically. I had become a recluse, a prisoner in my own home, spending my days in search of answers and my nights in the grip of terror. The vibrant, outgoing man I once was seemed like a distant memory, a ghost of a life that now seemed unattainable. I was living a nightmare, my life dominated by fear and uncertainty. And as the days went by, my despair only deepened, the lack of answers compounding my anxiety. But I had no idea that the real horror was yet to come. The events that were about to unfold would take my ordeal to a whole new level, challenging everything I knew about myself and the world around me. My life had settled into a dreary routine of fear, anxiety, and sleepless nights. Each day was a mirror of the one before, the monotony only broken by the terror of my dreams. I was a man on the edge, teetering between hope and despair. One day, almost a month after the last sighting, everything changed. It was a calm night, the moonlight casting long shadows across my backyard. I was in my study, my eyes glued to the surveillance monitors. The house was quiet, the only sound the low hum of the computer and my own breathing. My eyes were heavy with fatigue, my mind numb from the relentless tension. That's when I saw it. A flicker of movement on one of the screens caught my attention. My heart rate spiked as I quickly focused on the monitor. It was the backyard feed. The old oak tree was bathed in an unnatural glow, an eerie light that sent a chill down my spine. A familiar dread washed over me. They had returned. Almost in a trance, I watched as a figure appeared from behind the tree. The same humanoid figure, its eyes glowing in the camera feed. The sight was terrifyingly familiar, a chilling replay of my first encounter. I sprang from my chair, a sense of urgency propelling me towards the back door. I needed to see this with my own eyes, to confirm that this was not some technical glitch. As I stepped outside, I was met with a sight that took my breath away. Hovering above the tree was the UFO, its lights flickering in a rhythmic pattern. The figure stood beneath it, its gaze locked onto me. I could feel the weight of its stare, the same soul-piercing gaze that had haunted my dreams. 
In that moment, time seemed to stand still. All the fear, all the confusion of the past weeks culminated in this one encounter. It was real, as real as the terror that clutched my heart. I turned and ran back into the house, locking the door behind me. I ran to the phone, my hands trembling, my mind filled with thoughts of calling the police. But I hesitated, the phone heavy in my hands. Would they believe me? Would they dismiss me as a deluded fool? As I stood there, undecided and terrified, the power went out. The house plunged into darkness, and my phone died in my hand. I was alone in the dark with them, just as I had been on that first night. The dread was overwhelming, but this time, I was not paralyzed. The terrifying encounters, the sleepless nights, the relentless anxiety, they had changed me. I was no longer just a terrified victim. I was a man determined to face his fear. I didn't know it then, but that night marked a turning point. The encounters were about to take a more terrifying turn, pushing me to the brink, but they would also lead me to a deeper understanding, an insight into the incredible reality I was caught in. Little did I know, my nightmare was just beginning. In the pitch black darkness of my home, every sound felt amplified, the silence punctuated by my quickened breaths and pounding heart. Outside, the uncanny glow of the UFO lit up my backyard, a glaring contrast to the darkness I was enveloped in. As I stood there, phone dead in my hand, I felt an undeniable pull to the back window, a strange compulsion to confront my fear. Tentatively, I edged towards the window, my heart pounding with every step. I peered through the glass and there it was, the alien figure under the radiant glow of the UFO. It stood still, eyes fixed towards the house, towards me. An icy fear gripped me as those haunting eyes met mine. In an instant, the backyard erupted with a deafening boom. I recoiled, shielding my eyes from a blinding light that consumed everything. When I dared to look again, the creature was gone, the UFO rising swiftly into the night sky. A trail of light lingered for a moment before disappearing completely, leaving an eerie silence in its wake. With the departure of the UFO, power returned. My phone buzzed to life, and the lights flickered on, casting away the suffocating darkness. I stood there, stunned and shaken. The afterimage of the luminous UFO burned into my retinas. The echo of the sonic boom still rang in my ears, a cruel reminder of the horrifying reality I'd just experienced. I sank to the floor, my knees unable to support me. Every fiber of my being was screaming, consumed by the terror of the moment. The sheer magnitude of what I'd witnessed, the absolute otherworldliness of it, was too much to process. I was living a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. I longed to share my experience, to find someone who would believe my story. But I knew the likelihood of anyone accepting such an outrageous truth was slim. The price of speaking up felt too high. The fear of being ridiculed, of being seen as a delusional hysterical fool, was more than I could bear. I was trapped in my terror, isolated and alone. That night I barely slept. Every time I closed my eyes I saw the figure, its eyes boring into mine and the UFO, its radiant light casting long, daunting shadows. The sleep that claimed me was plagued by nightmares, echoes of the horrifying event. The following morning I woke up, feeling exhausted and unsettled. But amidst the fear and anxiety, a new emotion emerged, determination. I was no longer just a passive victim. I was a witness to something monumental, something terrifying and incredible at the same time. I knew then that I couldn't keep living like this, plagued by fear and haunted by the unknown. 
I had to take control of my life to confront this alien mystery head on. I didn't know what awaited me or where this journey would lead, but I knew I had to try. I had to seek answers, not just for my peace of mind, but to validate the reality I was living. I was about to embark on a path that would change everything, a path that led to the heart of the unknown. The nightmares began to intensify. Every night was the same. I would fall into a restless sleep only to be plunged into the same horrifying sequence of events. The encounter, the figure, the UFO, all replaying with a visceral clarity that left me gasping for breath. Each dream ended the same way, with the figure's haunting gaze and a bone-rattling boom that shook me awake. These nightmares became my nightly torment, a prison I couldn't escape. I tried everything to stave them off, sleep aids, meditation, even hypnosis, but nothing worked. The terror was too deeply ingrained, the images too vivid to erase. Every morning I woke up exhausted, my sleep offering no respite from the fear. My life had become a constant state of anxiety and terror, my days filled with apprehension and my nights with nightmares. The world outside with its normalcy and routine seemed like a distant memory. I was trapped in a reality of my own, a reality dictated by an unfathomable extraterrestrial encounter. As the nightmares continued, I began to notice a pattern. They weren't random, but a replay of the encounters. Each dream was a continuation of the previous one, as if someone, or something, was guiding me through the events. It was a disturbing realization, one that brought with it a new wave of fear. Was the figure controlling my dreams? Was it trying to communicate with me, or worse, manipulate me? But then, something changed. One night, I had a dream that was different from the rest. In this dream, the figure didn't just stand under the tree. It walked towards the house, towards me. It raised a hand, palm outstretched, as if offering a silent greeting, or a warning. When I woke, I felt an overwhelming sense of dread. It was a foreboding premonition, a warning that something was about to happen. I couldn't shake off the feeling and as the days passed, the anticipation became unbearable. Every night I expected it. The figure, walking towards my house, ready to cross the boundary it hadn't before. The surveillance cameras offered no comfort, only increasing my apprehension. I lived in constant fear, waiting for the impending confrontation. Finally I decided to act. I couldn't live in this constant state of terror, waiting for the unknown. I sold my house, packed up my belongings, and moved far away. I hoped that distance would provide a respite, that it would break the hold these experiences had on me. But as I settled into my new home, the relief I hoped for didn't come. Despite the distance, despite the change in environment, the nightmares persisted. They followed me, a ghost of my past that I couldn't escape. The figure, the UFO, they had become a part of me, a horrifying memory that refused to fade. I was a prisoner to my experiences, trapped in a nightmare that seemed to have no end. My life had changed irrevocably, and as I faced my uncertain future, I couldn't help but wonder, would I ever be free from this terror? I've been living in my new house for a few months now, and on the surface, things seem to have returned to normal. But the reality is far from it. I've managed to forge a routine around the relentless nightmares, a makeshift coping mechanism for the terror that greets me each night. Each morning is a struggle, a fight against the debilitating fatigue that clouds my mind. Every night is a surrender, a reluctant descent into the waiting arms of terror. There are moments when I catch myself staring out the window, 
looking at the night sky with a fearful anticipation. Every flicker of light, every shooting star sends a shiver down my spine. It's a cruel paradox. The same sky that I once found comforting now only evokes fear. It's a grim reminder of the encounters, a stark testament to the reality that has come to define my existence. Despite the hardships, I've resolved to endure. There's a resilience within me that I hadn't acknowledged before, a strength that was born from this terrifying ordeal. I've survived the encounters, the move, the isolation, and I'll survive the nightmares too. It's a testament to the indomitable human spirit, our innate ability to adapt and endure even in the face of the most daunting challenges. People often speak about encounters with the unexplainable, the supernatural, the extraterrestrial. They talk about it with a sense of fascination, a curious intrigue that borders on excitement. But those who've lived it know the truth. It's not an adventure, it's a nightmare. It's a terrifying journey that uproots your life, leaving you scarred and forever changed. And yet, despite everything, I continue to live, to fight, to exist. There's a strange comfort in acceptance, in knowing that you can't change the past, but can shape your future. I don't know if I'll ever find the answers I seek, or if the nightmares will ever stop. I don't know if the figure will return, or if the UFO sightings will resume. There's a lot I don't know, and perhaps a lot I'll never understand. But for now, I'm content to live my life, one day at a time. I've come to terms with my reality, with the terrifying experiences that have become a part of my identity. I carry them with me, not as a badge of victimhood, but as a symbol of survival. And in the quiet moments, when the night sky is clear and the stars are shining brightly, I find myself looking up, not with fear, but with a strange sense of connection. After all, the universe is vast, and we are but tiny specks in the grand scheme of things. My experiences have taught me humility and respect for the unknown. I don't know what the future holds. All I know is that I've survived, and as long as I keep waking up each morning, I'll continue to fight and continue to live. For in the face of the unknown, that's all one can really do. Survive, endure, and hope for a better tomorrow. So here I am, a man changed by his encounters with the unknown, living his life one nightmare at a time. It's a strange existence, but it's my reality. And despite everything, I wouldn't change a thing. After all, it's the experiences that shape us. And this experience has made me who I am today. From the moment Emily and I decided on our week-long camping trip to the Pacific Northwest, there was an air of excitement. We'd spent the past month meticulously planning every detail, making sure we had all the necessary equipment, and checking the weather forecast multiple times. Every free evening was spent poring over topographic maps of the region, imagining what each contour and feature would look like in real life. As much as we craved the unexpected adventures the wild had to offer, we also knew the importance of preparation. The night before our departure, sleep was elusive. I remember laying there, my heart pounding with anticipation, my mind filled with a vibrant cocktail of emotions. Excitement, anticipation, a pinch of anxiety, but mostly an exhilarating sense of adventure. The morning was a blur of packing, last-minute checks, and the familiar bittersweet pang of leaving the city's comfort behind. But as the urban landscape faded in our rearview mirror, replaced by the breathtaking wilderness, 
all of our doubts melted away. The first part of the journey was on a relatively smooth road, with grand evergreens and majestic mountain ranges keeping us company. The air was fresher, cleaner, carrying the delicate scent of pine and damp earth, so different from the city's stale, polluted breath. We drove in companionable silence, each absorbed in the spectacle unfolding before us. As the road started to narrow and wind its way up the mountains, the majestic green canopy enveloped us, and civilization felt like a distant memory. The air seemed to sing with an ancient song, the chorus of the wilderness, filled with the rustle of leaves and the whispers of the wind. It felt like stepping into another world, a realm untouched by human interference, raw and beautiful in its wildness. By late afternoon, we reached the place where we were to leave our jeep and proceed on foot. We changed into our hiking gear, shouldered our heavy backpacks, and with one last look at the tiny beacon of man-made object in the midst of sprawling nature, we began our trek. The hike was grueling, the terrain was challenging, the backpacks heavy, and the air, though pure, was thinner. We often had to stop to catch our breath, our city-dwelling bodies struggling to adjust to the new conditions. But every time we felt the strain, we had only to look around us. The emerald green foliage, the rocky outcrops, the endless sky above, all untouched and beautifully wild, to know it was worth every exhausting step. Finally, as the sun began to dip behind the towering peaks, we reached our camping spot. It was a small clearing, surrounded by towering trees, and a beautiful view of the valley stretched out in front. But as we started setting up our tent, a strange sensation pricked at the back of my mind. It felt as if the forest held its breath, as if we were being watched. I shook off the unsettling feeling, attributing it to fatigue and the vast, unfamiliar surroundings. That night, under the cloak of a billion stars, with the soothing sounds of the wilderness around us, we felt truly alive. Little did we know what lay ahead. Little did we understand what it truly meant to be, not just in the wilderness, but part of it. After a restless night, we woke to the crisp chill of dawn. Birds sang their morning songs from the treetops, their voices echoing in the stillness. The forest seemed to be shaking off its night's sleep, just like us. It was surreal, almost dreamlike. We were here, miles away from the confines of our city life, ready to embrace the untamed wilderness. We spent the morning exploring the surrounding areas, familiarizing ourselves with our temporary home. The scenery was beyond anything I'd expected, untouched, wild, and achingly beautiful. Emily and I exchanged glances that carried an unspoken sense of awe. For lunch, we managed to cook a simple meal on our camping stove. The food tasted different, more vibrant under the open sky. By afternoon, we had established a rhythm. We trekked around the area, marveling at the flora and fauna, the hidden streams, the monumental trees. We were but tiny specks in this vast panorama of nature, humbled by its majesty. As evening approached, we made our way back to the camp, our bodies aching but our spirits soaring. As we set about making dinner, an eerie sense of unease crept over me. It was a feeling I couldn't quite shake off. The forest seemed to close in on us, the sounds seemed to grow quieter, and the shadows seemed to stretch just a little too far. It was as though we were being observed, watched by unseen eyes. While Emily stirred our dinner on the camping stove, I looked around, trying to source the origin of my discomfort. 
I found nothing out of the ordinary, just the untamed wilderness in its evening shroud. Was it the isolation? The silence? I couldn't put my finger on it. I brushed off the uneasiness, attributing it to the vast wilderness and the distant howl of an animal. Just as we were about to tuck into our meal, a strange light caught my eye. Emily followed my gaze and froze. Up in the sky, something was moving. At first glance, it looked like a plane or maybe a drone, but the more we watched, the less it made sense. It was zipping across the sky at an incredible speed. The movements were too sharp, too fast for any man-made craft. A chill ran down my spine as I watched, the strange sensation of being watched returning with a vengeance. The light eventually retreated and disappeared, leaving us with our uneaten dinner and a rising sense of dread. Trying to keep our fears at bay, we decided to go to bed early. As I lay there in the silence of our tent, the strange light and the unsettling feeling of being observed replayed in my mind, making sleep a distant dream. The first day, filled with so much promise and excitement, ended on a note of unease. As I finally fell into a fitful sleep, I couldn't help but feel a strange sense of foreboding. The wilderness, once a place of beauty and serenity, was slowly morphing into a place of uncertainty and fear. We were far from home, far from help, enveloped in a world that seemed to watch our every move. Awaking with a start, I found Emily already up, her face pale in the morning light filtering into our tent. We barely spoke as we prepared our breakfast, the echoes of last night's eerie spectacle still resonating in our minds. Trying to dispel the unease, we busied ourselves with plans for the day, exploring further into the forest, gathering firewood, and maybe even trying our hand at some wilderness photography. As the sun climbed higher and its rays filtered through the verdant canopy, warming our campsite, we felt a bit of the previous day's fear recede. Perhaps it was just our city-dwelling minds playing tricks on us, making mountains out of molehills, or so we wanted to believe. The day passed uneventfully. We hiked through the dense forest, gazed in awe at the wildlife we encountered, and marveled at the grandeur of nature. The ever-changing landscape of the Pacific Northwest was a sight to behold. Yet, underlying the beauty was a gnawing apprehension, a prickling sense of unease that we couldn't quite shake off. Night fell quicker than expected. As darkness wrapped around us, the comforting noises of the forest were replaced by an eerie silence. It was a silence that gnawed at our nerves, filled the space around us, and seemed to amplify the solitude of our situation. As we cooked dinner under the vast open sky, our only source of light the dim flicker of our camping stove, I found myself constantly glancing upwards, half expecting the strange light to appear again. And then it did. Our dinner was forgotten as we stared at the inexplicable light that was now darting across the sky in impossible maneuvers. This time it was closer, its movements more erratic. It wasn't just a light, it was a craft of some sort, defying all laws of physics we knew. The sight was mesmerizing and terrifying at the same time. A chill washed over us as the lights flickered and danced, as if playing a twisted game. Our previous rationale of it being an aircraft or drone was quickly discarded. This was something else, something we couldn't understand or explain. Eventually the light retreated, leaving a disquieting darkness in its wake. With our appetites lost, we turned in for the night, the sounds of the wilderness suddenly taking on an ominous tone. In the silence of our tent, we lay awake, our minds echoing with unspoken fear. Every rustle, every distant howl seemed magnified, adding to our growing anxiety. 
I kept my ears strained, trying to pick out any anomaly, any sign of the unknown entity that had so mercilessly invaded our peaceful retreat. Emily, I knew, was doing the same. As the longest night of our lives wore on, we held on to each other, drawing courage from our shared terror. Sleep seemed an alien concept, replaced instead by a vigilant watchfulness. We were no longer just campers in the wilderness. We felt like intruders in a realm that was far beyond our comprehension. The first night of our supposed relaxing getaway was turning out to be a surreal nightmare, filled with inexplicable lights and an overpowering sense of dread. Little did we know it was just the beginning. We woke to the chirping of birds and the soft rustle of leaves. The eerie events of the previous night seemed like a far-off dream in the light of the day. However, the unspoken apprehension was palpable as we went about our morning routine. Breakfast was a silent affair, with our minds still replaying the strange spectacle in the sky. We spent the day exploring the untamed beauty around us. The forests of the Pacific Northwest were enchanting in their raw, untouched glory. The air was fresh, the views spectacular, and the sense of being one with nature was both uplifting and sobering. Yet the magic of the day did little to erase the fear that had settled in the pit of our stomachs. As the day gave way to night, a sense of foreboding took over. Despite our apprehension, we tried to maintain a semblance of normalcy. We cooked dinner, spoke about the day's discoveries, and laughed at our own city-dweller confusions. But the undercurrent of fear was undeniable. The peace of the wild, which had once seemed so welcoming, now felt unsettling. The forest, once a symbol of nature's grandeur, had become a vast, daunting entity. As the darkness enveloped us, we watched the sky, waiting. It didn't take long for the strange lights to reappear. Their movements were even more erratic this time, the speed astounding. The lights darted across the sky, changing direction mid-flight, diving, soaring, and zipping around in ways that defied logic. The sight was terrifying, not just because of its inexplicability, but because of the underlying sense of intelligence it conveyed. It was as if the lights were aware of us, watching us, studying us. The thought was chilling. We were in the middle of nowhere, at the mercy of a phenomenon we could not comprehend or explain. In our city lives, we had always been in control. We had schedules, routines, and structures, but out here we were stripped of that control. The wilderness was in command, and it seemed to be housing entities far beyond our understanding. After what seemed like hours, the lights finally retreated, leaving an oppressive darkness in their wake. We retired to our tent, the once comforting shelter now feeling like a flimsy barrier against the unknown. Sleep was elusive. Every sound seemed magnified, every shadow seemed to harbor a threat. I found myself straining to hear any unusual noise, to discern any abnormal movement. The peace and solitude of the wilderness had morphed into a canvas of terror. Emily was equally restless. I could feel her tense body next to mine, her silent fear a mirror of my own. I wanted to offer her some comfort, some assurance, but I had none to give. We were both out of our depth, trapped in an enigma that was rapidly turning our adventure into a nightmare. As the second night in the wilderness came to an end, the sense of dread was impossible to ignore. What was supposed to be a retreat had turned into an ordeal, a test of our courage and resilience. We had come here seeking adventure and connection with nature. Instead, we were grappling with fear and the terrifying unknown. Morning came as a relief, the warmth of the sunlight pushing away the fear of the night. We busied ourselves with our camping chores, 
trying to reclaim some sense of normalcy. Our breakfast was a quiet affair, our minds still reeling from the inexplicable occurrences of the last few nights. We spent the day in an attempt to distract ourselves. We ventured further into the forest, marveled at the flora and fauna, and admired the beauty that surrounded us. The Pacific Northwest was breathtaking in its grandeur. Yet, beneath the awe and wonder, the unsettling feeling persisted, a dark cloud on a sunny day. Night fell, and with it, the familiar sense of dread. As we prepared dinner, the anticipation was almost unbearable. Our eyes kept straying to the sky, waiting for the ominous lights to appear. Sure enough, they did. Their erratic movements seemed more aggressive, more purposeful than before. The lights zipped across the sky, darting and weaving, performing gravity-defying maneuvers that left us in awe and terror. We could only watch in silence, the stunning spectacle rendering us speechless. Then, as if the visual spectacle wasn't enough, a strange pulsing sound echoed through the forest. It was a low rhythmic hum, vibrating through the air, pulsating in sync with our mounting fear. The trees rustled as if acknowledging the sound, adding to the eerie orchestra of the night. Our dinner lay forgotten as we strained our ears to decipher the mysterious sound. It was unlike anything we had ever heard. Not a creature, not the wind, but something entirely different. It seemed to resonate from every direction, engulfing us in a symphony of unease. The pulsing sound, the bizarre lights, the sense of being watched, it was all too much. We were miles away from civilization, alone amidst an unknown phenomenon that was playing out right before our eyes. We retreated to the safety of our tent, our hearts pounding in our chests. The once familiar shelter now felt like a flimsy barricade against the unknown. We lay there, side by side, holding our breath, clinging to each other, and praying for the night to pass. The silence of the wilderness was shattered by the pulsating hum and the rustling trees. It was as if the forest itself was alive, whispering secrets we were not meant to understand. The fear was palpable, a living entity that seemed to feed off the darkness and the unknown. As we lay awake, the terrifying truth began to sink in. We were not alone. The realization was chilling. Our journey into the wilderness, once filled with anticipation and adventure, had taken a turn into the realm of the unknown. With the break of dawn, the strange sounds faded away and the forest returned to its peaceful serenity. But the terror of the night had taken its toll. We were tired, scared, and desperately longing for the safety of our familiar city life. Our peaceful retreat had turned into a terrifying ordeal. We were in the heart of the wilderness, confronting an unknown entity that seemed to defy all logic. And the worst part, we were entirely at its mercy. In the cool light of the morning, the haunting events of the night seemed almost like a surreal dream. Yet the sense of unease was too real, the imprint of terror too deep. We started the day in silence, each lost in their own thoughts, wrestling with the inexplicable experiences of the past few nights. Our morning routine felt like an attempt to regain some control over our situation. The simple tasks of preparing breakfast and cleaning up gave us a semblance of normalcy, a respite from the growing fear. Yet beneath our forced calmness, we were both unnerved, waiting for the next inexplicable event. And it came, sooner than we anticipated. As we stepped out of our tent, a sight awaited us that sent chills down our spine. Our camping equipment, which we had left haphazardly around the campsite, was stacked into a perfect tower. 
It was an uncanny sight, almost artistic in its precision and symmetry. The food we had hung in a tree, out of the reach of wild animals, was placed at the top of the stack. The perfect positioning, the deliberate arrangement. It all suggested an intelligence that was both intriguing and terrifying. We stood there, frozen, staring at the bizarre sight. The forest, in all its magnificent grandeur, was now a stage for an unfathomable drama that we were part of. We were no longer just campers. We felt like actors in a play, directed by unseen entities. Who could have done this? A person? But we were miles away from any human habitation. An animal? But no animal could create such a meticulously balanced structure. The unsettling realization was unavoidable. We were not alone. We spent the day in a daze trying to make sense of it all. Our journey, which had started as an adventure, was rapidly turning into a horror story. The peacefulness of the wilderness had given way to an ominous mystery, the tranquility replaced by a pulsating fear. The strange lights, the pulsing sound, the meticulous arrangement of our equipment, it all pointed towards a terrifying presence, a formidable entity that was far beyond our comprehension. We were facing an unknown threat in an unfamiliar environment, and it was overwhelming. As the sun began to set, our fear intensified. The anticipation of the night, of what might come next, was terrifying. The towering stack of our equipment stood as a stark reminder of the inexplicable phenomena we were confronting. We retired to our tent, our makeshift fortress against the unknown. As darkness fell, we lay in each other's arms, silently praying for the night to pass. The forest seemed to hold its breath, as if waiting for the next act in this haunting drama. Our peaceful retreat had turned into a nightmare. The Pacific Northwest, in all its wild beauty, had revealed a terrifying secret, pushing us to the edge of our sanity. Our dreams of a serene escape were replaced by a desperate longing for the familiar chaos of city life. But for now, we were trapped in this terrifying wilderness, grappling with an enigma that was rapidly escalating into a threat. We awoke to a morning that offered no solace. The stack of our camping gear stood ominously, a chilling monument to our mounting fear. Breakfast was a quiet affair, our appetite lost to the strangeness of our situation. The wilderness that once held promises of adventure now served a chilling mystery. Our decision was unanimous. It was time to leave. We began to dismantle the eerie tower, each piece of equipment a reminder of the uncanny precision with which it had been stacked. The eeriness of the task made our skin crawl, and we worked in tense silence, eager to finish and start our trek back to the jeep. The trail back was challenging, the beautiful scenery now tainted by our fear. We walked faster, driven by an urgency to leave the wilderness behind. But the forest, it seemed, had other plans. Despite our familiarity with the trail, we seemed to be getting nowhere. Landmarks we thought we recognized appeared again, leading us back to the same spots. The feeling was maddening, the forest a labyrinth from which there was no escape. We were walking in circles, trapped in a nightmarish loop. Our frustration grew with each passing hour, but so did our determination. We were resolved to escape this terrifying trap. However, the wilderness seemed to mock our efforts. The forest, in its expansive grandeur, was a maze, its secrets well-guarded and unforgiving. As the hours passed, we realized the bitter truth. We were lost. The trail that had led us into this wilderness was eluding us, cloaking itself within the vastness of the forest. The forest, once our playground, was now our prison. 
As night began to fall, we felt the familiar knot of fear in our stomachs. We were forced to camp again, to face another night of the unknown. We were out of food, exhausted and scared. The grandeur of the wilderness seemed to shrink us, its unfathomable depths a stark reminder of our insignificance. We huddled in our tent, the small space a weak barrier against the all-encompassing darkness outside. We listened to the sounds of the forest, each rustle, each hoot amplifying our anxiety. The thought of the lights returning, of the pulsing sound echoing through the darkness was terrifying. We lay there, waiting for the dawn, our fears and worries the only company in the suffocating silence. We were prisoners in the wilderness, victims of a phenomenon that defied all logic and understanding. We were at the mercy of the unknown, and it was a chilling realization. The night was long, the minutes stretching into hours as we listened to the haunting symphony of the wilderness. Our dreams of an adventurous retreat were replaced by a singular desire to escape, to return to our familiar city life. As the sky began to lighten, we clung to the hope of finding our way back, but the fear remained, a relentless companion in our nightmarish ordeal. The forest was no longer a retreat, but a daunting mystery we were desperate to escape from. It was an exodus, a desperate journey to escape the terrifying enigma of the Pacific Northwest. The darkness was our shroud, our companion in the isolating vastness of the wilderness. Our tent was our refuge, a flimsy barrier against the uncertainties lurking outside. The forest seemed to hold its breath, awaiting the next act in our harrowing saga. Sleep eluded us. We lay awake, entwined in each other's arms, our heartbeats a shared rhythm against the pulsing fear. The anticipation of the unknown was an unbearable burden, a torment that kept our senses on high alert. Suddenly, a brilliant light pierced through the canvas of our tent, casting long shadows that danced with every rustle of the wind. It was a blinding white light, an unnatural illumination that seemed to defy the darkness of the wilderness. We froze, the shock gripping us in its paralyzing hold. With trembling hands, I reached out to the zipper of the tent. My fingers were numb with fear, my heart pounding in my chest. The light was so bright that it was almost tangible, a glowing entity that seemed to dominate the entire forest. Slowly, I pulled back the flap of the tent. What met our eyes was a sight that was as terrifying as it was fascinating. Two humanoid figures stood near our camping gear, their bodies bathed in the glowing light. Their features were barely discernible, but their large black eyes were as clear as the terror that gripped us. They seemed to be communicating, a soft clicking sound filling the air. It was a strange sound, alien and rhythmic, adding to the eerie atmosphere. It seemed to echo the pulsating fear that was threatening to consume us. As we watched, frozen in our tent, the creatures inspected our camping equipment. Their movements were swift, calculated, their interest in our possessions both intriguing and disturbing. The bizarre sight was a chilling testament to the reality of our situation. Suddenly, a light drizzle began to fall. The soft pitter-patter against the canvas of our tent seemed to heighten the strangeness of the encounter. It was as if the forest was adding its own soundtrack to the unnerving drama unfolding before us. Then, as suddenly as they had appeared, the figures vanished. The light faded, leaving behind a profound darkness that seemed to engulf the entire forest. We were left in our tent, the shock of the encounter freezing us in place. We were petrified, our minds struggling to comprehend what we had witnessed. 
The forest was silent once again, the only sound being the falling rain against our tent. The encounter had left us shaken, the reality of our situation sinking in with terrifying clarity. As the rain eased, we were left in a daze, the night's events a horrifying memory that was all too real. Our fears had been validated, our worst nightmare coming true. We were not alone, and the unknown was far more terrifying than we had imagined. As dawn broke, we were consumed by a desperate need to escape. The Pacific Northwest had revealed its secrets, unveiling a reality that was far beyond our comprehension. The wilderness was no longer a retreat, but a terrifying encounter with the unknown. Our resolve to leave had never been stronger. Dawn brought a respite from the terror of the night, its first light cutting through the dense foliage of the forest, making the spectral figures from the night before seem like a dreadful dream. But the imprint of the fear was too deep, the memories of the encounter too vivid for any amount of daylight to erase. We emerged from the tent, the haunting image of the humanoid figures still etched in our minds. Our camping equipment lay undisturbed, as if mocking our terrified reactions from the night before. The silence of the forest was eerie, a stark contrast to the mysterious clicking sounds we had heard. The memory of the humanoid figures inspecting our belongings sent a shiver down my spine. We packed our gear with trembling hands, the mundane task an attempt to regain some semblance of normalcy. The forest around us seemed to pulsate with a quiet menace, its calmness a facade hiding the unfathomable mysteries it held. Our hearts pounded in our chests as we set off again, eager to find the elusive trail. The quietness of the forest was oppressive, as if the very air was holding its breath, waiting for the next act of our horrifying saga to unfold. As we trudged along, we held on to each other, drawing strength from our shared fear. The only sounds were the crunching of dried leaves under our feet and our ragged breaths. Each rustling leaf, each bird call, seemed to echo our escalating terror. The forest seemed to close in on us, its towering trees casting long, menacing shadows. The wilderness, once a haven of tranquility and adventure, was now a maze of terror, its silence echoing the dread of our ordeal. Just when despair was beginning to creep in, there it was, a familiar landmark. Relief washed over us like a wave, almost knocking the breath out of us. We recognized a large, moss-covered boulder that we had passed on our way to the campsite. The sight of it brought a glimmer of hope, a beacon in our terrifying ordeal. We quickened our pace, driven by a renewed determination to escape. The forest seemed to recede, opening up a trail that was hidden in its depths. Our desperate prayers were finally answered. We were on the right track, making our way back to civilization, to safety. Our legs ached, our bodies screamed for rest, but we ignored the pain. We had one goal, to put as much distance between us and the camping site as possible. The memories of the encounter fueled our desperate flight, each step taking us further from the terrifying reality that the wilderness had revealed. As we moved away from the site of our terrifying ordeal, the forest began to lose its ominous aura. The trees seemed less menacing, the silence less threatening. The Pacific Northwest, in all its rugged beauty, was once again a wilderness, its secrets hidden behind a facade of tranquility. But the haunting memories of our encounter remained, casting long shadows that would forever taint our perception of the wilderness. As we fled towards the safety of our jeep, we made a silent vow. We would never speak of our ordeal, the memory too terrifying to revisit. The forest had shown us a glimpse of the unknown, a reality that was far too disturbing to confront. 
As we left the Pacific Northwest behind, we left a part of ourselves in its depths, a part that was forever changed by the encounter. With the familiarity of the trail now guiding us, the feeling of terror began to recede, replaced by a rush of adrenaline. The forest became a blur as we raced down the path, our lungs burning and our muscles aching with every step. Despite the exhaustion, we kept pushing. Every second that passed, every stride we took, was a step towards freedom. Our jeep was the symbol of our escape, a metallic beast that promised to take us away from the wilderness that had become a living nightmare. We didn't stop to rest. We couldn't. The image of the humanoid figures kept playing in our minds, their large black eyes staring into our souls. Every rustle of the leaves, every chirping bird was a cruel reminder of the terrifying night we had endured. As we neared the clearing where we had parked the jeep, relief surged through us. Our vehicle stood there, a comforting reminder of our world, a world that didn't hold frightening mysteries or inexplicable phenomena. I fumbled for the keys in my pocket, my fingers shaking with exhaustion and relief. The sound of the engine roaring to life was the sweetest melody I had ever heard. As we drove away, the towering trees of the forest faded into the background, a chilling chapter of our lives concluding. The silence in the jeep was deafening. Our minds were a whirlwind of thoughts, each more terrifying than the last. The drive was a blur, the landscape slipping away as we left the wilderness behind. The only thing that mattered was the distance we were putting between ourselves and the forest. As the sun began to set, casting a golden hue on the landscape, the nightmare of the encounter began to feel distant. We were still shaking, our hearts pounding, but the safety of the jeep was a reassurance, a shell protecting us from the horrors we had experienced. We didn't speak a word during the entire drive. Our minds were filled with terrifying images, our hearts heavy with the fear of the unknown. The comforting hum of the engine was the only sound that filled the silence, a monotonous melody that kept the terror at bay. When we finally reached the safety of our home, the relief was overwhelming. The familiar sights and sounds were comforting, a reminder of our reality, a reality that didn't involve eerie lights or mysterious figures. We were home, safe from the horrors that the wilderness held. But as we looked at each other, we knew our lives would never be the same. We had stared into the face of the unknown, and it had changed us forever. That night, as we lay in our bed, the silence of our home was a stark contrast to the pulsating fear of the forest. We held each other, our bodies trembling, our minds plagued with haunting memories. We knew we would never forget, never escape the terrifying memory of our encounter. The Pacific Northwest, with its towering trees and vast wilderness, had given us a glimpse into the unknown, a glimpse that had changed our lives forever. We had escaped, but the terror was far from over. We were prisoners of our memories, haunted by a reality that defied all understanding. In the safety of our home, we struggled to find normality. The quiet hum of the city was a stark contrast to the eerie silence of the forest, yet it failed to ease the knot of anxiety in our stomachs. The comforts of civilization couldn't erase the terrifying memories etched deep into our minds. We made an unspoken pact to keep our ordeal a secret, to protect our loved ones from the terrifying reality we had experienced. The shared glances, the comforting squeezes, they were all acknowledgments of a story that was too incredible, too terrifying to recount. Yet the trauma of our experience lingered, 
The once mundane tasks now served as stark reminders of our encounter. Cooking dinner was a throwback to the lights in the sky, while the rustling of city life brought back chilling echoes of the eerie forest noises. Sleep was plagued by nightmares of large black eyes and strange clicking sounds. Even the comfort of each other's presence was a haunting reminder of the terror we had shared. Every quiet moment, every hushed whisper was heavy with unspoken words, memories we were both desperately trying to suppress. Our love, once a source of joy and comfort, had become a shared bond of a terrifying experience. As days turned into weeks, we attempted to reclaim our lives, but each day brought its own struggle, the mundane routine a challenging feat. We sought solace in the familiar, the ordinary providing a semblance of control over the terror that lingered just below the surface. Despite the difficulty, we kept our promise. We never discussed the encounter, never hinted at the mystery of the Pacific Northwest. Our silence was our shared burden, a weight we carried with stoic resilience. We became experts at suppressing the memories, at avoiding the triggers that brought the terrifying ordeal rushing back. At night, we would often find ourselves gazing at the stars, the twinkling lights a cruel reminder of the mysterious phenomena we had witnessed. The vast expanse of the night sky, once a source of wonder and fascination, was now a canvas of haunting memories, its mysteries a frightening reality we had experienced firsthand. In these quiet moments, we found comfort in each other's presence. We held hands, our fingers entwined, as we silently acknowledged the unspeakable terror we had lived. We shared long, comforting embraces, our mutual silence a testament to the bond that had grown stronger in the face of adversity. Our terrifying experience had created an unbreakable bond, a connection that was deeper than love, stronger than fear. It had changed us, made us stronger, more resilient. We were survivors, warriors who had stared into the face of the unknown and lived to tell the tale. But we chose to stay silent, our tale too terrifying to recount. It was our secret, a chapter of our lives we chose to bury in the depths of our memory. As we gazed at the night sky, we made a silent promise to each other. We would not let the terror define us, would not let it tarnish our love. We would live our lives, cherish our love, and let the memories fade into the background. The Pacific Northwest, with its mysterious lights and humanoid figures, would remain a closed chapter, a secret we would carry to our graves. In the aftermath of our experience, life slowly, painstakingly regained some semblance of normalcy. The days turned into weeks, weeks into months, but the scars of our encounter in the Pacific Northwest remained etched in the shadows of our lives. The silence between us was heavy with the secret we bore, but in it, we found an unspoken strength, an unsaid pact that bound us closer. The terror had retreated, but it had left in its wake a profound sense of bewilderment. We had confronted the unknown and emerged from it irrevocably changed. Every crack of dawn, every setting sun, was a stark reminder of the terrifying events we had experienced. The night sky, once a source of wonder and fascination, had become a silent antagonist, its twinkling stars mimicking the spectral lights of our encounter. Yet sometimes when we gathered the courage to venture out into the stillness of the night, we would look up at the heavens, the echo of our questions disappearing into the abyss of the universe. Were we alone? Or was there something else, something beyond our comprehension, sharing this universe with us? These questions haunted us, 
their answers locked away in the silent depths of the Pacific Northwest. Yet, in this quest for answers, we found a sense of acceptance. We realized that the universe was a vast expanse, teeming with mysteries that were beyond our understanding. We decided to embrace the uncertainty, to live with the unanswered questions, and to move on from the terrifying ordeal. Our secret remained safe, locked away in the depths of our hearts, an unspoken chapter in the book of our lives. We never spoke about the strange lights or the humanoid figures. Even the word camping was erased from our vocabulary, its mention too painful, its memories too haunting. In our decision to stay silent, we found solace. Our silence was not born out of fear, but out of acceptance. It was our way of coping, our method of surviving. The terrifying encounter in the Pacific Northwest had changed us, but it hadn't defeated us. We learned to cherish the mundane, to find joy in the ordinary. The simple act of waking up to a new day, of feeling the warmth of the sun, of listening to the gentle hum of city life. These became our treasures, our lifelines. And so we lived, with the memories of our encounter fading into the background. The haunting echoes of our experience in the Pacific Northwest lingered, but they no longer defined us. We had faced the unknown, survived its terror, and emerged stronger. As I pen down these words, the final chapter of our ordeal, I can't help but look up at the sky. The stars twinkle, innocent and beautiful, oblivious of the terror they had once evoked. We never found the answers to our questions, and perhaps we never will. But in the mystery, in the unanswered echoes, we found our strength, our resilience. This story ends here, with a couple who faced the unknown and lived to tell the tale. A tale they chose to bury, a secret they chose to keep. We look up at the sky sometimes, our hearts filled with unanswered questions. But we don't seek answers anymore. We simply gaze, lost in the beauty of the universe. A universe that holds mysteries beyond our understanding. A universe we respect, fear, but most importantly, continue to marvel at. No! I wrenched the steering wheel over to the right, causing the tires to scream in protest. A deep horn blared loudly, almost rupturing my eardrums, and the interior was momentarily illuminated by harsh white headlights. For a split second, my life flashed in front of my eyes, and then I felt the bumpiness of the grassy edge of the road jostle me around. The 18-wheeler which had veered into my lane missed me by less than a foot, blasting by in a blur at what had to be 70 miles an hour or more. After a split second of catching my breath, I jabbed the driver's window switch down and stuck my head out into the pouring rain. Jerk! I screamed at the retreating logging truck, though I knew the driver wouldn't be able to hear me. A moment later, an outraged woman's voice tumbled from the speakers of my rented Chrysler 300. I beg your damn pardon? Regaining my senses and remembering I'd been in the middle of a phone call, I sat back down in the seat. Not you, Aaron. I said apologetically. If you didn't hear the commotion on my end of the line, I almost got splattered all over the front end of some moron's Peterbilt who wandered over to my side of the road. There was a moment of silence from the speakers, and then my agent let out a small snort. Well, isn't that just grand? You've got to love idiots on the roads these days. It took a softer tone. I'm glad you didn't get into an accident, Al. I don't feel like losing my best client and close friend in one go. I laughed. 
Helps me relax to know you care, I admitted. Then, after a moment getting the tension out of my muscles, I pulled the car back on the road and continued on. It was the winter of 2022, and I was on my way to a book signing in Seattle from where I lived in Gold Beach, Oregon. I was a writer who'd just broken the New York Times bestseller list with my debut novel, and as such, I was on the start of my book signing tour which would take me around the country. Obviously, as many people would quickly realize who I am if I used my real name, I have changed it, along with others. Aaron, my literary agent, had suggested I fly to Seattle from the airport in North Bend, but I'm someone who's had a major anxiety over flying ever since the September 11th attacks in 2001. So instead, knowing I hadn't purchased a new car to replace my rather shabby and broken down one yet, she'd arranged me a rental, and I'd begun the almost seven and a half hour drive north. I wouldn't have had to deal with those dingbats if Interstate 5 hadn't jammed up with that accident, I muttered. Well, you were the one who wanted to drive, Al. Aaron's chiding voice came through the speakers. Do you have any idea where you are? I glanced at the GPS map for what had to be the hundredth time. The screen almost seemed to glitch, jumping as the antenna on top of the car attempted to communicate with an orbiting satellite above. Piece of crap. No, this stupid navigation system is apparently on the fritz, I snorted. So much for Enterprise being a good car rental company. I looked back up just in time to see a sign with the gas symbol flash past. Thank you God for small favors, I thought. Hey, there's a gas station coming up soon. I'm a bit low anyways. I'll stop there, get directions, and then call you when I'm on my way, okay? There was a sigh on the speakers. Okay, just please try not to be too long. The publishing house won't like it if you show up to your very first book signing late tomorrow, she said. I'll be as quick as I can, I said reassuringly, then pressed the red disconnect button on the steering wheel, ending the call. I let out a sigh of relief. Aaron was my saving grace and had been the one to orchestrate my contract, including a very nice advance, but after a while, it became exhausting to deal with her. I stared out the windshield at the two-lane road in front of me, relishing the silence. Save for the rain pelting the car's windshield, the windshield wipers flicking it off, and the tires on the wet pavement. For a few more minutes, all I saw was nothing but endless trees pushing in close to the road, almost seeming as if they were jostling to see who drove up and down past them. Then, almost as if my thoughts had summoned it, I saw the bright lights appear ahead on the right, like a lighthouse beacon. It was clearly one which had been here a very long time, the overall appearance gave the impression it had been around since at least the 1950s, if not earlier. I grunted with surprise as I saw the lit-up station logo swinging around in a lazy circle on its pole. The faded green outline of a brontosaurus and similarly weathered red letters spelling out Sinclair were ones I thought I would never see in person, seeing as how the company had gone defunct back in March. Guess nobody told the owner of this one that. I pulled into the station, my tires driving over a small black wire which caused a classic bell to ding loudly twice, somewhere out of sight. Pulling up next to the green pump, I shut the engine off and relaxed back into the comfortable leather, listening to the tick of the engine cooling down. As I closed my eyes, I could only hear the loud buzz of the fluorescent lights overhead and the rain pelting the metal awning over the pumps. I opened my eyes as I heard the rain peter out and looked around glancing at the analog clock on the dash, illuminated by the overhead lights. 7.30 p.m. Ten minutes had passed. I sighed. Come on, man, I muttered, 
then quickly tapped the horn. The blaring sound of it almost seemed to shatter the stillness like a baseball through a plate glass window. Still nobody. Damn it, I whispered, then unbuckled my seatbelt and pulled on the handle, using my foot to kick open the door. A bitingly cold wind smashed into my face as I stepped out onto the cracked concrete, causing me to flip up the collar of my coat in response. I glanced around, only hearing the sounds of the wind whipping through the trees, crickets chirping, and what had to be the hoots of an owl somewhere off in the forest beyond. The garage bays were open, and in the faded yellowed light of what had to be old incandescent bulbs, I could see what looked like a 50s Cadillac and a 70s International Scout up on the lifts, but no mechanic in sight. Leaning back into the car, I leaned on the horn, longer this time. Again, the sound reverberated off the trees and station. For some reason, I shivered at the noise. It almost feels sacrilegious to disturb the silence out here. I shook my head. Where the hell had that thought come from? I shook it away and waited another minute or so. There was still no sign of life. Maybe the station is actually closed. The thought was worrying. I hadn't seen another sign of civilization, aside from the idiot logging truck, in two and a half hours. I didn't know how far it was until the next town or gas station, and as good as the Chrysler had been on gas, I didn't want to try driving further on only a quarter tank. I decided to find out for myself, slamming the driver's door closed with a loud thunk. Stepping around the front of the car, I walked across to the open bays, the sound of my footfalls echoing back at me. I glanced around, noticing the spilled oil on the ground, and mismatched tools, bottles, and hoses heaved unceremoniously on the bench in the back, but still saw no one. Great, I thought, looking up to see the bright moon begin to appear from behind the clouds. I had begun to turn and stride towards what had to be an office or convenience store when the figure burst out of the door, nearly causing me to jump out of my skin. Gah! I involuntarily let out, receiving a good-natured laugh in return. Sorry, sir, I didn't mean to startle you, let alone make you wait so long. I caught my breath, then let out a strained chuckle and looked up at the man. He appeared to be in his late forties or early fifties, dressed in a green Sinclair jumpsuit adorned with the same green dinosaur on the front patch. The patch on the other side proclaimed the man's name to be Harold. The remaining hair on his head was slicked back, and he flashed me a smile with surprisingly bright white teeth. I held up my hand, giving it a little wobble, and gave a laugh of relief. Don't worry about it, man. For a second I thought this place was permanently closed or something, I said, the steadiness returning to my voice. No, sir, just the fact it's only little old me working the night shifts, he declared, jokingly wiping his brow. I snorted and smiled. The man clearly had a decent sense of humor. I'm guessing you need gas, he asked changing the subject to business and gesturing to my car. I nodded. Yes, please, if you could fill her up with regular. He nodded, then began towards it as I jogged back around, opening the driver's door and pressing the button to pop the gas cap. Harold let out a low whistle as he pulled the pump from its cradle. Very nice car, sir, he exclaimed, looking it over. It looks expensive. I shrugged my shoulders. It is a nice car, a Chrysler 300S, but unfortunately it's not mine. He looked up at me and cocked an eyebrow as he slid the nozzle in and pulled on the handle. It's a rental, I added quickly, realizing it sounded like I jacked it or something. He seemed to relax. Ah, that makes sense, he said jovially. It's nicer and newer than anything we normally see out here usually. I jerked my thumb at the open bays. I'd say you have people with good taste around here, 
seeing as how that's a 55 Coupe de Ville back there, I said. He laughed, nodding approvingly. I see you know your cars, he said with an impressed tone, glancing at the readout on the pump. I do love them, I replied. He looked back up at me. So, are you some kind of auto collector or race car driver then? He asked. I shook my head. No, afraid not. I'm a writer. He jerked his head up, his green eyes seeming to twinkle in the fluorescent lights. A writer? Well, blow me down. I never thought I'd get a god-to-honest writer in my station, he exclaimed, smiling. I nodded, feeling a slight sense of uncomfortableness wash over me. I still hadn't gotten used to the reaction people had when they learned of my profession. He pressed forward. What kind of books do you write? He asked excitedly. I write in the horror genre, honestly, I admitted, causing him to smile widely at the news. Horror is my favorite style of books to read, he said. I love everything from the old classics to Stephen King. He looked at me quizzically. How many have you written so far? I held up a single finger. Just one published. I'm actually on the way up to a publicity signing right now. He nodded approvingly, then looked back at the pump before speaking again. So, have you ever seen anything truly scary? I raised an eyebrow at his question. That came completely out of left field. What do you mean by that? I asked in return. He still watched the pumps but replied, So many horror writers I've heard about talk about how they've had their own frightening experience, whether it's a plain old scare or even a supernatural experience. It's what helps them write truly horrifying tales. Now, he looked back at me. His face held a smile which caused me to inwardly shudder a little bit. It almost seemed far too wide for a moment. Then, blinking, I realized it was just a regular grin, if not just a bit of an odd one. The lights must have caused you to see things. He finished. So, I was just asking if you'd ever had a scary experience which got you into writing horror. For a moment, there was silence between us as I pondered his question, only broken by an owl's screech somewhere in the gathering darkness. Then I shrugged. Honestly, I hate to disappoint you, but no, I admitted. He gave me a slightly surprised expression. Really? I nodded, deciding to be honest with him. Really? To be completely truthful with you, Harold, as much as I love horror, both writing it and reading and watching it, I've stopped being scared of it a while ago. The surprised expression seemed to grow on his face. Really? He repeated, then looked down at the pump again. That's a shame, he said, his voice almost holding a trace of sadness in it. I nodded, having to agree with him. It is. I used to love getting scared by a good horror film or book, but as I got older, it just seemed to, you know, drift away. Now I just write what I know others are afraid of, like I did with my first book here, but honestly, when I write, I don't feel that fear in me at all. I hated admitting it. Even when I'd given my first online interview with a magazine about my novel, I'd lied about it, saying that my own work could scare the hell out of me. But in a way, it felt good to finally admit the truth to someone, even just a stranger I'd likely never see again. I looked up to find him giving me a rather intense, and honestly, extremely creepy stare. His green eyes almost seemed to glow in the lights, and his smile had completely disappeared. I took a step back at the abrupt change in his demeanor, but just as quickly, it too was wiped away, replaced by the smile I'd known since he appeared. Well, I'm sure if you search hard enough, you'll find that feeling again, he said, his voice filled with what sounded like genuine empathy. I nodded, looking out at the woods. I hope, 
I truthfully admitted, then heard the sound of the pump finally clicking off. Ah, all done, Harold said happily, pulling the pump out of the car and replacing it back in its cradle. He looked at the readout. That'll be 23.17, I started slightly. Under 24 bucks for three quarters of a tank? I hadn't heard of gas this cheap since I was at least a teenager, but at the same time, I wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I reached into my back pocket, pulling out my wallet, and from it, my credit card. Do, you happen to accept credit? I asked, half afraid he'd tell me he didn't. But he plucked the card happily out of my hand. Of course we do, mister. He looked down at the name on my card. Mr. Damascus. The credit card reader, however, is back inside the main building. He gestured back towards the door he'd exited from. Would you mind if I took it back there and ran it? I shook my head. No, by all means, go right ahead, I said, and he turned away and strode back across towards the building. I'll be back out with your receipt quicker than you can say. Bob's your uncle, he called. I let out another laugh at the phrase I hadn't heard in years when I noticed something. I hadn't seen the man's back since he'd appeared, and this was my first time. The back of his jumpsuit was the same stained green as the front, with a red oil rag peeking out of the back pocket. But my eyes were drawn to one thing. What looked like a large tear in it, just below the large logo patch adorning the back, almost as if he'd been slashed. I could see an equally stained white shirt underneath it. Uh, hey, I called out to him. He stopped and turned back to me, still smiling. Yes, he asked. I pointed to my own back. Your, uh, your jumpsuit has a huge tear in the back of it. Just wanted to tell you in case you didn't know. For a moment, the same funny look came over his face, and then he waved his hand dismissively. Oh, I know. I haven't had a chance to mend it yet, he said. Then, holding up a finger, pulled open the door, causing a bell hung from the inside handle to jingle, and stepped inside. I was left alone again, with only the buzzing sound of the lights almost causing my ears to ring in the sudden silence. Not wanting to seem rude by waiting back in the car, I instead walked to the front and leaned against the hood, staring out into the night. My eyes absent-mindedly drifted off into the gloom as I waited for Harold to return. That's when my eyes finally glanced over at the large sign directly ahead of me. It was the one which advertised the price for gas by the gallon, and as I'd pulled in from the other way, not to mention getting too caught up talking, I hadn't even looked at it. You could easily tell it had fallen into a bit of disrepair, as the light inside which allowed you to see the prices at night flickered on and off, precariously seeming as though it would burn out at any second. You could even hear it flickering loudly in the silence. That wasn't what drew my eye, though. No, what drew my eye was the prices displayed on that flickering sign. There's absolutely no freaking way, I whispered to myself. I scanned down but kept looking at the top two figures. 88 cents a gallon for regular? I felt a small wave of confusion fall over me. No matter how out in the middle of nowhere this station was, there was no way that it would charge that little for gas. Not to mention, it showed prices for both unleaded and leaded gasoline, something that had been banned since at least the mid-90s. As my mind attempted to process this, something else finally sunk in. The entire forest around the station had fallen silent. And I'm not talking a normal silence, either. The crickets, the owl, and the rustling of what I'd thought were deer or elk in the trees had vanished. Even the wind had seemed to stop. It was an almost unearthly stillness, as if the entire forest were holding its breath, 
It was beyond unnerving and eerie, to say the least, and it caused a shiver to shoot up my spine. The only sound I could hear was the almost maddeningly loud buzz of the overhead lights, which seemed to drone like that of a growling creature. I realized every muscle in my body had tensed up, though I couldn't understand why. Sure, the silence is eerie, but it's nothing to be truly afraid of, I thought. As much as I repeated that thought to myself, I couldn't help but feel increasingly on edge in the stillness. Okay, screw this, I said finally, the sound of even my own echoing voice sounding just off to me, pushing myself off my hood and beginning for the door Harold had gone through. As I walked, I looked at the watch on my wrist, seeing another fifteen minutes had passed since he'd left. Where the hell is he? Letting out a sigh, both out of frustration, and to try and relieve some of the odd sensation forming in my gut, I finally reached the door and reached out, gripping the handle. It felt almost shockingly cold in my hand, and I quickly twisted it, opening the door and causing the bell to jingle, sounding too loud in the quiet. I stepped inside and allowed it to swing shut behind me, the bell giving another jingle, this time muted in the building's interior. I looked around. Aside from an old Coca-Cola machine in one corner of the room, there were no food or drinks in here. Instead, the two or three aisles taking up most of the space were filled with what looked like older-style cans of motor oil and other assorted automotive bits and bobs, all adorned with the dinosaur logo. I drew in a breath, then coughed a little. It felt more than a little musty in here, as if it hadn't been aired out in a long time. Looking directly ahead, I saw the counter that Harold must usually be stationed at. An older-style cash register sat atop it, and behind it lay an open door marked Employees Only. Beyond was a long-tiled hallway which stretched out for a while before disappearing around a corner. I stared at the cash register. Haven't seen one of these old jobs since I was a kid in the 90s, I thought, a few nostalgic emotions breaking through my other emotions and tugging at my heartstrings. But it was just as quickly shooed away by the uneasy feeling that was settling over me like a cloud of dust. This whole thing, this whole place just seemed wrong. I couldn't tell why, but it was making my arms and legs feel as though insects were inching along under my skin. After a moment's hesitation, I opened my mouth. Uh, hey, Harold, I called, my voice seeming muted just like the bell had. I waited. No answer. Hey, Harold, are you back there? I called again. Still nothing. Feeling increasingly on edge as the fluorescent lights in here sounded like they were also buzzing too loud, I craned my neck to look down the corridor. Just barely at the corner, I saw the bright blue sign indicating a restroom. I made my decision, calling out again. Look, if you can hear me, Harold, I'm coming over the counter to use the restroom, okay? I can't hold it until I get to the next town. It was a lie. I hadn't eaten or drank anything in the last two hours to make me have to go. But just in case he came around the corner, I didn't want to get into trouble, as odd as I felt. I still didn't want to tick the man off. Taking a deep breath, I hopped the counter and stepped into the corridor. Unlike the main room, this was lit by three or four incandescent light bulbs, dangling down from the ceiling. It gave the hall a slightly dimmer look than behind me, and I hesitated for a moment before starting down it, taking care not to have my footsteps echo too much. The hall seemed to go on forever, but eventually I reached the corner. Wanting to keep up appearances, I turned the knob for the bathroom and opened it. After looking into it for a split second, I shut it quickly, suppressing a cough and a gag. It had looked disgusting, 
as though it hadn't been cleaned in years, if not decades. Turning back, I noticed a brighter light down at the end of the next stretch of hallway. I debated for a moment, then began down it. All I wanted was to be out of here. I passed another open door. Glancing through it, I saw the two garage bays and the view outside. The blast of cold, fresh air relieved me somewhat, and I continued on. As I reached the doorway, I looked around, seeing that it was an office. Two desks stood inside, each with nameplates on the edge of them. I spied Harold's name on the far one. I also saw my credit card sitting in the middle of the table. The bright blue stood out among the dark wood and white papers. Letting out a relieved sigh, I crossed to it quickly and picked it up. I decided I'd just leave a 20 and a 10 in cash on the desk instead and get the hell out of here. I didn't know where the man had gone to, and every fiber of my being was telling me to leave. As I reached for my wallet, my eyes caught a plaque on the wall behind the desk, the faux gold glinting in the low light. I stared at it. The photograph was clearly Harold's, looking almost the same as I'd seen him, just a lot cleaner. Below that was a declaration etched into the fake gold. Employee of the Month, Harold Jankowski. I couldn't help but smile a little at how hard he must have worked for it. Less than a second later, though, the smile dropped from my face as I read the inscription underneath it. August 1976. I shook my head, hoping that I was just seeing things in the low light, hoping that it would change to 2006, or hell, even 1996. But no, it remained the same. What the hell? I breathed out, feeling another shiver go down my spine. There was absolutely no way that, if he'd looked to be in his 40s or 50s in the mid-70s, that he would still look the same 46 years later. He'd at least be in his 80s or 90s now, and would very much not still be working here. What the hell is going on? I whispered again. Feeling like tendrils of dread were reaching out of the gloom and jamming themselves in me, I turned to book it out of the room and out of the station entirely. But I froze as I saw Harold. He sat in an old-style black swivel chair, his back to me in the next room. I couldn't tell what the room was, as it was lit only by a single, very dim bulb directly over him, but the room was giving me off truly creepy vibes. For the first time in years, I felt the first inklings of fear. Before I had a chance to move or say anything, he spoke. Well, Mr. Damascus, he said, his voice almost inflectionless. I began to speak. Look, I'm sorry I barged back in here, it's just... I was cut off as he continued. Well, Mr. Damascus, how do you feel? My shoulders slumped as I felt a wave of confusion envelop me. X, excuse me? I managed out. How do you feel? He repeated, then continued, his voice finally seeming to gain some cadence to it. Do you feel... afraid? Do you feel... fear? He let out a low chuckle, one that almost seemed different from the happy one I'd heard outside. I didn't know how to respond. Finally, he spoke again. It's okay. You don't have to tell me. I know. I can feel it. He let out another chuckle, and I felt multiple shivers shoot up my spine. And frankly, Mr. Damascus, I'm happy about that, he said, standing up, but still keeping his back to me, because you all taste so much better when you're afraid. This time I did manage to say something. The hell. It wasn't the most eloquent response, but apparently, Harold found it funny, as he let out another low, creepy chuckle. He finally turned towards me, and I jumped backward, slamming into his desk and causing his nameplate to fall to the ground. The man still smiled at me, his smile now holding a very definite wideness to it, 
holding an almost pants-wetting wickedness in it. But he didn't seem alive. His previously sparkling green eyes now seemed glassy and unseeing. To put it bluntly, he almost more resembled a ventriloquist's dummy, a puppet than anything. He almost seemed to lean towards me, and finally he spoke. I'll make it sporting, though. You have twenty seconds to run, he said. Swallowing hard, I looked around and saw a tire iron on his desk. I snatched it up, ready to club the man over the head if he made a move toward me. That's when he simply dropped forward onto his face. He fell halfway forward into the room and didn't move. I looked down at him and gasped as I realized what I was seeing. The man looked nothing more than like a deflated beach ball, as though all the organs and blood in him had been sucked out. I saw the tear in the back of his jumpsuit again, this time much more pronounced. Behind it, his dirty white shirt had been torn as well, and it revealed, oh, to hell with me sideways, a hole in his actual back. I could see the white of his spine clearly visible in the yellow light. As I stared down at him, I heard a voice. This one, though, was not Harold's. It seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere at once, much lower than I'd ever heard a human voice speak, and it alone almost caused me to piss myself because it held a truly evil, sadistic tone to it. 20, 19, 18, 17. I looked up and into the darkened room Harold had fallen out of, and finally, for the first time in years, I screamed. Hovering just in the darkness beyond the edge of the dim light's gaze were two enormous, glowing green eyes. They were larger than a human's eyes ever could be, and in a very inhuman shape, looking like crescent moons. They held the most evil, sadistic glee I had ever seen in my life. At my scream, the voice stopped counting down, and it freaking laughed. A great, booming laugh that sounded like nails on a chalkboard. And then it began counting down again, the malicious excitement in it audible. Sixteen, fifteen, fourteen. I didn't wait any longer. I didn't want to see what those eyes belonged to. I turned and I sprinted out of the office, running down the corridor, my footfalls and panicked breathing echoing back to me like a gunshot. The corridor seemed to go on forever, and I couldn't understand why it was taking so long to reach the corner. Finally, though, I reached it and froze. I was back at the entrance to the office. What the hell? Behind me, I heard the voice reach ten, and I began sprinting again down the hallway. It seemed to take even longer to reach the corner, and this time, I reached out to grab the corner edge with my hand, only to grab the wooden edge of the office door. My eyes widened and I felt tears begin to fall from my eyes as I ran again. The voice continued as I dashed for down the ever-increasing corridor. Seven. Six. Five. I let out a strangled sob as I grabbed for the tiled corner, pushing off the edge of the corridor to snatch at it. Instead, I smashed into the wall, next to the office door. I fell in a heap, trying to force myself up when I heard it finish. Three. Two. One. Ready or not, Mr. Damascus. Here. I. Come. As it finished uttering the last word, the voice dropped even lower, as if I were hearing the voice of the devil himself speak to me. I realized if I looked behind me now, I'd see it, standing in the middle of the office over its human puppet. I refused to look back. I knew it wanted me to. Tears flowed freely down my cheeks, mixing with the blood from my head where I'd slammed into the wall. Every horror movie death in movies and books flashed through my mind, and I knew all of them weren't even remotely as horrible as what that thing had planned for me. That's when a thought, just a tiny glimmer of hope, flashed through my mind. 
something I'd seen as I'd walked down the hall to the office. I felt adrenaline course through me. I might die trying to do this, but I have to try, I thought. I heard the floor behind me rattle and felt hot, stinking breath fall across the back of my neck. For a microsecond, I felt paralyzed with fear, and then I let out a strangled cry, exploding into motion. I heard a bellow of frustration behind me, followed by a laugh. It knew once I reached the end of the corridor, it'd use whatever power it had to bring me right back to it. It had power over this corridor. But it doesn't realize it left a weak spot open. The thought still echoing in my mind, I ran, unable to keep myself from screaming this time as I dashed down the corridor. It seemed even longer than before, but as I reached the halfway point, I saw what I'd been hoping to spy. The door into the garages stood open, almost hidden out of sight behind a shelf of oil. I let out another cry, this one of determination. Behind me, I heard the creature stop laughing. Now it let out a bellowing cry of rage, realizing what I intended to do. I felt it begin to thunder up the corridor after me, to snatch me up. The feeling of something sharp sliced across my back, and then I was leaping for the doorway, and through it. I landed in a puddle of still sticky oil underneath the Cadillac. What I saw now was rusting away with decades of disrepair. Not wasting a second, I jumped to my feet and ran for the open bay doors. Behind me, I heard a louder bellow, but I didn't look back. I burst out from inside the doors into the night, now laden with the sounds of the forest again. I dashed from my car, almost flying over the hood, and ripped open the driver's door. Crashing into the seat, I stabbed at the start button, for a moment terrified that, like the typical horror cliché, it wouldn't start. But to my surprise, and gratitude, it did, the roar of the V6 thundering out. As I grabbed the knob to jam into drive, I risked one glance up, and I couldn't help but scream out again. The entire gas station had gone dark. The inside, the overhead lights, everything. I could see the outline of the building, but that was it. And the eyes. The eyes glowered at me from inside the bays with absolute rage and hatred. Still screaming and staring at them, I slammed my foot down onto the accelerator. The tires screamed, and the car shot forward like a rocket tearing out from under the awning and out onto the road. I refused to look in the rearview mirror. I knew I'd see those eyes one final time in them, and I didn't want to. I just kept my eyes on the road in front of me, as far as my headlights reached, my knuckles white as I gripped the wheel and roared away from the hell behind me. I just about never let up my foot from that gas pedal, taking the corners far too fast. Not until the warm lights of the next town finally came into view, one I can't recall the name of. I felt myself beginning to cry, this time tears of happiness and relief. I drove straight through to the police station. I knew I could never tell them what had actually happened to me. They'd think I was utterly insane, or on something. But I could tell them I'd been attacked by a crazed lunatic at an old gas station. And that's exactly what I did. I burst in, begging to speak to someone. The officers at the desk calmed me down and took my statement taking it all very seriously when I showed them my back, which, as it turned out, had three deep slashes in it. But when I told them where it happened, confused looks came over both their faces. As a paramedic rushed in from outside to check my wounds, one of the officers walked into the back, returning with the sergeant on duty, an older gentleman in his sixties. Please tell me again what happened to you, he asked gently. I did, and when I finished, he shook his head. Son, 
It couldn't possibly have happened at the Sinclair station ten or twelve miles back, he said softly. I stammered. Why not? I demanded, struggling for my words. Because, he began, it closed in 1979, after a huge fire gutted it, getting everyone inside. It's been almost half a year since that incident now. I never made my book signing, which earned me a furious phone call from Erin. Her fury disappeared when she heard I'd been attacked. I told her it had been from someone I'd pulled over attempting to help on the side of the road. I didn't want to repeat the same conversation I had with the police. They said they'd try and find whoever attacked me, but I know they never will. Not after they showed me a newspaper article, yellowed with age, showing the burned-out hulk of the gas station I'd been to, along with a very familiar photograph of a smiling man next to it. I still am a horror writer. The horror I saw that night didn't stop me from writing. My second novel is due out this year, but now whenever I sit down at my computer and begin to write a truly scary scene, I feel the chills of fear from my own creation jolt up my spine, because I know true horrors lie in this world, and I hope I never come across them again. I'm posting this here, not only to tell the truth finally about what I experienced, but also as a warning to anyone who will listen. If you're ever in the Pacific Northwest, on a lonely two-lane road in the middle of nowhere, and you happen to come across an old-looking gas station lit up with a faded green brontosaurus logo spinning in the night, just keep your foot hard down and keep going, because you may not be as lucky as I was. Have you ever had the experience of swearing you saw something at the edge of your vision, peering at you from around a corner before? I'm fairly sure a good chunk of people have, maybe even you reading this right now. Regardless of whether you're in a crowded area such as a mall or school, or home by yourself, you've more than likely had that strange sensation of being watched, usually accompanied by a slight shiver down your spine. You'll snap your head up from whatever it is you're doing, or whoever you're talking to, and nothing will be there. But you always swear that at the very edge of your vision, you saw something, a slight blur, as if something was there, but seemed to anticipate your move and pulled back out of sight. I'm fairly certain most of you just end up shaking it off. You shake your head telling yourself that nothing was there and go back to what you were doing. That's a good thing, because it's what keeps you safe. It's what keeps you alive. Like many of you for years, I always wrote seeing the slight blur at the edge of my sight off as a trick of my eyes. Being so focused on one particular area that the rest of your vision goes fuzzy. As my mother once told me when I, as a child, told her I'd seen something at the doorway to my bedroom. And as I grew older, I simply took it as fact, the way every child takes their parents' wisdom to heart. And once I became an adult, I simply waved it away completely. That was, until one night. You see, as a 30-something-year-old bachelor who makes just above the line of adequate pay, I live by myself in a small one-bedroom apartment. It means having to live farther out from the city where I work but I prefer living alone over not having to make the rather long drive to and from work every day. And because my free time during the day is close to zero, I also am a bit of a night owl. This particular night, about three and a half weeks ago, I was up late, sitting at my kitchen table with my laptop out in front of me. I was surfing the net, looking for good deals on eBay for a new DVD-VCR combo since my old one broke when the feeling came over me. The small but noticeable shiver shot up my spine, 
and at the upper edge of my vision, just below where my hair began to drift into my eyes, I saw it. It was a black and silver blur, at least that's what it looked like to me. I lifted my head quickly, looking towards the corner I'd seen it. My kitchen is in the back of the apartment, and where the table is set up, I was looking back out into the living room. The bedroom also sits next to the kitchen, and the wall separating the two stretches out a bit, causing a rather large blind spot from where I sat. Of course, when I looked up, there was nothing there. For a few more seconds I simply sat, staring at the corner. Nothing moved. There was no sound except for the quiet whine of my laptop's fan and the hum of the fridge. I snorted. Really, Eddie? You're jumping at shadowy blurs now? What are you, eight years old again? And with a shake of my head, I went back to the computer screen. The hours seemed to pass by at an accelerated pace, and to my surprise, when I checked the clock at the bottom right of my laptop screen, the time said quarter to three in the morning. Holy crap, I stayed up too friggin' late, I whispered to myself. I'd barely be getting four or five hours of sleep. And so, with a yawn, I shut my computer down and put it back into its carrying bag. As I stood up, though, a slight feeling of apprehension wiggled its way to the forefront of my mind. I lifted my head from zipping up the bag and again stared at the corner. This time there was nothing there. No blur at all. Recalling what my mother had told me years ago, I stood up and slowly stepped into the center of the kitchen, where I could see around the corner. I felt a small pang of embarrassment at the relief that washed over me as I saw nothing was there. What next? You gonna start believing in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus again? I muttered to myself. And with that, I entered my bedroom, shutting the door behind me and climbing into bed. For a moment the image of the blur danced behind my eyelids, and then the Sandman overtook me, plunging me into a deep and dreamless sleep. The next day passed by like I was wading through quicksand. Of course, it likely had to do with how tired I was, but I got through the day, and soon enough, I was back home. This time I resolved to get to bed before midnight, 1 a.m. at the latest. So I didn't go on my computer. Instead, I watched some TV and indulged myself in a few online matches in Battlefield 1. Soon enough, the clock sitting next to the TV displayed 12.35 in big red numbers. All right, time for bed, I thought, and stood up, shutting off the TV and Xbox. I decided that I would get myself a drink before bed and move to the fridge. Opening it, I pulled a pitcher of juice out and grabbing a glass from a nearby cabinet, poured myself some. The cold liquid felt good sliding down my throat, and I let out a relieved sigh. For a moment I closed my eyes, apart from the sound of a diesel truck passing by outside and the ticking of the clock over the sink, all was silent, and I loved it. I placed the glass in the sink to wash tomorrow and turned to take the pitcher back to the fridge, and nearly dropped it at what I saw. As I turned around, I had a clear view across the kitchen and living room toward the small alcove where my front door sat, and for just a second I saw the same black and silver blur pulling back out of sight from the edge of my vision, except this time I know it wasn't just a trick of my vision or a strand of hair flashing in front of my face. Hey, I reflexively yelled out. I didn't expect any response, and I didn't get any, but now I knew for certain. There was something, or someone there. I felt my pulse rapidly quicken, and my heart began to beat like a drum against my chest. Freaking great. Did someone decide to break in and try to burgle my apartment of all places tonight? I looked around quickly for something to defend myself. My eyes fell upon the block holding all my kitchen knives, 
and moving quickly I pulled the largest one out and turned back towards the entryway. There was no movement now, but I noticed a change in the atmosphere. Gone was the simple vacant air the apartment always held. Now, it seemed to contain a charge to it, as if seeing the figure had been something they hadn't planned on, as if I weren't supposed to have seen it, probably figured I'd already be in bed. Well, they have a massive surprise coming their way. I cleared my throat. You back there, I called out simply. Again, there was no reply. I spoke again. Look, I saw you there peeking around the corner of the entryway. The jig is up. I don't want to fight right now, so I'll make you a deal. If you turn around right now and leave, I won't call the cops on you, and I won't come at you with this knife. Just go find someone else to rob, okay? Still, there was silence. But the tension in the room seemed to have racked up more than a few notches at my words. I waited for a minute, feeling my temper begin to flare. Does the idiot seriously believe that if he stays quiet, I'll believe he's not there and go to bed or something? It wouldn't be a surprise. The people who usually broke into houses and apartments in my neighborhood were usually strung out on the drug of choice for the week or, in all truthfulness, simply not that bright. I let out an annoyed growl. If I have to come over there to get, it's not going to end well for you, I said. At six feet even, and in good shape, I could easily take on whoever it was. The silence was almost deafening. Okay, the hell with this, man. I strode quickly across the room, the knife held out in front of me in a vice-like grip. I stopped for a moment, drawing in all my strength and reflexes. For a moment, though, an odd sensation seemed to wash over me like a wave. To my surprise, it was a bolt of fear. But fear of what? Yes, it was a bit dangerous to about to confront a cornered intruder, but fear shouldn't be one of the experienced emotions. Shaking it away, I put all the muscle into my legs and leapt around the corner. There was nobody there. For a moment, I simply stood there, feeling dumbfounded. Uh... What? I blurted out. I knew for a fact I'd seen someone there. It hadn't been a trick of my eyes, and I hadn't heard the front door open. In fact, looking down at it now, I saw the little knob on the door handle was, in fact, twisted into the locked position. As I stared down at it, a sudden, huge shiver rushed up my spine, combined with the feeling of being stared at intensely. In fact, it almost felt as though whoever were doing the staring were almost directly behind me. On instinct, I whirled around, slashing out with the knife as hard as I could. But again, there was nothing. No one stood behind me. The oddest thing, though, was that as soon as I spun around, the feeling of eyes boring into the back of my skull ceased, as if the watcher had simply blinked out of existence the moment I turned. But the tension in the apartment didn't go away. In fact, it almost seemed to intensify, and it kept me on edge enough to the point that I searched the entire apartment. I went into the bathroom, drawing back the shower curtain. I went into my bedroom and opened up the sliding doors to the closet. I even opened up both closets in the living room, pulling out all the coats and boxes someone could hide behind. But I found nothing, no trace of anybody. Even still though, when I went to bed, I locked the door to my bedroom behind me, just in case. And I slept with the knife on my bedside table. The next morning, when I awoke, the feeling had vanished from the apartment. It was almost as if the daylight had banished the tension-filled aura away, and I was glad for it, along with the fact that I had a full day of work ahead of me. And so, with a final look around, I locked the front door behind me, climbed into my old, but well-taken-care-of Mitsubishi Starion, and made the two-and-a-half-hour drive into the city for work.
The day passed by without much fuss. Aside from a mandatory team meeting my jerk boss decided to impose on us during our lunch break. The monotony calmed me down somewhat, and I began to mentally tease myself for how bent out of shape I'd gotten last night. I even decided to tell some of the guys at the water cooler about it. Everyone, of course, had a good laugh over it. Well, Ed, if I ever need someone to slice away at the dark emptiness of my house, I'll be sure to give you a call. Mark, one of my co-workers, joked, causing everyone, including myself, to guffaw some more. The joking shoved it completely out of my mind, and before I knew it, the evening had arrived. I packed up my belongings back into the car and made the journey back home, still chuckling a bit to myself and humming along to the songs playing on the car's radio. As I pulled into my apartment building's parking lot and into my space at close to ten at night, however, I saw something which tore away that relaxed, relieved emotion from me like it had been a loved one in the grip of a tsunami. My complex is set up in a U-formation with two floors, sort of similar to how an older-built motel looks. My apartment was the second one on the top floor, and from where I sat in my car, I could look up and see the living room window of my place between the slats of the walkway's railing. As I always did, when I left, I'd twisted shut the white Venetian blinds so nobody walking past the window could look into my place. Someone was peering down at me from between the blinds. From between my blinds. I felt my blood turn to ice as I saw the obvious parting in the middle of them, signifying someone was pulling down on a section of them, and then doubly so when they, just as quickly, snapped back into position. Crap, I mentally hissed. I fumbled around in my coat pockets, looking for my cell phone. I let out a groan as I suddenly realized I'd forgotten it when I'd left home that morning, which meant it was up there, with them. Crap, I hissed again out loud this time. I gazed around for a moment at the darkened windows of the other units, but I knew none of my neighbors would be of any help to me. Long gone were the days of neighbors looking out for each other. They would inevitably tell me to either find a way to call the cops myself, or straight up tell me to go to hell, that it wasn't their problem, which unless I wanted to drive straight to my local police station, over twenty minutes away, the only other option was to go in myself. Hissing through gritted teeth, I pulled the door handle and kicked the door open, letting the chilly night air flood into the car's interior. I reached down and yanked on the trunk release before climbing out and slamming the door. Crossing to it, I pulled the glass hatch up and fumbled around inside for a moment before withdrawing a tire iron from the mess of crap cluttering up the trunk. Slamming the hatch closed, I took a deep breath. Then, leaving my car's engine running in case I needed to make a quick getaway, I took the stairs to the top floor two at a time. A moment later, I was standing at the head of the landing, staring at the Tweety Bird yellow painted door of my apartment. My heart pounded in my chest as I took a step forward, reaching out slowly and gripping the handle in one hand. I gave it a small twist to see if it would turn, but it stayed in place, showing that the door was still locked. Or, whoever's in there locked it behind them. Swallowing a bit, I reached into my pants pocket for my house keys with my free hand. Pulling them out, I slid them as quietly as possible into the lock in the center of the doorknob. I took a deep breath, knowing as soon as I twisted the key, the doorknob would turn with it as well. God, please don't let me get jumped as soon as I step inside, I quietly whispered towards the dark sky. I let out a deep breath, then raised the tire iron over my head and twisted the key. The knob turned, and I immediately pushed the door open, 
It swung inwards before hitting the wall with a soft clunk. The porch light cast a long, narrow shaft of light into the dark room beyond, reflecting off my flat-screen TV on the far side of the living room. Aside from that, though, the place was as dark and silent as a tomb. My pulse quickened as I slowly reached inside, my hand searching for the light switch. Part of me feared that, as I blindly searched, I'd suddenly feel a vice-like grip seize my wrist and pull me into the dark. The mental image sent a shiver of fear through me, just as my fingers found the plastic switch. Flicking it on, the living room suddenly became awash in the bright overhead light. Still holding the tire iron over my head, I took a tentative step inside. The atmosphere in here had changed again. Gone was the tense one which had accompanied seeing whoever the other night. In its place was an almost threatening one, and realizing it set me even farther on edge. Moving quickly, I leaned around the corner, giving me a glimpse of the kitchen beyond. Both it and the living room were empty, from initial appearances anyways. But that still left the bathroom and the kitchen. Something caught my eye, however, which filled me with relief. My cell phone still sat where I'd left it, in the middle of the living room coffee table. I moved slowly, trying to stay as quiet as possible so whoever was hidden wouldn't realize I was going for my phone and bum-rush me. I held my breath as I passed by the half-open doors of both my bathroom and bedroom, stepping around the couch and picking up my phone. I decided right there and then that I'd step back outside and call the cops. There was a fine line between being courageous and being suicidally stupid and searching this place on my own with just a tire iron to defend myself, especially knowing someone was hiding somewhere in here, was firmly on the latter side of that line. I turned to begin walking quickly back to the open front door, but something stopped me, something which made me freeze. There was a small section of eggshell white wall between the door to one of my closets and the bathroom door. Something had been written there. No, not written, I realized. It had been scratched into the wall. My eyes flashed over the three words etched into the paint and plaster. Videre nos potest. My head swam with confusion, trying to place what language it was. That was when I felt my heart almost stop in my chest, my breath along with it. Out of the left corner of my vision, I saw the door to my bedroom had slowly but noticeably swung open a bit. That wasn't what had caused my heart to skip a beat, though. It was seeing the black and silver blur again. Oh, damn. Before the thought had finished in my head, I was dashing for the door. Out of the corner of my vision, there was a sudden blur of movement as the black and silver figure came flying out of the room. It never made a sound, though. I dodged it somehow and flew around the corner, snatching the doorknob in my free hand and yanking the door shut behind me. Twisting the keys to the right to lock the door again, I tore them from the lock and thundered back down the stairs, yanking the door to my car open and crashing into the driver's seat. Slamming the door shut and locking it, I dropped the tire iron and fumbled with my phone. As the voice of the emergency dispatcher came on the other end of the line and I stumbled through explaining what had happened, I kept my gaze locked through the windshield on the front door and the living room window. I swear I saw the blinds part again as I heard the wail of the police sirens approaching. When the police arrived, I jumped out of my car and quickly explained what had happened. They took my house keys from me and with their pistols drawn, climbed quickly up the steps to my place. With neighbors opening their doors and parting their blinds to see what was happening, they unlocked the door and quickly entered. A few minutes later, they both reappeared and waved for me to come up and join them. I'm sorry, sir, 
but whoever it was, they're gone, one of them said to me. He then showed me that the window in the back of the apartment, which was in the back of the kitchen and opened out onto a main road, had been opened, the mosquito screen having been cut to allow someone to jump out. I stared out and down at the two-story drop. It would hurt to jump from this height, but it's doable, I thought. The cops again did a sweep of the apartment, turning the entire place upside down with me there, and again, found no one. They both promised to stay the night outside, to keep an eye on the place in case the person attempted to try and come back, and would make sure an officer was posted outside for the next week or so. It made me feel more than a bit better. What about the writing scratched into the wall? I asked them, pointing to it. The first officer shrugged. I honestly don't know, sir, he said, giving me an apologetic look. That's a language I've never seen before. That's when the second spoke up. It's Latin, he said simply. We both looked at him. He was staring at the writing with a bit of a confused, if not apprehensive, look on his face. But what freaking low-level criminal knows Latin, he murmured quietly, more to himself than us. Well, what does it say? I asked him. For a few seconds he didn't answer, then he finally turned and looked at me. He can see us. That's roughly what it says. I felt a massive chill shoot up my spine at his words, though I couldn't understand why. Not at the time. As promised, the officers watched over the apartment for the rest of the night. And for the next week, there was always at least one cop car sitting outside. It was also thankfully quiet that next week. I was almost able to feel completely calm, putting the frightening experience out of my mind and allowing my life to regain a bit of normalcy. I didn't feel any sensation of being watched. One thing I did do, though, was type the Latin words into Google, in an attempt to see if anything came up, but nothing did. I decided to push the last remnants out of my conscious mind, and as the weekend came, I looked forward to sitting on the couch, playing video games all night, and having a bottle to myself. Saturday night, I played until almost one in the morning, before stumbling to the bed. I passed out almost as soon as my head hit the pillow. I'm honestly not sure what woke me up, but when I slid my eyes open, it was still to darkness. I felt my head begin to spin, showing that I wasn't fully sober yet. I shot a look at the bright red glowing numbers of the clock on the bedside table next to my head. 3.30 a.m. Uh, what the hell? Do I have to piss? What woke me up? Everything stopped. My mind froze mid-thought, and my heart fluttered in my chest. My breath hitched in my chest as my eyes adjusted to the dark, staring across the room. I was looking at my bedroom closet, which, when I'd fallen asleep, I'd looked over and seen it closed. But now, as I stared, I realized the sliding right door had been pulled back some. A chill ran through me. And then it was replaced by a bone-chilling shiver of fear as my eyes locked onto something else. Something which stared at me from around the edge of the half-open closet door. It was the black and silver blur. Except this time it wasn't a full-on blur. I'm not sure whether it was the darkness or the alcohol still flowing through my veins, but I could see it a bit more clearly now. I couldn't see much. Just what looked like two large, very dark eyes glaring at me. I felt frozen in place, fear quite literally paralyzing me to the bed. As I lay there, my eyes widened to the size of saucers. I slowly became aware of something else. Something which I'll never forget, which I can still hear in the silence. It was whispering. It was a soft, hissing voice, sounding as grating as sandpaper, but it almost seemed to be growing in intensity, as if it knew I was awake and was staring at it. 
and it was not even remotely happy about it. The words were indistinguishable at first, but as the voice grew louder, the words became clear. But they weren't words I knew, or a language I knew. Tole kinos videre potest. Tole kinos videre potest. Tole kinos videre potest. I recognized some of the words as the same as the words written on my wall. It was speaking in Latin. The voice grew angrier and angrier, turning from a hiss into almost a demonic growl. And then, it went deadly silent. It almost seemed as though the entire world had gone dead silent, as if everything were being sucked out of the world. That's when I saw the hand reach up from underneath the bed to grab onto the sheets, less than a foot from my face. A hand which more resembled a claw, tipped with five razor-sharp fingernails. There's more than one, and it's under my freaking bed. Seeing that hand, that claw reaching up from under the bed broke the paralyzing hold that had come over me. I flew up in bed, flinging the sheets up and forwards and letting out an involuntary scream. Instantly, there seemed to be a world of motion in the bedroom. Black and silver blurs seemed to appear from everywhere, from the closet, from under the bed. Even from inside my armoire, I used to store candy, books, and CDs, and they were all coming for me. But I was already moving, practically flying from my open bedroom door. Behind me, I caught the blurs following after me. They were terrifyingly fast, but they stayed silent. Silent, that is except for the mantra they all suddenly began to angrily whisper, the same words I'd heard the one in the closet angrily hiss. Tolekinos videre potest, they chanted just loud enough for me to hear, but not enough for anyone else in the complex to. I ran through the bedroom door, grabbing it and slamming it shut behind me. A moment later, I felt the push from the other side as whatever the things were attempted to force it open. Looking around, I spied a kitchen chair within reach and grabbed it, forcing it under the handle to block the door. I knew it wouldn't hold for long, though. I could hear the creatures practically throwing themselves at the door. I used the time I had to grab my computer bag, along with the clothes I'd left strewn on my living room floor and my cell phone. I'd just snatched my car keys from their hook when I realized they'd gone silent. The assault on the door stopped. For a split second, I felt a wave of relief. And then I saw something out of the corner of my eye from the kitchen. My blood turned to ice as I realized the cabinet doors under the sink were beginning to open, and that demonic growl of a mantra was beginning to pour out from under it. So was my bathroom door, and both closets. Oh damn, I whimpered, then dashed for my door, snatching up my sneakers as they rushed out from their new hidey holes. I unlocked and threw the door open, dashing out into the night and yanking it shut behind me. Bolting down the steps, I jammed the key into the door of my car and unlocked it. I piled into the driver's seat and yanked the door shut, slamming down on the lock button, forcing the key into the ignition and twisting it. The engine roared to life. I knew I should simply call the cops, but I knew at this point, if I did, when they arrived, they'd all have disappeared. Maybe even make it look like another person had jumped out the window again. They're that smart. Instead, I jammed the shifter into reverse and peeled out of the parking lot. As I left, I saw the blinds part again as they watched me go. I haven't been back to my apartment in weeks. I drove all through the night, fighting back the waves of nausea from the alcohol still in my system until I made it to the city where I work. I rented a motel room, and ever since then, I've been staying there. I figured I could just eventually have movers go and collect my things from the apartment and give my 30-day notice. There was no way I was ever going back there. I thought I would be safe in the city. 
I thought I would be safe anywhere else but my apartment, that they were bound to the place. I was wrong, so very wrong, because I've started seeing them everywhere now. I've seen them while out in crowded places such as the mall or Walmart. I've seen them in my co-workers' houses when I'm invited over by them as they tell me they're concerned about how I'm beginning to act. I'm even seeing them at work, peering at me from around the corners of hallways, from behind the water cooler. I've even caught them glaring at me from around the corner of my office cubicle. They whisper that horrible Latin mantra to themselves, now added with evil chuckles, and whisper it to me. I ended up entering the phrase into Google Translate to understand what they were saying, but wish I never had, because knowing the meaning of the words fills me with an existential dread and terror I've never felt before. Take away he who can see us. You need to listen to me now, you, reading this account I'm posting. I don't know what these creatures are. I wish I did, because then, I might have some way of fighting back against them. I don't even know what they fully look like. I've only seen their eyes, and their clawed hands. The only thing I can deduce is that they are incalculably old, centuries old, maybe even eons. I now understand that those blurs I saw all throughout my life from the corner of my vision were them. They've lived alongside us for all of humanity's existence, staying just out of sight. They like it that way. They don't like us humans knowing about them, but I know others, not just myself, have likely seen them. How many strange cases of people disappearing in their homes, with all the doors and windows locked from the inside have you heard about? I know I've heard more than a few, and I think I know what happened to them. They saw these creatures, and when they realized the people could see them, they came for them. They wore them down, mentally and physically, like they're doing to me now. I'm afraid to fall asleep, afraid I'll wake up to see them right in front of me. I feel so weak now. I couldn't fight them off if I tried. They know that. They knew that about the others. And that's when they dragged them away, to God only knows where. I know I'm going to find out soon enough. Because all of today, they've been getting closer. I caught one trying to grab my leg under my desk. That wasn't the scariest encounter I've had. The worst was driving back to the motel, looking in the rearview mirror of my Starion, and seeing one of them glaring at me from just behind the rear seat. It caused me to nearly crash into a telephone pole. I've locked myself in my motel room, which is where I'm writing this. I don't have much time left. They're beginning to poke their heads out from everywhere in here. Multiple have popped their heads up from under the bed, watching me frantically typing this out on my laptop, and they're all laughing at me. Today is when they're going to take me. They know I know that. I can't do anything more now. I can't run from them anymore. I'm too tired, too weak. But I can do one final thing. I can warn you. I can post this account here as a warning. I know for a fact most of you won't believe me. And that's fine. It may even be what saves you in the end. But please, listen to me when I say this. If you ever think you see something peering at you from around a corner, if you ever catch a glimpse of a black and silver blur disappearing just out of sight, don't investigate it. Just ignore it. Tell yourself it's nothing and go about with your lives because you don't ever want them to realize you can see them. I've always loved the outdoors, the raw, untouched wilderness that seems like a stark contrast to the bustling city life. It was probably my dad's influence, always taking me and my friends Jake and Ryan camping when we were kids. 
That's where our friendship truly bloomed, among the rustling trees and beneath the star-studded sky. Jake, Ryan, and I decided it was high time for another trip, a break from our city lives. We chose the forests of Utah, a wilderness we had not yet explored. Its untouched serenity called to us. We started our preparations, our excitement building with each passing day. As the day finally arrived, we packed our gear into my old but reliable truck. I could feel a rush of exhilaration. Our phones were switched off, severing our ties to the city. We only had each other, and the wild for company. The drive was a blur of laughter, old stories, and endless stretches of road. Ryan, ever the jokester, kept us entertained with his outrageous anecdotes. Jake, on the other hand, always a source of calmness, just smiled at our antics. Eventually we reached the entrance to the forest. I took a deep breath, taking in the sharp scent of pine and damp earth. Something was different, though. The forest was unusually quiet. It wasn't the peaceful silence we were used to, the type that's full of nature's whispers, rustling leaves, chirping birds. This silence was different, almost eerie. Weird, isn't it? Jake said, echoing my thoughts. I looked over to see him scanning the forest, his forehead creased in concern. Yeah, I replied, struggling to place why it seemed so odd. There were no birds singing, no rustle of the wind, just a deep, profound silence that seemed to swallow all other sounds. Maybe they've all gone on a vacation, Ryan joked, breaking the momentary tension. We laughed, appreciating the humor, but something still felt off. Brushing aside our unease, we shouldered our backpacks and started our journey into the wilderness. Little did we know, we were venturing into something far beyond our understanding. I didn't let the unease dampen our spirits. The thought of a roaring campfire and old tales under the starry night kept me going. I led the way, unaware of the uncanny silence that was wrapping around us like a cold shroud, and the series of unforeseen events that were about to unfold. The excitement of the upcoming adventure was palpable in the crisp air. Our camaraderie and the call of the wild were strong, unbeknownst to the strange occurrences that were waiting for us. We set off on foot, our boots crunching on the pine needles strewn along the path. The forest was vast and intimidating, but also strangely beautiful. It was a sea of green, with light streaming in through the canopy, creating patterns on the forest floor. But it was the silence that held us captive a quiet so profound it felt almost tangible. Isn't it weird? I broke the silence, unable to shake the nagging feeling. I looked over at Jake and Ryan. They looked uneasy too. What is? Ryan asked, squinting at me. His casual demeanor was beginning to falter. I paused. The silence, it's just too quiet. I gestured around at the stillness. Usually the forest would be filled with the calls of birds, the rustling of leaves, and the almost imperceptible buzz of life. But this silence was absolute, like we had stepped into an abandoned world. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Jake agreed, nodding solemnly. It's almost as if the woods are holding their breath. His words sent a shiver down my spine. That's exactly what it felt like. Like the woods were waiting. For what? I had no idea. Maybe it's just a slow day, Ryan attempted to lighten the mood, clearly uncomfortable. But his joke fell flat. We knew better. We had been camping enough times to know that this was not normal. I decided to push our concerns aside, reminding myself of why we were here. This was supposed to be an escape, a fun adventure. We needed this trip to break away from our everyday monotony, so we pushed forward. The path was a winding serpent, leading us deeper into the forest. 
The air around us was still, adding to the aura of mystery. I could see the towering trees around us swaying slightly, their trunks whispering ancient secrets. The further we walked, the more the feeling of unease settled deep within me, like an uninvited guest. A few hours passed. The silence, which we had first dismissed, now seemed to be a constant companion, shadowing our steps. It was almost deafening, filling our ears, pressing against us. Even our conversations quietened, our voices seemingly absorbed by the surrounding stillness. The silence was eerie and unsettling, but we were determined to enjoy our trip. We made jokes, trying to lighten the mood, and I could see Ryan forcing laughs. But I could also see the concern behind his eyes, mirroring my own. The beauty of the woods was a stark contrast to the unnerving quietness. Nature was, after all, a paradox. It could offer solace, and yet, it could be terrifying in its solitude. This realization dawned upon us as we ventured deeper into the forest, towards the unknown. Despite the uneasy quiet, we continued our journey, pushing forward, drawn by the promise of adventure. But the silence was a specter that refused to leave, lurking around us, an omen of the chilling events yet to unfold. Little did we know that this was just the beginning. We decided to take a break, after what felt like a couple of hours of hiking. Ryan pulled out sandwiches from his bag, and we sat on a fallen tree log, biting into our lunch, trying to ignore the unsettling quiet around us. The forest was still unnervingly silent, but we had managed to brush off the unease for the most part. No sooner had we finished our sandwiches, Ryan got up and started exploring the area, ever the restless one. I watched him from my perch on the log, while Jake busied himself in packing up our lunch remnants. Suddenly, Ryan's voice cut through the silence. Guys, come over here. He sounded excited. Jake and I shared a glance and quickly got up, heading towards where Ryan's voice had come from. We found him standing in front of a cave, partially hidden by a curtain of thick ivy. The entrance was narrow, not more than a couple of feet wide. It was a wonder Ryan had even noticed it. This looks interesting, Ryan said, his eyes shining with excitement. What do you think? He looked at Jake and me. I squinted into the darkness of the cave. Curiosity peaked. Let's take a look, I said, pulling out my flashlight. As we stepped into the cave, the temperature dropped noticeably. The beam of my flashlight illuminated the dark surroundings, and we walked further in. The cave walls were rough, with strange formations of stalactites and stalagmites jutting out. We moved deeper into the cave, our flashlights casting long shadows on the cave walls. Suddenly, I noticed something on the wall. It looked like... paintings. I moved closer, my heart pounding in my chest. They were indeed paintings. And not just any paintings, but cave paintings. Guys, look at this! I called out, my voice echoing off the cave walls. Jake and Ryan came over, their flashlights pointing at the wall. The paintings were intricate, depicting what looked like deer, with exaggerated antlers. Whoa, Ryan breathed, his eyes wide with astonishment. These must be really old. Jake nodded in agreement, his gaze fixed on the paintings. I didn't know we had cave paintings in Utah. This is incredible. We stared at the paintings, our worries of the silent forest temporarily forgotten. The deer seemed almost lifelike under our flashlight beams, their eyes seeming to follow us. We were awed by the sight, our hearts filled with a strange mix of excitement and unease. There was a sense of the ancient and mystical about the paintings. Here we were, three friends on a camping trip, 
standing in front of a relic of the past. We were humbled by the artistry and the history that the paintings held, completely unaware of what else the cave had in store for us. As we ventured deeper into the cave, our initial excitement turned into a creeping sense of dread. The discovery of the cave paintings had been fascinating, but we were far from realizing the true horror that lay deeper within this cave. We ventured further into the cave, the eeriness of the space growing with each step. The cave seemed to stretch on forever, our flashlights illuminating only small portions of the area. As we rounded a bend, I stumbled upon something that made my blood run cold. Guys, I croaked, my voice barely above a whisper. Jake and Ryan were right behind me, and when they saw what I was pointing at, their faces turned pale. There, in the dim light of our flashlights, was a shrine of bones. Old deer bones, to be precise, arranged in the shape of a human. The sight was absolutely terrifying, chilling us to the bone. The silence of the cave became oppressive, the air heavy with a sense of dread. We stood there for a moment, unable to tear our eyes away from the horrific sight. The eerily life-sized structure seemed to loom over us, casting an ominous shadow on the cave walls. What is that? Ryan whispered, his voice echoing around us. The bone shrine was an unexpected and chilling sight. None of us knew how to react to this unsettling discovery. I... I don't know, I replied, my voice shaky. The grim realization that we were possibly intruding on something sacred, something ancient and ominous, was settling in. As we were still reeling from the discovery, a loud, unnatural shrieking sound echoed from the entrance of the cave. We all froze, the sound ricocheting off the walls and drilling into our ears. Ryan quickly drew out his hunting knife, the metallic sound of it being unsheathed echoing in the unnerving silence that followed the shriek. I could see his knuckles turning white around the handle. The fear was palpable. I think we need to get out of here, Jake said, his eyes wide. We nodded, turning around to head back towards the entrance of the cave. As we slowly navigated the narrow tunnel, the echo of that dreadful shriek still ringing in our ears, our flashlights cast ominous shadows on the walls. The once intriguing cave now seemed like a chamber of horrors. Each step we took away from the bone shrine felt like a minor victory, but our hearts were pounding with a deep-rooted fear. Once we finally saw the light of the day at the entrance, we rushed out of the cave, gasping for fresh air. But the light of day wasn't enough to erase the chilling memories of the cave. We were three grown men, seasoned campers, yet what we had stumbled upon had shaken us to our very cores. The bone shrine and the chilling shriek had transformed our adventurous spirit into a haunted fear. We were out of the cave but had unknowingly stepped into a world that we never knew existed. Stepping out of the cave, we were greeted by the bright sunlight, which was a stark contrast to the gloom of the cave. I blinked, my eyes adjusting to the sudden brightness. But the terror we had experienced in the cave still lingered, sticking to us like a second skin. The shrill shriek still echoed in my ears. I looked around, half expecting something to leap out at us from the surrounding trees, but all we saw was a red-tailed hawk circling overhead. It made a couple of loops in the sky before disappearing beyond the treetops. I pointed at the bird. Could the shriek have come from that? I suggested, trying to find a logical explanation for the terrifying sound we had heard. Ryan shook his head, his grip on the hunting knife not loosening. That wasn't any bird I've ever heard before, he muttered his gaze fixed on the spot where the hawk had disappeared. Jake seemed to agree. He had a thoughtful look on his face, and he was staring at the cave entrance. 
Something's not right here, he said, more to himself than to us. We decided to get moving again. The cave experience had spooked us, but we were still determined to make the most out of this trip. We were seasoned campers, after all. We had braved storms and wild animals, and a creepy cave was not going to ruin our trip. We resumed our hike to the campsite. The trail seemed to wind on endlessly, like a snake slithering through the undergrowth. We walked in silence, the quiet around us amplified by our encounter with the cave. Finally, we reached the camping spot. We set up our tents in silence, the usual chatter and laughter conspicuously absent. Every sound, every movement seemed to startle us. We were on edge, hyper-aware of our surroundings. As night began to fall, we gathered around the fire, the crackling flames casting flickering shadows around us. We were in the heart of the wilderness, miles away from civilization, the ominous silence of the woods wrapping around us like a blanket. We tried to lighten the mood, sharing stories of our past camping trips when we were kids. Laughter rang out, breaking the eerie silence, but it was forced, lacking the genuine joy we usually felt. Ryan was the first to retire for the night, citing exhaustion. Jake and I stayed up a while longer, staring into the fire, but the events of the day hung over us like a dark cloud, turning what should have been a relaxing camping trip into a tense vigil. The sight of the red-tailed hawk, circling overhead, the bone shrine, the chilling shriek, they all merged into a single haunting memory. We finally decided to call it a night, hoping that the morning would bring with it a sense of normalcy. Little did we know that the night was far from over and the forest had more chilling surprises in store for us. I was jolted awake in the dead of night by a voice, a voice that seemed to drift from somewhere far in the distance. It was distorted, almost as if someone was playing an old recording. My heart pounded in my chest as I strained my ears to make sense of the voice. Help me! It was a cry for help, a plea that made my blood run cold. I quickly shook Jake awake, who groggily sat up, rubbing his eyes. Jake, listen, I whispered urgently. He froze as he heard the voice. His eyes widened and he nodded, indicating that he too had heard the cry. We exchanged a look of dread and quickly got up to wake Ryan. Ryan was out of his tent in an instant, his face as pale as a sheet. Did you hear that? He asked, his voice trembling. We nodded, the sound of the distant cry echoing in our ears. It seemed like the voice was coming from deep within the woods. We decided to investigate, our hearts pounding in our chests. As we stepped out of our tents, the forest around us felt eerily quiet. There was no wind rustling through the leaves, no nocturnal animals scurrying about just that haunting cry that seemed to echo around us. We shouted back, Hey, we are over here. Where are you? Hoping that whoever was crying for help would hear us. But there was no response. Just silence. A silence that seemed to stretch on forever. Suddenly we heard a twig snap in the opposite direction. We whirled around, flashlights sweeping over the trees, but saw nothing. Then the voice went completely silent. We stood there, our hearts thumping in our chests, flashlights casting long shadows on the ground. The voice had stopped, and we saw no sign of anyone around us. We decided to head back to our camp, every step we took filled with an uneasy dread. We called out a few more times, but the silence around us remained unbroken. When we reached our camp, a red-tailed hawk was perched on Ryan's tent, its eyes gleaming in the flashlight's beam. It was an eerie sight. It looked at us for a moment before flying away, its wings cutting through the silent night. We stood there, 
taken aback by what we had just experienced. The bone-chilling voice, the twig snapping, the hawk, everything felt unreal, as if we were living in some kind of a horror movie. It was as if something was luring us deeper into the woods. We decided to stay together until morning, not daring to split up after what we had just experienced. We sat by the fire, our eyes darting around nervously. The excitement of the camping trip had evaporated, replaced by a sense of dread and terror. None of us slept that night. We sat huddled together, our minds racing, jumping at every small sound. The night was filled with a tense silence, broken only by our hushed whispers and the occasional crackling of the fire. We could hardly wait for dawn, not knowing what more the forest had in store for us. Morning couldn't have come sooner. The first rays of the sun pierced through the dense canopy of leaves overhead, washing over our tired faces. We had stayed awake throughout the night, clutching our weapons close, eyes darting around in fear. We sat there in silence, the heat from the dying embers of the fire barely warming us. As daylight crept in, the forest started to come alive, but it didn't feel the same. The chirping of the birds, the rustling of the leaves, they all seemed to hold a note of menace that wasn't there before. Ryan was the first to get up. He started the camp stove and soon the aroma of coffee filled the air. But none of us felt the excitement that usually accompanied the first cup of coffee in the wilderness. We sat there, sipping our coffee in silence, the events of the previous night replaying in our heads. The chilling voice, the twigs snapping, the hawk, it was all too much to comprehend. We should look around once more, see if we missed something in the dark, I suggested breaking the silence. Ryan and Jake nodded, a silent agreement passing between us. We knew we had to get to the bottom of this, so we set out once more, this time in the broad daylight. We moved carefully, our senses heightened. As we moved deeper into the woods, something caught my eye. I called Ryan and Jake over. There, on the bark of one of the trees, was an odd symbol, freshly carved. It was unlike anything we had ever seen before. It was complex and detailed, like a language of its own. The sight sent a shiver down my spine. We noticed five other trees around the campsite with the same symbols, each more intricate than the last. The sight spooked us. It was as if we were being warned, or worse, marked. Maybe we should leave, Jake suggested, looking visibly shaken. None of us argued. We silently nodded, the fear settling deep within us. We packed our stuff as quickly as we could, the lingering dread making us move faster. There was an urgency to our movements, an unspoken agreement that we needed to put as much distance between us and the woods as possible. It was supposed to be a trip filled with excitement and adventure. Instead, it had turned into a nightmarish experience, one that would haunt us for the rest of our lives. As we left the campsite, I couldn't help but look back. The forest, once a haven of peace and tranquility, now stood ominous and threatening. I couldn't shake off the feeling that we were being watched, that something was lurking in the shadows, watching us leave. As we started our journey back, the woods seemed more menacing than before. The eerie silence, the strange symbols, everything added to our fear. We had come in search of an adventure, but we were leaving with a terror that would stay with us forever. We walked in silence, each lost in their own thoughts. The excitement we had felt at the beginning of the trip, a distant memory now. Our pace was brisk, the need to get away from the ominous woods driving us forward. But as we moved on, it felt as though we were getting nowhere. 
The trail, which we had traversed just a day before, seemed unfamiliar. It was as if the landscape had shifted overnight. I looked around, trying to spot a familiar tree or rock, but everything seemed different, transformed by our terrifying experience. We walked for what seemed like hours. The trees towered above us, their shadows casting long, dark shapes on the ground. Every rustling leaf, every creaking branch filled us with unease. I could see the same worry reflected in Ryan's and Jake's faces. We should have reached the car by now, Jake said, his voice echoing the confusion we all felt. We were seasoned hikers, good with directions and maps, but the trail was unrecognizable. It was as if the forest was playing tricks on us, distorting our sense of time and direction. We checked our compass and maps, trying to make sense of our location, but none of it made sense. We were on the same trail, yet we seemed to be making no progress. We were lost, disoriented, and the reality of our situation was setting in. The sun began to dip, casting an eerie glow over the forest. Fear gripped us as we realized we had to spend another night in the woods. The thought of staying another night in this haunting place was terrifying. We decided to make camp, too scared to move deeper into the woods. We set up a small camp, our actions mechanical and devoid of any conversation. We gathered around a fire, its warmth barely comforting us. The darkness around us seemed to grow more intense, the woods denser. Every small sound made us jump, our senses heightened with fear. We sat in a huddled group, our eyes scanning the darkness, half expecting something to jump out at us. The night wore on, the terrifying events of the previous night replaying in our minds. Suddenly, a blood-curdling scream pierced the night, making our blood run cold. We jumped to our feet, our hearts pounding. It was coming from all around us, the screams echoing off the trees, filling the air with a sense of dread. We could only huddle closer, our weapons clutched in our trembling hands. All around us the woods seemed to come alive with fear. Twigs snapped, leaves rustled, and the screams echoed, creating a terrifying symphony that shook us to our core. With our backs to the fire we kept a vigilant watch, praying for the night to end. It was a night of terror, a night that tested our courage and sanity. As we sat there, the haunting cries echoing around us, we felt the woods closing in, its darkness swallowing us whole. As dawn broke, we were a picture of fear and exhaustion. The terrifying ordeal had shaken us, and as we packed our things, ready to find our way back, we couldn't shake off the fear that clung to us. Little did we know, the forest was not done with us yet. The morning sun, usually a comforting sight after a long night, did little to ease our fears. We were exhausted, terrified, and lost in an unyielding maze of trees. Our enthusiasm had turned into a desperate desire to escape this accursed forest. We didn't talk much, each of us lost in our thoughts as we trudged along the path that never seemed to lead us anywhere. We were shaken to our core, questioning our sanity. The tormenting screams from the night before still fresh in our minds. I could feel the heavy silence between us. Every snap of a twig or rustle of leaves made us jump, our eyes darting towards the source of the sound. It was a nightmare, one we couldn't wake up from. Hours seemed to stretch into days as we wandered, hopelessly trying to find our way out. The map and compass proved useless in this topsy-turvy forest that seemed to change with every step we took. It felt as though we were walking in circles. Suddenly a glimmer of hope cut through our despair. There in the distance was a vehicle, a park ranger's vehicle, 
Our hearts leaped at the sight. Salvation was finally in sight. We started running, adrenaline pumping through our veins, relief washing over us. The park ranger looked surprised to see us, but quickly shifted to concern as he took in our terrified, exhausted state. We quickly explained that we had gotten lost, not mentioning the strange occurrences that had left us in a state of terror. He nodded, listening to us as we recounted our harrowing journey. The grim expression on his face told us that we were not the first ones to get lost in these woods. He told us where we were, and a chill ran down our spines. We were several miles away from our original spot. It was as if the forest had swallowed us and spat us out elsewhere. He offered to take us back to our vehicles, and we gratefully accepted. As we sat in the ranger's vehicle, a wave of relief washed over us. We were finally getting out of the woods, away from the nightmares it held. Our cars were exactly where we had left them, untouched and seemingly oblivious to the terror we had gone through. The ranger left us with a warning to stick to well-marked trails in the future, his tone indicating that he knew more about these woods than he let on. As we thanked him, our eyes landed on a familiar sight, sending chills down our spines. There, on Ryan's car, perched a red-tailed hawk. It watched us with its piercing gaze before spreading its wings and disappearing into the sky. A shiver ran down my spine. The forest might have let us go, but the memories of what had happened would always remain with us. We promised ourselves, right then and there, never to speak about what had happened, not wanting to relive the terror. As we drove away, leaving the haunting forest behind, we could only hope that the nightmare was truly over. As we left the treacherous woods behind, silence fell over us. Each lost in thoughts of the horrors we had encountered, we drove in a quiet procession, the once familiar road seeming alien and hostile. We drove for hours, the dense forest giving way to open landscapes and the endless sky above. We did not speak, each lost in the horrors that still clung to our minds. The silence was only broken by the sound of the car engines, a dull hum that did little to dispel the thick tension in the air. Back home, life resumed its normal pace, but we were changed. The carefree, adventurous spirit that had defined us was lost, replaced with a fear that lingered on the edges of our minds. We found solace in solitude, the company of others serving as a harsh reminder of our terrifying ordeal. Days turned into weeks, and weeks into months, but the fear remained, buried deep within us. We spoke little of our ordeal, the agreement to never speak about what happened in the forest, a pact that bound us. Yet it was always there, a silent presence that loomed over us. Every rustling leaf, every bird's call, sent a shiver down my spine, the memory of the forest all too fresh. I found myself avoiding the outdoors, the once comforting nature now a source of fear. I could see the same fear reflected in Ryan and Jake's eyes, the adventurous spark that had once been there replaced with a haunted look. One day, months after our encounter, we gathered at our usual spot, a local bar that had been our meeting place since our high school days. As we sat there, each nursing a beer, the silence between us spoke volumes. Suddenly, Jake spoke, his voice breaking the silence. We encountered a skinwalker, didn't we? The words hung in the air, heavy with the unspoken fear that had been clinging to us. I looked at Ryan, his face pale but his eyes firm. Yes, he replied. I think we did. The truth of it was chilling, the confirmation of our fear a bitter pill to swallow. A skinwalker, a creature of nightmares, had been a part of our reality. It was a terrifying thought, one that kept us awake at nights. 
We should never go camping or hiking in those woods again, I said, the words coming out in a whisper. They nodded in agreement, the decision unanimous. As we parted that night, a sense of finality hung in the air. We were survivors, bound by an experience that had left us scarred. We had faced our worst fears, lived through a nightmare, and come out the other side. As I walked to my car, I couldn't help but glance at the night sky. There, among the endless stars, I spotted a familiar sight, a lone red-tailed hawk, its piercing eyes staring right at me. A shudder ran through me. We had escaped the forest, but the memory of the skinwalker was a shadow that followed us, a terrifying reminder of the ordeal that we had survived. We had left the forest, but a part of us would always remain there, lost among the treacherous trails and haunting echoes. Time is a funny thing. It has the power to heal most wounds, to dull the sharpest of pains. But some memories? They refuse to fade, linger in the shadows of your mind, ready to haunt you in your quietest moments. Our encounter with the skinwalker was one such memory. Every rustle of the leaves, every creak of the branches, they all served as harsh reminders of our nightmare in the woods. The forest had left an indelible mark on our lives. It felt as though it was watching us, observing from a distance, reminding us of its presence in the most subtle ways. In the ensuing months, we tried to get back to our normal lives. We went back to our jobs, back to our routines, but things were never the same. The nightmare had changed us fundamentally. There was a darkness that lingered in our hearts, a fear that hid in our smiles. We saw less and less of each other. It wasn't intentional, but every time we got together, the memories of that fateful camping trip resurfaced, darkening our moods. The skinwalker, the screams, the bizarre symbols, the red-tailed hawk, they all became taboo topics, conversations we steered clear of. Ryan became more secluded, opting for solitude over company. He took to long drives alone, claiming they helped clear his mind. Jake found solace in books, losing himself in the worlds they offered, away from the terror of our reality. I, I threw myself into work, using it as a distraction from the haunting images that replayed in my mind every time it was quiet. Despite the distance, there was a bond between us, stronger than before, a bond forged in the heart of terror, hardened by the fires of our shared trauma. We were connected in a way few could understand, bound by a secret too terrifying to share. One day I found myself standing in front of the forest. I don't know what led me there, what prompted me to revisit the place of our nightmare. But there I was, looking into the depths of the woods, a sense of dread washing over me. I felt a presence, something watching me from the shadows, a familiar dread gripping me. I turned around and left, deciding then and there to never return. That night, as I sat alone in my house, I heard it again. The distorted voice, pleading for help, the sound chilling me to the bone. I looked out the window, half expecting to see a horrifying figure lurking in the shadows. Instead, I saw a red-tailed hawk, its piercing gaze locked onto mine. A cold shiver ran down my spine. I closed the blinds, trying to shake off the terror gripping my heart. The forest might have been miles away, but it felt closer than ever, the echoes of the nightmare still reverberating in my mind. As I sat there, lost in my thoughts, one thing was clear. The ordeal was far from over. We might have escaped the forest, but the memory of the skinwalker, the unspoken horrors, they had become a part of our lives, silent specters that haunted us at every turn. Time passed, months turned into years, 
but our memories of the skinwalker and the haunting Utah woods remained as vivid as ever. The echoes of that distorted voice, the chilling shrieks, the sight of the bone shrine, all lived on in the depths of our minds. Our lives had moved on in their own peculiar ways. Ryan left the state, moving towards the bustling cities on the East Coast, trying to drown his fears in the sea of humanity. Jake buried himself deeper into his books, finding solace in the fantasy worlds far removed from our terrifying reality. I stayed, anchored by my job and family, trying to reconcile the mundane reality of my existence with the ghost of the nightmare that hung over me. The silence between us was heavy with unspoken words, shared nightmares, and an unbreakable bond. We never talked about the forest or the skinwalker, a pact we kept faithfully. One day, while cleaning out an old box, I stumbled upon an old map. It was the map we had used for our fated camping trip. The sight of it brought a lump to my throat. I traced the trail we had taken, my finger stopping at the location where we had set up our camp. The memories came rushing back, sending a chill down my spine. In a way, that camping trip was a turning point in our lives, marking the end of our carefree youth and thrusting us into a reality far scarier than we could have ever imagined. The forest had left its mark on us, changing us forever. We were not just campers or hikers anymore. We were survivors. As I continued my life, working my job, tending to my family, a part of me was always back in those woods, eternally alert, listening for the rustle of leaves, watching for the flash of the red-tailed hawk. I was not alone in this feeling. One day, a letter arrived. It was from Ryan. He didn't say much, but he didn't have to. Between the lines, I could feel the fear, the haunting memories, and the shared nightmare. I still see the hawk, he wrote. Jake's call came a few days later, his voice a whisper on the line. I heard it again, Will, the voice. I never told them about the map, or how I sometimes still woke up in the middle of the night, my heart pounding, sweat dotting my forehead, the chilling memory of the skinwalker's shriek still ringing in my ears. Some things are better left unsaid. Our lives had diverged, but the shared trauma of that camping trip had forever intertwined our fates. We had stared into the face of the unknown, confronted our darkest fears, and though we had escaped the physical confines of the woods, the echoes of that trip still haunted us. As I looked out the window, I saw a red-tailed hawk soaring in the sky. A shiver coursed through me. A part of us would always be back in those woods, forever marked by the terror we had faced. But we were here, we were alive, and we were survivors. And for now, that had to be enough. First, let me start by providing some backstory to the area. My name is Devin, and I have lived in Arizona for a total of only about two years, and in that time, I have found myself enamored by the myths and legends surrounding the area. Arizona is no stranger to the mysterious, and I often found myself passing the nights away reading stories of the Navajo skinwalkers, the Mogollon monster, El Chupacabra, and even some accounts of La Llorona. Me and my group of buddies loved Arizona and often found ourselves taking week-long camping trips up to Snowflake, Payson, or Heber. Throughout all of those trips, we had never seen or experienced anything too out of the ordinary. The only notable occurrence we had ever encountered were some strange noises that could be heard at night around the campsites, but that was usually chalked up to nerves from being so far away from the city, or a prank pulled by one of the other guys. 
We would regularly gather around the fire and tell stories of the various cryptids and legends around the area, looking to creep each other out as we had a drink in order to add a sense of excitement to our usual trips. We had never expected to witness any strange events ourselves. This trip, the outing where it all happened, started just like the rest. Just four months ago, one September morning, our little ragtag group of six, Luke, Bobby, John, Derek, Jack, and myself, worked to gather the necessary supplies for our next adventure. Luke and Bobby were in charge of general supplies, gathering tents, flashlights, and the like. They grabbed three two-person tents, a few lanterns to set around the area, as well as some handheld flashlights, some extra supplies that we would need to start a fire and cook food, and loaded the truck bed with some extra wood pallets to break down for the fire. John was on food duty and arranged a plethora of canned and freeze-dried food, water bottles, and the most important camping staple, supplies for s'mores. We had put Derek and Jack on a beer run and packed up a few cases of Coors, a pack of Corona, some seltzers, and even a small Dos Equis keg that one of them had grabbed because it looked cool. While everyone else was gathering supplies, I made arrangements and got any permits we would need. This time, we were heading to the Santan Mountain Regional Park which stood only about eight miles away from where we lived, which was a small trip compared to our usual outings. The area was just south of the town of Queen Creek, where most of us lived, and a ways east from the Indian Reservation. The park was a very popular camping spot and was usually booked out for most of the year and was quite hard to get an official reservation. Instead of going the traditional route, we decided it would be best to delve further into the territory than the set-up camping grounds as we wouldn't have to deal with other campers and could party through the night without disturbing others. That afternoon, we loaded up the truck to carry all of our supplies and piled in to be on our way. We each brought with us a rifle as it would be our method of defense. We did not bring them expecting to have to use them, but it had just become a common practice to be prepared for the worst, so they usually just sat in the truck nearby or in the tents bagged up. After our trucks were loaded up, we drove the relatively short distance to the grounds and delved deep into the territory until we found a suitable spot. The entire park was covered in brush, cacti, and rocky cliffs, which was a change from the usual forests we camped out in. We decided on a spot that was bordered by some small rock formations and had already been somewhat cleared of large brush. When we stepped out of the trucks, it was obvious that the spot had been used before as there sat a circle of rocks that was obviously for a fire and the site was littered with abandoned camping supplies. There was trash and empty beer bottles strewn about, and even a tent that lay flat on the ground. Upon closer inspection, I noticed that the tent was torn to shreds and covered with what looked like large marks made by claws. We thought that this was strange, but just chalked it up to a wild animal nesting in it at one point, or some crazy campers riding a high and freaking out. Who would just leave all of this out here? I said, bewildered at the lack of consideration from the previous campers. Some people, Derek said back generally, shaking his head side to side. We grabbed some bags from the truck and proceeded to clean up the site a bit before we began to set up our tents, a process that only took about an hour. Around this time the sun had begun to set so we began breaking down a pallet and setting up a fire. That night was uneventful and was just a small dinner of canned stews and a few beers afterward before we settled down to bed. Our three tents were split between John and Derek, Luke and Jack, 
and finally Bobby and myself. We were already pretty tired from our earlier preparations and found ourselves dozing off pretty quickly. Sometime in the early morning, it couldn't have been earlier than 3 a.m., I suddenly woke up in a cold sweat. I sat up in my sleeping bag and looked around to see Bobby passed out to my right. I was still groggy, but I could just barely hear the sound of footsteps from nearby my tent over Bobby's snores. I would usually just pass it off as someone getting up to take a piss, but something about the sound of the steps unsettled me. There was no rhythm or reason to them like a normal human's footsteps would. It was like something large was limping or just learning how to walk. That is when I noticed the smell. It smelled like a mixture of rotting meat and mildew, like what wet clothes smell like when they have sat in a pile for a few days. It was overpowering. I could barely even think. My eyes began to water, and I think I even gagged a few times. I unzipped my tent and stepped outside quickly to throw up. I emptied the contents of my stomach on the rocks a couple of feet away from the tent and proceeded to dry heave for the next minute or two. The smell had gotten worse when I exited the tent, and as I sat there trying to pass this feeling of dread that had begun to build up in the pit of my stomach, I felt as if I was being watched from somewhere behind me. I whipped around frantically and looked past the other two tents, fumbling for my little battery-powered flashlight in my pocket, quickly clicking it on and pointing in the direction I felt I was being watched from and saw nothing. Absolutely nothing. I shined the light left and right, scanning the open clearing and the nearby cliffs, and just as quickly as it had come, the horrendous stench which had plagued the campsite quickly subsided. I clicked my flashlight back off and sat down on a big rock next to my tent and tried for the next few minutes to slow my breathing and calm my nerves. After what must have been thirty minutes, I had calmed down just a little and crawled back into my tent and finally dozed off again. That morning, I proceeded to tell the group what I had experienced that night and was quickly met with laughter by the others. It's unusual to see you so freaked out by nothing, Devin, Jack said to me jokingly. If you get scared at night, Devin, you can crawl into my tent and cuddle with me, Derek said with a grin. Very funny, I said back. Are you sure you didn't have too much to drink last night? Bobby, my tentmate, asked as he finally crawled out from the tent, putting his hands in the air in a stretch and letting out a yawn. I thought about it. Could that smell and feeling really have been a fallacy created by my drunk mind? It had felt so real, and there is no way I could mistake that smell. Even now, hours later, I still felt my stomach rumble when I thought of it, not to mention the footsteps. I don't know, I finally said, trying to move on. The day went by without any occurrence, and I forgot about the events of last night and just tried to have fun. That night we all sat around the campfire again, drinking a beer and telling scary stories, just a normal night. Sometime later, John was telling a story, and Derek stood up to walk away. Where are you going? I called out to him. I just gotta take a leak, he called back as he faded into the darkness of the night. John continued telling his story, and about five minutes into it, we heard the yelling and running footsteps of Derek as he basically tumbled into one of the tents. We leapt to our feet and quickly asked him what was wrong, running over to where he had fallen. He pointed a finger back to where he had just come from and began to babble nonsense, and that's when I noticed he was shaking uncontrollably. Luke knelt down next to him and placed a hand on his shoulder. Calm down, buddy. Tell me what you saw, he said soothingly, trying to get him to calm down. There's something out there, Derek cried. 
It looked like some kind of person or something, but it was messed up, and it smelt so really bad. We proceeded to look around at each other. Derek was usually the most level-headed out of all of us, widely considered as the mother of the group, and he rarely ever drank or got drunk, so we took it seriously when he told us what he saw, but we had not entirely pieced it together yet. What could it be? Luke said to the group. I'm not sure. Maybe some kind of wild animal? John said back. I think we should pull out the guns just to be safe, I said. Good idea, Luke agreed. We honestly should have realized then that it was time to leave, but we were stubborn. We thought that we were invincible, that nothing could happen to us, and that anything strange could be explained rationally. Sure, we liked to tell stories of mysterious creatures and occurrences, but those were just that. Stories, right? We each pulled out our hunting rifles and sat back around the fire once again, trying to stay calm in light of what just happened. That's when we started to hear the sounds. It sounded like screaming all around us. It sounded like it was coming from one source, but it was coming from multiple places and directions, like whatever was making the noise was traveling around us impossibly fast. John pointed out that it sounded like Derek's scream. I realized that he was right. It sounded exactly like how Derek had yelled earlier when he ran back to camp, like his scream had been recorded and was played over a speaker over and over again. It sounded artificial, like an animal was trying to mimic a human scream. That's when I noticed the smell. That ungodly stench had returned, and this time, everyone else could smell it. We were all standing up at this point, backs pointed towards the fire, aiming our rifles out into the darkness, trying our best to cover our noses to block out that mind-numbing stench. Then suddenly the sounds just stopped, and the smell subsided. We had a hard time falling asleep that night, yet despite what we had just experienced, we weren't quite ready to leave yet. To this day, he'll never know why we didn't just leave. Later in the night, I was once again awoken suddenly, only to realize that smell had returned. At this point I was done. I was tired of being afraid of whatever was out here in the wilderness, just outside of my home. I grabbed my rifle that was sitting next to my sleeping bag, quietly unzipped the tent, and poked my head out to see what was outside. What I saw will haunt me for the rest of my life. Standing upright, just past the dying embers of the campfire, hunched over one of the tents, was an abomination of which I had no name for. It was tall, at least seven feet tall, and was covered head to toe in sickly pale skin that seemed to almost reflect in the moonlight. In different spots, its body seemed to be almost rotting, with different patches of skin hanging loosely off of its body and limbs. As I took a closer look at it, I noticed its gangly arms held down by its sides were different lengths. One arm was longer than the other, and not just slightly, but by a few inches. Its arms were skinny and bony, seemed impossibly long, and had joints turning in all the wrong areas. At the end of its hands, it had what looked to be long finger-like claws. I was not able to get a good look at its face yet, as it was turned away from me, standing over one of the tents across from me. I felt this rising sense of indescribable dread as I watched it. I thought of all the possibilities in my head, thinking back to the torn-up tent that we had noticed when we first arrived. I imagined that at any moment, this creature could rip through the tent and my friends with its claws before they could even react. With a burst of adrenaline, I opened my tent the rest of the way slowly, walk quietly outside, and aim my rifle at the head of this creature. Just before I am about to shoot this thing, I hear Bobby's fearful yell behind me. What the hell is that? He yells. 
The creature in front of me whips around at an impossible speed. That's when I saw its face for the first time. It had deep, hollow sockets where its eyes were, and its eyes glowed a menacing yellow. Its mouth stood agape with a fear-inducing set of jagged, sharp teeth, and it let out a mind-numbing screech that sounded like a mix of a high-pitched screech and a low growl. I tried to shoot it, but I either missed, or the bullet did no damage to it as it pounced on top of me, knocking me down and dug its claws into the sides of my torso. I screamed in pain, feeling the creature's claws digging into my skin, looking into the eyes of this thing on top of me, smelling its rancid breath almost causing me to pass out. At this point, everyone else had already woken up, and the other five men jumped out of their tents in a flurry, aiming their rifles at this thing and unloading into it, trying their best not to hit me in the process. The barrage of gunfire must have at least injured it because it recoiled in some kind of pain and got off me, releasing me from its clawed death grip, and stumbled a few yards away. At that moment, Derek and Luke grabbed me as John, Jack, and Bobby reloaded and continued to fire in the direction it stumbled off into. I winced with pain as Derek and Luke lift me up. That dreadful screech fills our ears once again as we book it to the trucks. We pile in quickly, leaving behind all of our tents and supplies, and start to speed away. This thing must have been chasing us, because that scream seemed to follow us. How is it this fast? We're going like 80 miles an hour, said Bobby in the driver's seat as he pressed the pedal to the floor, trying his best to maneuver the pitch-black landscape to get back to the trails. I... I don't know, Derek was stammering as he began to put pressure on the deep wounds on my side as I groaned in pain. The road was bumpy, and it felt like we were being pushed and pulled in different directions as we drove. The sound of the creature's shrieks and creaking metal filled our ears. Eventually, we couldn't hear the sounds of the creature anymore, but we never once slowed down, speeding past the checkpoint to enter the park and speeding through the lit town streets. I must have passed out along the way because the next thing I remember is waking up two days later in a hospital bed. Apparently, after I was stable, my friends went to the police and the park rangers, telling them what we had experienced. They left out some of the more unbelievable details but recounted details of the creature, the sound it made, and the smell. The authorities seemed skeptical at first but were more inclined to believe that something was out there after seeing the state that I was in and seeing the damage done to the trucks. What I had not yet seen or noticed was that the trucks were covered in large, deep claw marks on the sides and the back bumper was torn off. That's when I realized that we had just barely escaped with our lives. What was this thing? How could it be fast enough to chase a high-speed truck? How could it have the strength to rip through a metal frame like paper? Why didn't bullets seem to hurt it? I was filled with so many questions that I did not particularly want the answers to. When I was finally released from the hospital and reunited with my friends, we never spoke about the events that happened on that trip. I don't even know why I am typing this out. Maybe just to get it off my chest so I can finally move on, but I must warn everyone reading this. Be careful when camping deep in the Santan Mountains. Christmas has never been my favorite holiday. Yeah, I love free stuff, but it feels like the amount of money I spend always outvalues the gifts I get. Other than that, I just don't prefer to hang around a large part of my family, especially for large gatherings. A large part of my family sees our gatherings as a perfect excuse to get blackout drunk, 
and talk angrily at each other over politics and all other manner of controversial topics. My family's Christmas gathering five years ago was no different. I'd flown down to my grandmother's house in southern Florida, as the plan was for everyone to meet there and get their fill of food and liquor before finding their way home. I only stayed at my grandma's house for an hour or so the previous year, so my mom asked that I stay longer this time. According to her, everyone loved seeing me, although I'd debate they were too busy arguing what current trend was ruining the world. I ended up staying until about 10 before asking my mom if she could give me a ride back to my hotel since I'd Ubered there originally. She told me that she wanted to stay for a couple more hours and suggested I try taking the bus to save money instead of ordering another Uber. Honestly, anything to get me out of that house would have come off as a good idea. I remembered seeing the bus stop on my way to my grandma's, and the walk to it didn't seem like it would be too far, so off I went. At the time, it seemed like a perfectly good idea. I didn't know the bus schedule or how long they even ran, but I was willing to take my chances. While walking back to my dorm in the middle of December would cause me to freeze my ass off. Luckily, winter in Florida rarely drops below 70 degrees. It was honestly a relaxing walk, taking in the nighttime air and quiet. I'd started daydreaming about my class schedule next semester before I realized I could make out the bus stop about 30 feet in front of me. I swore under my breath as I realized someone was sitting there. As much as I hated being around my drunken family, I hated awkward stranger small talk even more. The closer I got, the easier it was to make out the person sitting there. She appeared to be a kindly lady in her mid to late sixties. Her hair was a large ball of silver and dark brown, with a large pair of thick-rimmed glasses on her face. I have to admit it took me a good while to make out anything other than the bright pink coat she was wearing. For me, 70 degrees was shorts and t-shirt weather, but I suppose it wasn't unheard of to see an older person wearing a sweater anywhere that wasn't 90 degrees. I got within a couple steps of the bus stop bench, before the lady turned to acknowledge me. She gave me a very warm hello and happy holidays that I returned, along with an awkward smile. I tried not to stare, but what I thought was a pink sweater was actually a thick pink fur and feather coat. I'd honestly never seen anything like it. A majority of the coat was made of pink fur, but the collar sprouted enough feathers to cover five or six birds. Dangling from her neck was a long pearl necklace, with some sort of elongated bird skull in the middle of it. In my head I wondered if she was into exotic fashion, or perhaps a huge bird lover. The sound of her loudly blowing her nose made me jump and shook me from my own thoughts. How is your evening, sweetheart? Her voice was dry but friendly, with an accent I couldn't quite place. I told her it was fine and returned the question, to which she launched into a wordy recollection of her entire day. I zoned out somewhere around her getting to the middle of her day and kept eye contact while randomly nodding. Where is your family now? Surprised by the sudden change of topic, I responded by jokingly telling her that they were at my grandmother's house drunkenly singing Christmas carols. She laughed and muttered something about how charming that was. I checked my phone and saw only a couple of minutes had passed and didn't hear or see any signs that a bus was coming anytime soon. I remember my eyes starting to feel really heavy. I shook my head, trying to wake myself up, but the feeling stayed. Excuse me? Have you seen my bird? I looked at the lady again and she had a look of panic and confusion on her face. Honestly, I probably did too. My bird was in his cage, but now he's gone. I looked on the ground, 
and a large old-fashioned birdcage sat between the woman's legs. How long had it been there? I was pretty sure I hadn't noticed a big iron birdcage before. It was hard to remember or even think because the tiredness I'd started feeling morphed into a slight feeling of vertigo. It felt like the ground around me had begun to slowly spin. Ah, I see him. There's my darling. The lady was on her feet now, pointing across the street. Her voice sounded raspier, as if at some point in the last two minutes she had turned into a chain smoker. I followed her finger and saw she was pointing at something standing in the tall grass across the street. I couldn't make out what the figure was, but I was positive it wasn't human. It had wide, blocky shoulders and a long, wiry neck attached to a large, circular head. The area of tall grass the figure stood in was covered in shadow, so I couldn't make out any other details. Through the shadow, I could swear the figure was staring directly at us. Could you please go grab him, sweetheart? The lady's voice seemed to be coming from inside my own head, and without even realizing it, I felt myself moving toward the figure covered in shadow. As I got closer to the thing, it shifted so that its entire body was facing me. It twitched and shook as if electricity was coursing through it. The closer I got, the faster my heart would beat. The more some kind of instinct inside me screamed that I was making a bad decision. But I couldn't stop myself. It was almost as if I had developed an obsession with reaching whatever this thing was. I was halfway across the street, and a sudden shift in the moonlight illuminated the creature enough that I got a look at something that could only have been born from a nightmare. It spread its arms like it was stretching a pair of wings. Its skin was a pale blue and stretched tight over its thin frame. Long, stringy pink feathers sprouted from all over its body. Its long, snake-like neck waved and slithered through the air, and a head that resembled a pink human skull never broke eye contact with me, its tiny eyes that glowed a bright purple. I couldn't stop myself from walking forward. I couldn't break my focus away from the glowing purple eyes of whatever thing stood in the grass in front of me. Its neck stretched outward towards me, shortening the distance until we were face to face. The loud and long blare of a bus's horn caused me to trip and fall backwards. The horn split me from whatever trance I was in, and I looked around to see the bus stopped and waiting behind me at the bus stop. I hadn't heard it pull up. I didn't even know how long it had been there. I twisted myself around and didn't see the old lady in the pink feather coat. Remembering the creature, I turned and was met by a tall man standing just outside the tall grass. He wore tattered clothing covered by a hood adorned in writings and pink feathers. Several large bird skulls hung from a thick rope necklace and several straps across his chest. I'd slowly started backing away before the man lunged at me, a curved knife in one hand. I scrambled to my feet and sprinted to the bus, struggling not to trip. The driver looked at me with confusion and worry on her face, asking several questions. Did I take something and did I know that man were among the first. I stuttered and rambled, spitting out a bunch of random words. Eventually, she simply waved me to the back. I was the only one on the entire bus, still no sign of the old lady. The bus dropped me a block or so from my hotel, and thankfully I made it to my room without any more incidents. I don't think I'll ever forget the look of that thing standing in the grass. Something that haunts me as much as that creature is the fact that three people in that area disappeared that night. I always wonder if maybe those three people weren't so lucky as to break that creature's gaze. My name is Mark, and I'm a detective. 
Not like on the force or anything, a private eye, like in the movies. It's kind of the family business. My grandfather was one, and my dad and I grew up in that world, and it was only natural that I go into it too. It's not as exciting a job as you would think if you go by Hollywood. It's mostly sitting in your car for 10 hours at a time, waiting to take pictures of cheating spouses to show the spouse who is paying you to prove that they're being cheated on. It's kind of a bummer sometimes. People get married, they get cheated on, they get divorced. So often, kids are caught up in the middle of it all. Now and then something crazy comes your way, though, or something exciting. I want to tell you guys about one of the crazy ones, the craziest. It happened a few years ago, and sometimes I still can't convince myself it was real. I'm not religious, and I don't believe in the supernatural. At least I didn't until Benson Street. Now, I'm not so sure. A woman got a hold of me in August of 2020. She had lost contact with her sister. She came into my office and spun a pretty crazy story. Her sister lived in a small town in Michigan called Franklin's Green. My client was named Shelley. She was 62, and her sister was a little younger. They were close and spoke almost every day. But for the last month, her sister hadn't answered her calls. And then Shelley did a little digging and came across a couple of news stories that were a little hard to believe. They said that everyone who lived on Benson Street had gone missing. There were eight houses on the dead-end street, and every person who lived in them had seemingly vanished into thin air. I mean, I read the stories myself. After Shelley left, I did my digging, and she was right. It was crazy, and I was a little surprised the story hadn't gotten more attention. I called Shelley back that night and told her I would take her case. I didn't usually travel that far for a job, but the next morning I packed a few things up and left my office in Cincinnati. Hours later, I arrived in Franklin's Green. There was a little crappy motel and I checked in and then headed right for Benson Street. It was smack dab in the middle of a little sleepy neighborhood, lower middle class, mostly ranch style homes. The entrance to Benson Street was completely roped off with yellow police tape stretched between a telephone pole and a stop sign. I parked nearby and decided to canvas the surrounding streets. I knocked on doors, stopped, and chatted with an old man out watering his garden and stuff like that. No one had much for me. Everyone on Benson Street had simply been there one day and gone the next. No one knew why. The people I spoke with were happy to share their theories with me. The street was full of drug addicts who had all gotten high and wandered off. There was a gas leak that got everyone in their sleep, and the gas company removed the bodies to avoid suspicion. Nothing I was told seemed very likely. By the time I had spoken with a number of people, the sun had gone down. I debated going back to the motel and starting the next morning, but I thought I would at least check out Shelley's sister's house. I grabbed my flashlight from my duffel bag in my trunk and ducked under the yellow tape. Shelley's sister was named Mary, and she had been married to a guy named Tom for nearly 40 years. They had two children who were grown and lived out of state. Shelley had told me they were worried about their mother and father as well, and hadn't been able to reach them. Nor had Mary and Tom reached out to them. Mary's house was third on the left, and I did a slow circle around it, shining my flashlight in the dark. I'm not sure what clues I was looking for, but there were none to find. One thing that took me by surprise a bit was just how big the houses on Benson Street were compared to the rest of the neighborhood. I made my way back around to the front of the house and went up onto the porch. I tried the doorknob and was surprised to find the house unlocked. I was sure the cops had been through all of the houses on the street, but as I stepped inside I saw no evidence of this. 
I worked through the ground floor slowly, resisting the urge to turn lights on as I went. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself, and one of these houses with lights burning in every window would be very noticeable to anyone who drove by Benson Street. The home was eerie. It really was as if Mary and her husband had simply vanished. There was a half-empty can of Coke on the kitchen island, and dishes that needed to be washed in the sink. A cloud of flies buzzed here and there, eating the food residue that had been waiting to be cleaned away. A door in the kitchen opened up to a set of stairs leading down. I decided to save the basement for last and went upstairs instead. I worked slowly, just as I had on the ground floor. There were four bedrooms. The master bedroom was the married couple, obviously, and another of the bedrooms was a guest room. The third bedroom had been converted into a home office. The laptop on the desk there was dead. I found the charger and plugged it in, then went into the fourth bedroom, which had a treadmill and an exercise bike. I had saved the master bedroom for last and worked my way through the dresser there, finding nothing but clothes. The closet was another story. There was a shoebox up on the shelf, hidden underneath folded bedsheets and a hand-stitched quilt. I pulled the box down and opened it, surprised to find a knife. The knife was ornate, the blade curved, and the hilt made of bone and wrapped in leather. Etchings had been carved into the bone and I unwrapped the leather to better see. I can only describe the etchings as strange runes, almost like an alphabet. They were very letter-like, but damned if I knew what they meant. I took pictures of the knife and then replaced it in the box and hid it once again. All that was left was the basement, and I was surprised to realize I had been putting it off, even dreading going down there. I had no other choice, though, and headed down into the kitchen with heavy steps, and then down once more. I swept my light across the open basement. It was unfinished, the walls cement, as well as the floor. Small frosted windows sat near the beams of the floor above. The basement had just been used for storage. I found cardboard boxes filled with Christmas decorations and a small wooden chest filled with important papers like birth certificates and old pay stubs. Above me a creak. I froze and turned off my light. A thud. Another creak. Someone was walking on the ground floor. I wrestled with what to do and I could feel my heart thumping wildly in my chest. Did I call out? Admit that I was trespassing? Did I go upstairs and try to sneak out? Did I stay and hope they didn't come down? I crept slowly to the foot of the wooden stairs that I had come down. I had left the basement door open and cursed myself for my stupidity. I listened to the footsteps above me. Sweat stung my eyes and I wiped it away. The footsteps came into the kitchen and I moved away from the bottom of the stairs. I looked for a place to hide and wedged myself in behind a stack of plastic totes along the wall just as I heard footsteps on the stairs. I held my breath. I peeked out but it was so dark down here I couldn't see much more than a dark shape. It paused at the foot of the stairs, and then turned and went back up. I waited for what felt like an eternity, but was probably only ten minutes. I didn't hear any movement upstairs. I left my hiding spot and went to the foot of the stairs. I took them slowly, exited into the kitchen, and then shut the door as quietly as I could. I paused there for a long time, listening. If anyone else was still in the house, they weren't moving. I hurried to the front door and pulled it open. I stepped out onto the porch and pulled the door shut behind me. I rushed off of the porch and into the middle of the street. I turned and looked at the house and felt sheer terror as my eyes swept up to one of the windows that looked out into the street from the master bedroom. Someone was standing there, staring right at me.
the same dark shadow I had seen in the basement. I turned and ran down the street to my car. I rushed to the motel and went inside my room. The locked door wasn't enough. I pushed the heavy circular table that served as an eating area in the small room in front of the door too, and found myself exhausted. I fell into a restless sleep. I dreamed of a dark shape and of that curved blade. When I woke the next morning, I thought about going to the local police and telling them who I was and who had hired me. But in my experience, most cops don't take kindly to private detectives, and I was afraid they'd keep me from Benson Street. So I showered, dressed, and headed back over. I felt a little more comfortable in the daytime. I went back into Mary's house and looked for evidence of someone else having been there the night before, but found none. Then I went back outside and started at the end of the street and tried the front doors as I moved around the cul-de-sac and went up the other side. A lot of doors were locked, but two were unlocked. The houses I could enter were a lot like the ones I had been in the night before. It seemed as if whoever had lived there had just vanished, or up and left without taking anything. In the first house, I found a full set of luggage, and it didn't seem like the overstuffed closet and drawers full of clothes had been touched. No one had packed for a trip. In the other house, I found something rather alarming. It sat right out on a bedside table in the master bedroom. A knife exactly like the one I had found in Mary's home, hidden away. The same bone handle, the same runes carved into it, the same curving blade, sharp as can be. I went back to the middle unlocked house and began to search. It took me a couple of hours, but then I found it, stashed away in a floor vent, an identical knife. I left quickly and went to my car. I found a little diner and stopped for lunch, and sat at the table with my phone, searching online for any sort of information I could find on the knives. I searched for news about cults in the area, and came up with nothing. I had taken pictures of the knives and tried to find anything about the runes, but ran into a dead end there as well. After lunch I went back to Benson Street and stood on the sidewalk. I was fairly sure that if I broke into the locked homes, I would find knives there as well. I walked slowly past the houses and paused at the end of the street. Past the end of the road were woods, mostly evergreens. A dirty little path cut from the end of the street and through the lawns of the two homes in front of me into the trees. I started down the path. It was well-worn and continued well into the woods, curving around trees and overgrown plants. I walked along it for nearly half an hour before I saw it. The church was old and made of wood, squat and slanted. A spire went up over the front double doors, a strange symbol that resembled an inverted cross made of what looked like iron nailed to the front. I went to the building and tried the doors. They opened freely. Surely the police hadn't missed this strange building. Inside were a few rows of pews and an altar at the back of the large open room. A large leather-bound book with yellowing pages that curled at the corners sat open on the altar next to a silver cup stained red inside. I couldn't read the book. It was written in the same strange runes that were etched on the handles of the knives. I took pictures of a few pages and hurried back outside. Standing in the church, I had felt a growing sense of unease, almost like I was being watched. I thought of the shadowy figure that had been watching me from the window of Mary's home and shivered. I went back to Benson Street and rushed to my car. I drove to the safety of my motel and went in and locked the door, barring it once more with the table. I called Shelley and told her about the church. She hadn't ever heard her sister or brother-in-law speak of it. I hung up with her 
and it struck me for the first time that the sisters were named Mary Shelley. One of their parents had a literary sense of humor. I called Mary and Tom's two children next, one after the other, and asked about their parents' religious stances. They told me their parents were Catholic, but not practicing. Church hadn't been a thing in their lives as kids. I sat on the end of the bed and scrolled through the internet, trying to find the strange inverted cross sigil I had seen on the front of the church. It took hours, but eventually, I found it. I clicked on the picture, and it took me to an amateur website that seemed to be all about various demons and hell spawn. It was the symbol of something called the Nameless One, and it was said he would bring his followers great wealth and power in exchange for sacrifices. I thought immediately of how the homes on Benson Street were much bigger than those nearby. I set my phone aside and shivered. The whole thing was freaking me out. I do not scare easily, but that job I had taken was proving to be a strange one, and I couldn't get over the feeling that I was messing with something I shouldn't. When the sun went down I drove to the local bar, a place called Mel's. It was busy and I took a stool at the bar and had a beer. Over the course of a few hours I spoke to a few townspeople about Benson Street. I was truthful with who I was and what I was doing. A lot of people clammed up when I brought up the street. I didn't ask about the church or the symbol I had seen, but I did ask about the houses and how they seemed to be so much more expensive. One old guy gave me something. Everyone on that street was a weirdo, he told me, and we all know it. Wherever they are, it isn't good. Another patron of the bar brought up how people in the area had been going missing regularly for the last few years. Drifters and homeless folk, no one important, no one who got the police involved very much. Back at my motel, I called Mary and Tom's oldest. I asked if they had grown up in the house on Benson Street, and he told me no. His parents had bought it a few years ago after Tom had retired a few years early. I thanked him and hung up. I was asleep when a thump at my door woke me. I went to the peephole and peered out but could see no one. Fear gripped my heart with its icy hand. I went to the window and carefully pulled the blind back at the edge and looked out into the parking lot. A line of four people stood there, right in the middle of the black pavement, staring right at my room. It was dark, and I couldn't quite make out who they were. Man or woman, I couldn't tell. I had no idea of their age. They wore dark clothing, robes of some sort, with the hoods pulled up. As I watched, they turned as a group and walked out of the lot and across the street. I watched them until they faded into the darkness. I didn't sleep the rest of the night. The next morning, I went back to Benson Street. I was drawn to it, or more specifically, to the church in the woods. I hurried down the path and entered that strange building again. Someone else had been there. The book and cup that had been on the altar were gone. I did a more thorough search of the building and found a small trap door just behind the altar. I lifted the hatch open and shone my flashlight into the hole. A rickety wooden ladder led down ten or so feet to a dirt floor. I took a deep breath and started to climb down. There was a tunnel, curving away to the right when I got off the ladder and turned around. I kept my light on and crept forward. It twisted this way and that until it opened up into a large chamber, and I found the people who had lived on Benson Street. They all lay dead on the dirty floor, nude with their arms crossed over their chests. I needed to tell the police. I turned and came face to face with a man in a hooded robe. Intruder, he screamed at me, and I pushed past him and ran. I knew he was chasing me. I could hear this heavy footsteps right behind me. A chill blew through the tunnel as I ran. 
Voices burst forth from nowhere, speaking a language I couldn't understand. I got to the ladder and began to climb. I got to the top and rolled out of the hole and turned and used my foot to slam the door shut. There was no way to latch it. I stood and turned, shocked to find a hundred or more candles had been placed throughout the church, all burning. So too were more robed figures. One came at me as the trap door behind me burst open and my original pursuer came through. I tussled with the new robed figure. He wrapped his arms around me, but I shoved him off into the altar. The candles there shook and then fell. A musty carpet that led from the altar to the front door lit immediately. Soon the room was alive with flame. The robed figures howled and I was forgotten as they attempted to put the fire out. I ran for the door and burst through it and into the woods. It was still morning. The sun hung low in the sky, the light getting cut off by the many trees. I turned and looked at the church. It was burning. No one came out after me. I turned and ran for Benson Street. I didn't stop running until I made it to my car. I drove to the motel and checked out and packed up my things. I didn't call the police until I was an hour away from the town. I told them what I had found and hung up before they could start asking me questions. Then I called Shelley and told her everything I had found. The knives, the church, the robed figures. I could tell she didn't believe me, and she started to cry and curse me out for not giving her something real. I understood, though. I hardly believed the words coming out of my own mouth. In the end, I didn't speak with Shelley again. I didn't go after her for the unpaid balance she owed me. A week or so later at home, I searched the internet for any sort of news story about the church behind Benson Street, but only found one little article that had been written in the local paper about a fire in the woods there. It didn't mention the church. In the three years since then, I've seen robed figures a handful of times. Sometimes I don't trust my own eyes and wonder if I'm hallucinating. I don't think I am. I think the followers of the Nameless One are keeping an eye on me. They never approach me. They never threaten me. But they are there, right? They are watching? I've never told anyone this. But I thought this might be a good time and place to talk about the winter I spent at Green Hill. I was only 20, so about 15 years ago, and I had just dropped out of college. I honestly was never much of a student, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I was just kind of drifting when this great job opportunity sort of just fell into my lap. There's a place called Green Hill in northern North Dakota. It's an awesome state park. It does crazy business during the summer months, and it's absolutely gorgeous. But they have to close in the winter times because the snow gets so bad. We're talking like 10 feet of snow sometimes. But with that much snow, it can cave in the roofs of cabins and other buildings, so they hire four people every year to basically keep knocking the snow off. There are other things you have to do, but snow removal from roofs is the main thing. My uncle had done it a few years back in the day, and he stayed in touch with the guy who put the whole winter program together, and he knew I was hurting for money so he put me in touch with the guy. A few weeks later, I was flying up to North Dakota. The guy who I spoke to was too old to do the job himself anymore, but his right-hand man Jerry picked me up from the airport and drove me to Green Hill. The first snow hadn't come yet, so I got to appreciate just how beautiful the area was. The trees were bare, but I could just imagine how it all looked in greens, or even the orange and yellows of fall. And there were plenty of evergreens too. The whole place was just cool. That first night, the four of us all stayed in the main resort building, 
where Jerry spent his winters. Jerry was like 50, a big guy who liked to work out. And there was Mike, a guy in his 30s who was going through a divorce and had been looking to get away. And lastly, there was Spencer, who would be staying closest to my cabin, so he was going to be the guy I saw the most. Green Hill was a big park, and we each got a cabin, and we were on the hook for, like, a ton of acres. Spence was barely older than me, and we hit it off right away. We all got pretty drunk that night, and so Jerry didn't drive us around to our cabins until the next afternoon, and not the morning as he had planned. A week passed before the first snow, and I spent time four-wheeling around my area, clearing fallen branches from roadways, doing some light upkeep on various buildings, and things like that. But when that snow did come, boy did it come with a vengeance. I woke up one morning to two or three feet of snow. The four-wheeler stayed in the shed, and the snowmobile came out. I went around to the roofs of the buildings I was in charge of and shoveled the snow off, or even used a flamethrower. That was quite the thrill, getting to melt away snow with a big jet of fire. For that next week, it snowed every day and night, and melting or shoveling the snow off of cabins proved to be a full-time job. My cell phone didn't get any service here, but the four of us had radios, so we would chat a bit most nights. Jerry kept reminding of us a rule he had given us on the very first night. When the snow came, no one was to be outside after the sun went down. I thought it was kind of a weird rule and asked him why. The guy took a minute to answer me, but he said it was just easy to get lost in the dark, and with the snow, you would freeze before any of them could come to get you when they realized you were missing. But after two weeks of being completely alone beyond short little chats on the radio, I was going stir-crazy. I radioed Spence and told him that I was going to head over one evening after I got done with my work. He seemed excited to have company. I went over and we drank beer and played cards and listened to some records. We had a good time, and by the time I was leaving his cabin and heading back to mine miles and miles away, it was past midnight. He told me I should stay and leave in the morning, but it was quite a trip, and I was worried about getting to the snow late in the day, so I went ahead and split. It was spooky driving by myself that late for real. An absolutely surreal experience, and I kept letting my mind get away from me. Every shadow I saw was a bear or a wolf, things like that. I took a turn on the trail and my headlight swept over something directly in the middle of the path, and I slowed my snowmobile to a stop. It was a deer, or what was left of it at least. The animal had been torn in half, its blood stained the snow around it. It was snowing, but there was hardly any snow on the corpse, so I know it had been killed recently. I couldn't help but feel as though I was being watched. I freaked and ran for my snowmobile and kept on. When I got to my cabin, I went in and locked the door. The whole two hours back from that deer carcass, I had been sure whatever had killed it was following me. I convinced myself I could hear it crashing through the frozen snow and bushes along the trail. I sat for a long time at one of my windows, staring out into the darkness. I saw nothing, and eventually fell asleep, right there in the chair I had dragged over. I told Spence the next day on the radio about the deer, and he told me he had been finding animals that had been torn apart all around his area. We decided to tell Jerry, but I omitted the fact that I found my deer during the night. He told us we needed to stay away from anything like that, and the bodies wouldn't last long in the wilderness. It wasn't something we needed to worry about. He told us again to make sure we stayed in our cabins at night. Another week passed. We were there for three months, and time was slowing to a crawl. 
I felt lonely and secluded, and I hadn't counted on just how hard it would be not to see people every day. Eventually, none of us could raise Spence on his radio. We had still been talking every night, but I hadn't gone to visit him again. Jerry said he was going to drive over there and asked me to come one morning. He had to go right by my cabin to get to Spence, so I told him I would. We drove our snowmobiles down the trail. We didn't come across the deer carcass I had found. When we got to Spence's cabin, my heart sank. His front door was hanging wide open, and as we went inside, we saw the place was trashed. The kitchen table was turned over, along with a chair. Spence was nowhere to be found. Jerry muttered something under his breath, and I'll never forget it. It sounded like he said, damn it, we had a deal, but I can't be sure. When I asked him what he had said, he told me he was just thinking that Spence had gone stir-crazy. He told me it happened sometimes. People just couldn't handle the seclusion, and they went crazy, and they wandered out into the woods and were never seen again. We checked the shed nearby, and Spencer's snowmobile was still there. If he had left, he had walked. We searched the area, but found no signs of him. Back at my cabin later on in the day, I felt sick to my stomach. I had spoken with Spence just that night. He hadn't seemed crazy. He was making jokes, laughing, all that stuff talking about how much he missed women. It just didn't make sense that he would have gone out into the woods to die. A few nights later, I was woken by a strange sound. I crept to a window and looked out. There was something at the tree line, moving slowly around my cabin. I followed its movement, going from window to window. I could just see a dark shape, hard to make out in the darkness and snow. But whatever it was, it was big, much bigger than a man. I thought it might be a bear, but it was walking upright. I watched it for hours, circling my cabin. It never approached. The next morning I went to look for tracks, but the snow was falling so heavily there were none. After some thought, I called Jerry and told him what I had seen. He told me I was probably just seeing things, but there was something in his voice that alarmed me. He sounded as though he was hiding something. A few mornings later, when I woke up and went out to start my work, I was shocked to find deep marks on my cabin door. I had heard nothing the night before, but it looked like something had come along and tried to get in. Something with big claws had raked through the wood as though it was butter. I called Jerry again, and he told me I had better come to stay with him after I got my work done. He said I would be fine during the daytime hours, but I needed to make sure I was at his place by nightfall. He told me he would tell me everything. I was terrified. Something strange was going on, and I rushed through my work and headed to Jerry. He poured us drinks when I got there and we sat inside while the sun went down. He told me everything. It was so crazy I wouldn't have believed him if Spence hadn't gone missing, and I hadn't seen that shape in the night. He told me there were large creatures in the woods here. They came with the snow and they stayed all winter. They were horrific beasts with claws and teeth, but they were smart, and they had agreed to leave the cabins alone. Anything they found in the woods at night was fair game, but they had stuck by their agreement for nearly a hundred years, at least until Spence. Jerry was worried that one of the best had gone rogue, or maybe they all had. He wondered if we needed to abandon our posts and leave. Something slammed against his door just then. It burst open and I saw the most terrifying creature I have ever seen in my life. It was covered in fur, white like the snow, and it had a snarling mouth lined with razor-sharp teeth. Its eyes were all black, its fingers ending in six-inch claws. Jerry was up in a flash, running for a shotgun that hung on the wall. 
The creature saw him and ran for him, moving impossibly fast. I'm ashamed to say it, but I ran. I ran right out the door. As I dove atop my snowmobile, I heard a gunshot, and then I heard Jerry scream. I turned the machine on and just drove. I don't know where I was going. I just drove along the trail. I never looked back. There was a small town nearby, and that's where I headed, getting there at about two in the morning. Nothing was open save a small hotel. I went in and told the man behind the counter everything. He listened to me, and I could tell as I spoke that he knew of the creatures. He gave me a room for free, and the next morning I left, getting a ride to a small airport a few hours away. Greenhill closed for good that winter, and I've heard that no one goes into those woods anymore. I'm glad about that. Let those things eat deer and not people. I can still remember the day I arrived. The Pacific Northwest, with its towering pines and misty vistas, was a world away from the urban jungle I'd called home for so long. I needed this change, and craved it like a parched man in the desert craves water. I was eager to leave behind the noise, the pollution, the rat race, and dive into a life where nature was my closest neighbor. My new home was a modest cabin, perched on the edge of an expansive forest, miles from the nearest town. It was a charming little place, rustic yet comfortable, surrounded by a world of emerald green that seemed to stretch into eternity. The air was rich with the scent of pine and damp earth, a scent that brought peace to my heart and calm to my restless spirit. As an avid hiker, the allure of the forest was irresistible. It called to me in a way nothing else had ever before. The first time I ventured into it, I felt like an explorer stepping onto uncharted lands. The tall trees seemed to whisper secrets in the wind, and each rustling leaf sounded like an invitation to go further, to get lost in the green labyrinth. I spent those early days mapping out trails, drinking in the beauty around me. Each hike was an adventure, a journey of discovery. I'd climb steep hills, traverse over babbling brooks, and navigate through dense thickets. There was something raw and primal about being in the heart of nature, something that awoke a primitive sense of self within me. One Saturday, about a month after moving in, I decided to venture deeper into the forest than I ever had before. I packed some food, water, a compass, and my trusty old camera. Setting out at dawn, I followed a meandering path that I had never taken. The forest seemed to grow denser, the canopy thicker, blotting out the sunlight and bathing the undergrowth in a cool, ghostly half-light. It was eerie and beautiful all at once. After several hours, I found myself in a remote part of the forest, a place where the trees seemed older, their trunks thicker, their roots gnarled and twisted. It was as if I had wandered into a forgotten realm, a place untouched by human hands. And then I saw it, an unusual clearing that seemed out of place amidst the disorder of the wild. It was an open glade, the grass unusually green, dotted with a circle of stones that looked meticulously arranged. The stones were large, moss-covered, and worn down by time, but they were placed with a precision that belied natural formation. The sight of it sent a chill down my spine. Something about it felt unnatural, out of place, but I shrugged it off, attributing the sensation to my overactive imagination. After all, I was alone in an unfamiliar part of the forest. It was natural to feel a little spooked. So I took a few pictures of the stone circle, promised myself I would return later to investigate further, and continued on my hike. 
Unbeknownst to me, that stone circle would become an obsession, an enigma that would change my life forever. But that's a story for another day. For then, I was just a man in the wilderness, blissfully unaware of the shadows that lurked just out of sight. The days after discovering the stone circle were filled with an undercurrent of fascination, a magnetism that drew my thoughts back to that odd arrangement in the secluded glade. It felt like a puzzle waiting to be solved, an enigma nestled in the heart of the forest. Despite the strange unease I had initially felt, my curiosity outweighed my apprehension. One afternoon, I decided to return to the glade. I followed the same meandering trail I had taken before, but this time, every rustling leaf and every creaking branch seemed to resonate with an undertone of mystery. The forest felt different, as if it was hiding a secret, and I was the intruder seeking to unveil it. When I finally reached the glade, the sight of the stone circle sent a shiver down my spine. I was filled with a peculiar sense of intrusion, as though I had stepped into a sacred, forbidden place. The air seemed to thrum with a silent energy, the stones standing sentinel-like, etched against the green canvas of the clearing. I stood at the edge, gazing at the circle, allowing my gaze to trace the rough edges of each stone. They were silent storytellers, relics of a time unknown, their tales lost to the ages. I felt a strange compulsion to step into the circle, to feel the space within. It was an irrational desire, yet powerful, pulling at me like a relentless tide. Against my better judgment, I stepped forward. The moment my boot crossed the invisible boundary of the circle, a sudden icy gust of wind swept through the clearing, rustling the leaves and making the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. It was an odd reaction to what could have been nothing more than a sudden weather change, but it shook me. The air within the circle felt different, charged with a strange energy. There was a palpable stillness, as if time itself was holding its breath. The outside world seemed distant, the rustling trees and chirping birds sounding muffled, as though I was underwater. It was eerie, but there was a certain tranquility to it as well. I sat down in the middle of the circle, letting the odd sensations wash over me. I spent a few minutes in silence, soaking in the uncanny atmosphere, before the cold seeped through my jacket and forced me to retreat. Walking back home, my mind was a whirlpool of thoughts and theories. I tried to rationalize my experiences, attributing them to my overactive imagination. After all, it was just a stone circle in a forest clearing. There was nothing supernatural about it. But despite my rational explanations, I couldn't shake off the peculiar feelings. That evening, as I sat by the fireplace, flicking through the pictures I had taken, I couldn't help but feel a certain apprehension creep into my mind. Little did I know then that my encounter with the stone circle was just the beginning, a prelude to a series of events that would shatter the peaceful tranquility of my forest retreat. That night, as I crawled into bed, the image of the stone circle was etched into my mind's eye. The silent stones, the eerie tranquility within their boundary, the peculiar chill, all of it felt like a surreal dream. I closed my eyes hoping for a peaceful sleep, but sleep that night was anything but peaceful. I was jolted awake by a vivid nightmare. I was back in the forest, under the cover of a moonless night. The trees were menacing silhouettes against the dark sky their branches reaching out like skeletal fingers. The silence was deafening, a hollow emptiness that seemed to seep into my bones. In my dream, I found myself standing at the edge of the stone circle, its outline barely visible in the dim light. 
There was an oppressive heaviness in the air, a fear that clung to me like a second skin. Despite the fear, I felt myself being drawn towards the circle, each step heavier than the last. As I stepped into the circle, the wind picked up, whipping around me in a furious gust. And then, from the depths of the forest, there emerged a low, rumbling growl. It was an inhuman sound, something primal and terrifying. The ground beneath me began to shake, the stones vibrating with an unearthly energy. I woke up with a start, my heart pounding in my chest. The room was dark, the only sound the quiet hum of the wind outside. I was drenched in cold sweat, my breath coming out in ragged gasps. It took me a few minutes to realize that it was just a dream, a nightmarish figment of my imagination. As I lay in bed, staring at the shadowy ceiling, I tried to shake off the remnants of the dream. I told myself it was the product of my fascination with the stone circle, the strange sensations I had felt within it. It was just a dream, nothing more. But over the next few nights the dream returned, each time more vivid and terrifying. The stone circle, the growling sound, the vibrating earth. It was as if my subconscious was trapped in a terrifying loop. Despite my attempts to dismiss the dreams as mere flights of fancy, I couldn't shake off the unease that had settled in my heart. My days were filled with trepidation, my nights fraught with nightmares. I started to dread the coming of night, fear gnawing at the edges of my mind. In the silence of my cabin, the line between the tranquility I had sought and the isolation I felt started to blur. I was far from the city, from the comfort of human presence, living on the edge of an ancient forest that held a stone circle that invaded my dreams. But I refused to succumb to fear. I decided to face it, to confront whatever it was that was turning my dreams into nightmares. I was resolved to unravel the mystery of the stone circle, oblivious to the fact that I was standing on the precipice of an abyss I could not yet see. Despite the terror that plagued my nights, the allure of the forest remained irresistible. There was a strange dichotomy between the fear that gripped me in the darkness and the peace I found in the daylight. Yet, as I ventured deeper into the woods, I felt the shadow of my nightmares stretch into the waking hours. One afternoon, while on a solitary hike, I noticed something that set my heart pounding. Just a little distance off the beaten path, partially hidden by a cluster of ferns, I spotted a figure. It was nothing more than a shadow, an aberration in the sunlight filtering through the dense canopy above. Yet it was distinctly human in shape. I squinted, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. The figure didn't move. It simply stood there, a silhouette against the trees. I called out, but there was no response, just the echo of my voice bouncing off the trees. My heart raced the eerie sensation from the glade returning tenfold. Fighting the surge of fear, I ventured closer. But as I approached, the figure seemed to dissipate, the shadow melting into the dappled sunlight, leaving no trace behind. I stood there, in the midst of the forest, a chill running down my spine. I told myself it was just a trick of the light, an optical illusion. But the encounter rattled me. The serenity I usually found in the forest was replaced by a sense of unease. The trees seemed to loom a little taller, the shadows a bit darker. The line between my dreams and reality was beginning to blur. Over the next few days, the shadowy figure began to appear more frequently. Each sighting was fleeting, just a momentary glimpse before it disappeared. It seemed to lurk at the edge of my vision, a specter in the heart of the forest. The feeling of being watched, of being followed, crept into my hikes. 
I would often spin around, expecting to see someone behind me, but I would find nothing. Nothing but the rustling leaves and the quiet murmur of the forest. Even in the safety of my cabin, I couldn't shake the feeling of unease. Every creak of the wooden floorboards, every rustle of the wind against the windows, set me on edge. My haven in the wilderness was becoming a prison, the solitude morphing into isolation. The tranquility of the forest had turned into an oppressive silence, the peace into paranoia. What was once my escape was now the source of my fear, but I wasn't ready to admit defeat. The rational part of me still clung to the belief that it was all in my head, a figment of my overactive imagination. With every ounce of courage I had left, I decided to fight the fear, to confront the shadowy figure that haunted my dreams and my waking hours. I was resolved to reclaim the peace I had sought in the wilderness, unaware of the darkness that lurked just out of sight. Over the course of the following week, I threw myself into a self-styled investigation. Every morning, with an undeterred resolve, I would step into the forest, determined to face the specter that had been haunting my days and nights. My heart pounded each time I crossed the boundary of the stone circle, the memories of my nightmares fresh in my mind. I examined the stones in minute detail, looking for any sign, any hint of what could be causing the strange occurrences. Days turned into a blur of fear and fascination as I ventured deeper and deeper into the forest, my curiosity fueled by each fleeting encounter with the shadowy figure. I would find myself standing at the spot where I had seen it, staring at the empty space, the chilling echoes of my dreams whispering in the back of my mind. On one of these treks, I stumbled upon an old, weathered journal partially buried under a pile of leaves near the stone circle. The leather-bound book was falling apart, its pages yellowed and brittle with age. The entries were in an old-fashioned script, the ink faded, but still legible. As I flipped through the pages, I realized that the journal belonged to a settler who had lived in this region over a hundred years ago. His entries spoke of a peaceful life in the heart of nature, but as I delved deeper into his writings, a familiar dread began to creep into his words. The settler had started seeing a shadowy figure in the forest. He wrote of an inexplicable fear, of nightmares that were hauntingly similar to mine. The parallels sent a shiver down my spine. His experiences mirrored my own, a chilling echo across the ages. His last entry was the most disturbing. It spoke of a decision to face his fears, to confront the shadowy figure, just as I had resolved to do. The entry ended abruptly, the narrative cut off, leaving me with a lingering sense of dread. The discovery of the journal was unsettling. The parallels were too striking to be mere coincidence. The realization that I was not the first to experience these events, that they had happened before, made my situation even more terrifying. In the silence of the forest, with the stone circle looming ominously in the background, I felt a wave of fear wash over me but it was accompanied by a strange sense of determination. The shadowy figure, the nightmares, the stone circle, and now the settler's journal, they were all pieces of a puzzle. A puzzle that I was determined to solve. Armed with the journal, I decided to dig deeper, to unearth the truth hidden in the heart of the forest. I had no idea where this path would lead me, no inkling of the dark secrets I was about to unravel. But one thing was clear, I was in too deep to turn back now. The discovery of the journal sparked an obsessive quest for answers. I spent countless hours poring over the settler's entries, attempting to decipher his cryptic words. The tales of his encounters with the shadowy figure and his descriptions of nightmarish dreams felt chillingly familiar. 
creating a tapestry of fear and intrigue that echoed my own experiences. Days melted into nights as I lost myself in the settler's world. His narrative painted a vivid picture of the forest in a time long past, weaving tales of indigenous tribes, forgotten legends, and an omnipresent, inexplicable fear. One entry spoke of a local legend that the settler had heard from an elder of a nearby tribe. It was a story about a guardian spirit, a spectral figure who watched over the forest, bound by an ancient curse to the stone circle. The elder warned the settler about venturing too close to the stone circle. He claimed that those who dared to intrude upon the spirit's domain would be haunted by nightmares, visited by the spirit itself, their peace shattered until they respected its boundaries. The settler dismissed the elder's warnings, attributing them to superstitions. But as his entries progressed, it was clear that the terror he experienced mirrored the elder's ominous warnings. Just like me, he had started to see a shadowy figure in the forest. His dreams turned into nightmares, his peace replaced by fear. The parallels between the settler's experiences and my own were impossible to ignore. I was living his nightmare, walking in his footsteps. His warnings were now mine to heed, and just like him, I had dismissed them, attributing my experiences to mere figments of my imagination. But the tangible evidence of the journal, the eerie resemblance of our experiences, and the unsettling encounters with the shadowy figure gave credence to the tribal legend. The more I delved into his entries, the more I began to entertain the possibility of a supernatural explanation. In a world ruled by logic, the idea of a cursed stone circle and a guardian spirit seemed fantastical. But the fear that gripped me, the experiences that invaded my dreams, and the unsettling encounters in the forest were far too real. Deciding to follow the breadcrumb trail of the settlers' experiences, I ventured into the nearby town, seeking to find any remnants of the indigenous tribe the settler had mentioned. My hope was to find someone who could shed light on the legend, provide some context, and some understanding of what I was experiencing. As I set foot in the town, the sense of isolation that had become my constant companion began to fade. But my journey into the past had only just begun. I was stepping into a world that had been forgotten by time, into tales that had been lost in the annals of history. Little did I know the gravity of the truths I was about to uncover. The small town was quaint, a picture-perfect portrait of rustic simplicity. I found my way to the local museum, hoping it would be a reservoir of the area's history. The museum was housed in a charming old building that bore the marks of time, its wooden panels whispering tales of the past. Inside, the museum held a captivating collection of artifacts from the town's early settlers, indigenous tribes, and the vast wilderness beyond. I was particularly interested in anything related to the local tribes, hoping to find references to the guardian spirit mentioned in the settler's journal. There I met Rebecca, a tribal historian who was well versed in the lore of the indigenous people. When I mentioned the guardian spirit and the stone circle, her eyes widened. She confirmed that it was a legend passed down through generations. According to tribal lore, the spirit was once a tribal chief, who had been cursed by a rival shaman, forever bound to protect the forest and the stone circle. As she relayed the legend, her words echoed the tale the settler had dismissed as mere superstition. The chills that ran down my spine were a stark reminder that my experiences were aligning far too closely with the legend. Rebecca also introduced me to a concept that was foreign to my urban mind. The forest, to the tribe, 
was not merely a collection of trees, but a living entity, its spirit woven into the very fabric of their existence. The guardian spirit, the stone circle, and the forest were interconnected and inseparable. I left the museum with more questions than answers, my mind spinning with the weight of the stories Rebecca had shared. I wandered aimlessly around the town, the tribal lore echoing in my head, the connection between the legend, the settlers' experiences, and my own encounters becoming ominously clear. The sun began to set, casting long shadows through the sleepy town. The familiar dread began to creep in as the line between day and night blurred. The fear that I had come to associate with the forest began to seep into the streets of the town, the shadowy figure never far from my thoughts. That night, as I lay in the comfort of a small town inn, my dreams were once again invaded by the stone circle and the shadowy figure. But this time, there was an addition. I saw the face of a tribal chief, his expression stoic, his eyes reflecting an age-old sorrow. I awoke with a start, my heart pounding, the chief's face etched in my memory. I could no longer deny the truth that was staring me in the face. I was not merely living in the shadow of a forgotten legend, but I was inexplicably entwined in its narrative. The coming days held the promise of more revelations, and despite the fear that gripped me, I was determined to face it. I was a part of this story now, and I was resolved to see it through, unaware of how this encounter with the past would change me forever. Armed with the knowledge imparted by Rebecca, I made my way back to the cabin, a newfound determination in my stride. The pieces of the puzzle were slowly falling into place. The forest, the shadowy figure, the stone circle, and the tribal legend were interconnected, their narratives woven into a chilling tapestry. I found myself standing at the edge of the stone circle. The sun was beginning to set, the fading light casting an eerie glow on the ancient stones. The sense of foreboding was palpable, a silent whisper in the wind that rustled the leaves overhead. With the tribal chief's face etched in my mind, I stepped into the circle, the tales from the settler's journal and Rebecca's words reverberating in my head. The shadowy figure appeared at the edge of my vision, its presence no longer as terrifying as it once was. In a voice barely above a whisper, I addressed the figure, acknowledging it as the tribal chief the guardian spirit bound by an ancient curse. As the words left my lips, the air around me grew still. The shadowy figure seemed to solidify, taking the shape of the tribal chief from my dreams. I spoke of respect for the forest, the tribe, and the guardian spirit's curse. I apologized for my intrusion, for the disrespect I had shown by dismissing the experiences and the fear as figments of my imagination. The shadowy figure stood silent, its form wavering in the dimming light. A sense of understanding seemed to pass between us, a silent acceptance of my realization and remorse. As I finished speaking, the figure began to dissolve into the shadows, leaving behind an eerie silence. The encounter left me shaken but strangely relieved. The fear that had gripped me for weeks had lessened. The forest seemed less menacing, the trees no longer loomed over me and the stone circle appeared less ominous in the dying light. That night, for the first time in weeks, my dreams were free of the shadowy figure and the stone circle. I slept peacefully, the whispers of the forest fading into a lullaby that lulled me into a deep sleep. As dawn broke, I woke up to the peaceful sounds of the forest, the memories of the previous day echoing in my mind, the realization of the truth 
the encounter with the guardian spirit, and the peace that followed was an experience that was hard to digest. I spent the day reflecting on my experiences, the tales from the journal, and the tribal legend. It was a journey that I hadn't expected when I decided to escape to the solitude of the forest, a journey that took me on a path of self-discovery, respect for ancient lore, and an understanding of fear. As the sun set, I couldn't help but feel a sense of tranquility. The forest, the stone circle, and the shadowy figure no longer held the same terror for me. I had learned to respect their presence, to understand their significance. I had begun this journey seeking solace in the heart of nature. Little did I know that it would lead me down a path of ancient legends, fear, and ultimately, a revelation that changed my perspective forever. In the days that followed, my existence in the forest took on a new rhythm. I had learned to coexist with the guardian spirit and the stone circle, my respect for the forest and its ancient lore growing with each passing day. I found myself spending more time outside, exploring the forest with a renewed sense of awe. The towering trees, the rustling leaves, the melodious call of birds, everything was touched with an air of reverence. Each element was a testament to the spirit that watched over it, an echo of the tribal chief's unending vigil. Despite the tranquility, the presence of the guardian spirit was always palpable, a silent shadow that followed my every step. It was a constant reminder of the tribal legend, a sobering testament to the responsibility we held towards nature and its ancient lore. I continued to delve deeper into the settler's journal, finding solace and understanding in his experiences that mirrored my own. His tales of fear, confusion, and finally acceptance resonated with me, creating an unexpected bond across the ages. His narrative, though eerie, was a guiding light in my journey of understanding and respect. The forest, once a place of terror, had become a refuge, a realm of ancient legends and timeless wisdom. The shadowy figure, once a source of nightmares, was now a symbol of protection, a testament to the tribal chief's eternal watch. The stone circle, once an ominous symbol, was now a sacred space, a beacon of the forest's ancient lore. Each day I made it a point to visit the stone circle, a routine born out of respect and acknowledgement for the guardian spirit. Each visit was a silent pledge, a promise to honor the forest, its spirit, and the ancient lore that bound them. One day as I stood within the stone circle, I felt an inexplicable urge to touch one of the ancient stones. As my hand made contact with the weathered surface, a sudden wave of images flooded my mind. I saw the tribal chief, his face etched with a solemn resolve as he accepted the shaman's curse. I saw the transformation, his form shifting into a shadowy figure. I saw the generations of settlers and tribes, each living and breathing under his watchful gaze. And then I saw myself, my fear, my realization, and finally, my acceptance. As quickly as the visions came, they vanished, leaving me reeling. The stone circle seemed to hum with an ancient energy, the forest whispering tales of the guardian spirit. That night, my dreams were filled with visions of the tribal chief, the forest, and the stone circle. I saw the past, the present, and glimpses of a future where the forest continued to flourish under the guardian spirit's watch. Waking up the next morning, the weight of the vision still lingering in my mind, I realized that I was not just living with the legend, I was a part of it. The forest, the stone circle, and the guardian spirit had become an intrinsic part of my existence, 
their stories entwined with mine in a timeless narrative of respect and understanding. Living amongst the echoes of the forest's ancient lore became a lifestyle. I found a peculiar sense of harmony, like I was a piece of a larger puzzle, perfectly fitting within the eons-old narrative of the forest. My days were spent studying the settler's journal, exploring the forest, and paying respects at the stone circle. Weeks turned into months, and the forest became my home. It sounds a soothing symphony that lulled me to sleep each night. The guardian spirit's presence was a comforting constant, its silhouette a familiar sight in the forest's shadowy depths. One evening, as I made my customary visit to the stone circle, I noticed a small ornate object, half buried in the soft soil near one of the stones. As I carefully unearthed it, I realized it was an ancient tribal talisman made of bone and feather, intricately decorated with symbols that resonated with the tribe's culture. Holding the talisman, a sense of warmth washed over me, as if the guardian spirit was bestowing its approval. That night, I dreamed of the tribal chief, his figure less shadowy, his features more distinct. He held an identical talisman, passing it to me with a solemn nod, his eyes reflecting an unspoken gratitude. Upon waking, I held the talisman tighter, a physical reminder of the spectral guardian and the bond we had formed. The dreams, the visions, and now the talisman, they were all affirmations of my acceptance by the guardian spirit. I was no longer a stranger in the forest but a custodian of its ancient lore, blessed by the tribal chief himself. The talisman brought an unprecedented sense of calm, further fortifying my resolve to protect and respect the forest and its guardian spirit. Each day was a step deeper into the mystery that was the spirit of the forest, each night a closer understanding of the tribal chief's endless vigil. Word of the talisman and my experiences reached Rebecca in town, and she visited the cabin, her curiosity piqued. As she held the talisman, her eyes widened in surprise and respect. She explained that the talisman was a symbol of the tribal chief's favor, a token of protection and guidance. As I shared my experiences with Rebecca, from the initial fear to the eventual understanding and the spirit's favor, her eyes welled up. She spoke of the tribe's ancestors, their respect for the guardian spirit, and how my experiences and understanding resonated with the tribe's long-held beliefs. Rebecca's visit marked a turning point, a confirmation of my place within the forest's ancient narrative. The forest was not just a place I lived in, it was a part of me, its whispers echoing in my heart, its spirit a part of my existence. The man who had arrived in the Pacific Northwest months ago was no more. In his place stood a protector, a custodian of the forest's lore, living under the watchful gaze of the guardian spirit, carrying forward a legacy that was centuries old. From then on, each day in the forest became a silent prayer, a humble pledge to protect and honor the spirit of the tribal chief, the guardian of the forest, the silhouette in the shadows. Time continued to pass, blurring the line between days and nights, seasons changing like the forest's constant breathing rhythm. I lived amongst the trees, nurtured by their ancient wisdom, guided by the guardian spirit's silent vigilance. The fear that had once consumed me was now a distant memory, replaced by reverence and a profound sense of responsibility. Word of my experiences had spread throughout the town, and I found myself becoming a bridge of sorts. People would come seeking guidance, bringing their fears and curiosities about the forest, the guardian spirit, and the stone circle. They came to learn, 
to understand and to pay their respects, their skepticism slowly giving way to awe and understanding. I shared the tribal chief's tale, the ancient lore, and my own journey from fear to acceptance. Each time I shared the story, I felt the tribal chief's approval, his presence a constant reassurance that I was on the right path. This newfound role brought me closer to the community. Rebecca and I often collaborated to teach the town's younger generations about the forest's importance and the guardian spirit's role in protecting it. The children listened with wide eyes, their minds fertile ground for the seeds of respect and understanding. One day, as I stood in the heart of the stone circle, I realized that the narrative had come full circle. I was no longer just a participant in the tribal legend. I was a storyteller, a custodian of the lore, a link between the past and the present. I was carrying forward a legacy, revitalizing a bond that had almost been forgotten. The tribal chief's face appeared in my mind, his solemn gaze filled with approval. It was a silent affirmation, a spectral nod that acknowledged my role in preserving the lore. Holding the talisman close, I made a silent vow to uphold this legacy, to respect the forest and its spirit, and to continue the tribal chief's eternal vigil in my own way. With each passing day, the forest's ancient narrative was reborn in the hearts of the town's people. The fear was replaced with understanding, the skepticism with respect. The forest, the stone circle, and the guardian spirit were no longer tales of terror, but revered elements of the town's cultural heritage. My cabin was no longer a solitary outpost, but a haven of learning and respect for the forest's spirit. The stone circle, once an ominous presence, was now a sacred place where people came to connect with the guardian spirit. The shadowy figure, once a source of nightmares, was now a symbol of protection, a revered entity in the town's collective consciousness. As I laid my head down each night, lulled to sleep by the forest's whispers, I couldn't help but feel an immense sense of fulfillment. I had arrived in the forest seeking solitude and peace. Instead, I had found a purpose, a legacy to carry forward. The forest, its guardian spirit, and the stone circle were no longer elements of an ancient legend, but an integral part of my life. I was a part of the forest, its whispers echoing in my soul, its spirit a guiding light in my existence. I was living the legend, upholding a legacy that was centuries old, carrying forward a narrative that would resonate through the ages. Several years passed. The once terrifying forest, the stone circle, and the shadowy guardian spirit had become essential facets of the town's identity. My cabin, the forest, and the stone circle had turned into places of pilgrimage, sites of learning and respect for the guardian spirit's tale and the forest's ancient lore. The town's inhabitants respected the forest, honoring the guardian spirit's watch, and passed down the tales to their children, the lore living on in the hearts of the new generation. A bond had been rekindled between the community and the forest, the ancient lore serving as a bridge uniting past, present, and the future. I continued to live within the forest's heart, my life a testament to the guardian spirit's tale. The shadowy figure, the tribal chief's spectral form, remained a constant presence, a companion in my solitary existence, a guide on my path of understanding and respect. As years turned into decades, I felt my strength waning. Time, the one constant in this ever-changing world, was catching up to me. But the fear of the end was overshadowed by a sense of fulfillment. I had lived a life intertwined with the forest, had been a part of a timeless narrative, 
and had ensured that the tale of the guardian spirit was carried forward. On a quiet, starlit night, I found myself standing within the stone circle for what I knew would be the last time. Holding the talisman close, I felt the guardian spirit's presence, stronger than ever. I thanked it for the guidance, the wisdom, and for allowing me to be a part of its narrative. As the words left my lips, a sense of serenity washed over me, the spectral figure seemingly bowing in acknowledgement. With my last strength, I returned to my cabin. I could feel the forest's whispers growing softer, the guardian spirit's presence a comforting shadow in the corner of my vision. Laying down for the last time, I knew that my time had come. As my eyelids grew heavy, I was not filled with dread, but a sense of completion. I had been a part of a legacy, had lived a life of understanding and respect, and had ensured the tale of the guardian spirit was not forgotten. My role in this narrative was coming to an end, but the story would live on. I closed my eyes, a faint smile gracing my lips. The last sound I heard was the forest's whisper, a lullaby carried on the wind, a final farewell from the guardian spirit. And in that moment, I knew my spirit would join the spectral figure, forever entwined with the forest's essence, echoing in the wind, carried forward in the whispers of the ancient lore. The legacy of the guardian spirit would live on, the tale told and retold, generation after generation. And as part of this timeless narrative, I too would continue to exist. Not as a man who sought solace in the heart of the forest, but as a part of the legend that bound the forest, the stone circle and the guardian spirit, a legacy reborn. As the final breath left my body, I felt a spectral presence envelop me, the guardian spirit welcoming me into its fold. My last thought was a silent prayer, a pledge echoing in the forest's heart. The guardian's legacy would live on, whispered on the wind, echoed in the rustling leaves, carried forward by the ones who dared to listen, understand, and respect. A couple of years ago, during the summer after my junior year of high school, my friends went to the beach to see the 4th of July fireworks. A bit of background information. I lived a county away from my friends and wasn't familiar with the area around that beach. And only one friend, Shelby, lived anywhere near the beach. The others lived much further inland. None of us could drive, so we walked several miles to the town beach from Shelby's house before the fireworks and we're making our way back in the late evening around 10 o'clock. There's a certain distance from the beach where the crowd from the fireworks always disperses as they make their way down side streets, at around the point where the major shops in the town are, but we had to keep following the straight road through the center of the town to get back to Shelby's house. The streets are always mostly empty at that point, with only a few stragglers and the occasional cop at a very busy intersection. There were four of us, Shelby, Amber, Hannah, and myself. Walking in rows of two with our arms linked together, we had had a pretty good time and were still feeling kind of giddy and goofy. Hannah was my partner, and Shelby and Amber were walking behind us. We were on a bit of a stretch of road with no side streets with a bunch of smaller shops, fast food joints, gas stations, etc., where everything was closed due to the holiday and the late hour. There was a group of a few men, around their late 20s or early 30s, standing on the sidewalk outside an empty gas station. They didn't move to get off the path when they saw us walking toward them, which I thought was odd, but it was a holiday, and they were pretty obviously drunk, 
so we stepped slightly into the street to walk around them. One man grabbed Hannah's arm while we were trying to pass by and asked if she had a cigarette on her. None of my friends smoked at the time, so we very honestly said no, and continued to walk once Hannah pulled her arm away. The man was tall and fairly well-built, and were all pretty short, so we were a little startled, but we didn't think much of it as we walked down the street. We even made a few jokey comments about it when we were far enough away from the station. Several minutes later, Amber and Shelby fell a bit behind because one of the crappy flip-flops Amber was wearing slipped off her foot. Hannah and I didn't notice and kept walking and the next thing we knew, Shelby and Amber were leaning over our shoulders and whispering that the man from the station who tried to ask Hannah for a cigarette was following us a few yards back, without any of his friends in tow. We were all a little freaked out at this point, but we decided that it was possible that he just happened to be going in the same direction, so we picked up the pace and continued down the street. At this point, there were intersections that start appearing every few blocks or so, so we switched to the other side of the street at one and kept going. We thought that we probably had nothing to worry about anymore until Amber looked over her shoulder at the next intersection and saw the guy on the same side of the street as us again. We switched once more, and he switched with us, but the third time we switched the man didn't. Instead, he kept walking on the other side of the street. A bit after the intersection, a big commercial truck was parked on our side that blocked the view of most of the street in front of us. Something didn't feel right to me, so I made everyone hang back a few seconds, and we stopped a couple of yards away from the truck. Lo and behold, the gas station guy crossed in front of the truck and headed down the side street next to it that was between two shops that were already closed for the evening. Shelby started swearing, and we turned around and ran back to the intersection and down the street that intersected the street we had been walking on. We were only an empty train parking lot away from Shelby's house then, so we kept running full tilt down the street and through the lot, as she explained that the side street he walked into wasn't a real street, just a dead-end alley between two restaurants. Nobody familiar with the area would walk down there on purpose, but it would be the perfect place to go if you wanted to get the jump on somebody walking by. So, creepy gas station guy who followed four teenagers on foot for almost a mile? Let's not meet. The soft purring of our car faded into a distant whisper as we drove through the sprawling countryside. The endless stretches of green fields, flecked with spots of golden sunlight, made for a soothing sight. Next to me, Amy was engrossed in a guidebook, her brows knitted in concentration. Harper's Creek, she mused, pointing at a vibrant photograph of a charming little town. It looks like something out of a fairy tale, doesn't it, Michael? I nodded, my eyes still on the road, but my mind lost in her words. Harper's Creek, the small town known for its grand Fourth of July celebrations. The quaint streets, historic houses, and hospitable locales made it a perfect retreat for city folks like us, longing for a break from our demanding lives in New York. As we rolled into the town, we were greeted by a vibrant display of patriotic spirit. Red, white, and blue fluttered from every corner, and the cheerful chatter of people preparing for the upcoming festivities filled the air. We checked into a cozy inn, nestled between two century-old maple trees. The innkeeper, Mrs. Blanchard, was a pleasant woman with a hearty laugh and a warm smile. After showing us to our room, she regaled us with tales of past Independence Day celebrations 
that made Amy's eyes sparkle with anticipation. Later, we took a stroll down the town's main street, greeting the locals and receiving hearty waves and friendly smiles in return. Their welcoming nature stirred a sense of belonging within us that the impersonal cityscape of New York rarely offered. But the idyllic charm of Harper's Creek held a distinct allure, a kind of magic that hung in the air, filling the spaces between the cobblestone streets and historic houses. As Amy and I navigated the town, it felt like we were stepping back in time. We wound up at a local diner, indulging in the best apple pie we'd ever tasted. As we laughed and shared stories, we felt a warmth spread through us, one that wasn't entirely due to the pie. It was the comforting sense of being on a long-deserved vacation, finally away from the skyscrapers and traffic jams, emails, and conference calls. As the evening set in, Harper's Creek illuminated in a soft glow. The town was coming alive with the enchanting energy of the upcoming celebrations. We walked hand in hand, the town's infectious cheerfulness seeping into us, filling us with an indescribable joy. Returning to our inn, we found our room filled with the sweet scent of summer. Through the window, the moon cast long, silvery shadows, creating an intricate lacework on the floor. It felt like we were wrapped up in a bubble of serenity, the chaos of our city life forgotten. In that peaceful quiet, we drifted off to sleep, comforted by the rhythmic symphony of nature. Little did we know that our perfect retreat would soon turn into a hide-and-seek that neither of us had signed up for. That night, under the guise of the star-studded sky, and amidst the cheerful hum of Harper's Creek, a stranger's eyes were already on us, waiting for the sun to rise on the 4th of July. We woke up to a beautiful sunny morning, the chirping of birds creating a sweet symphony. The excitement of the day ahead made me giddy. I looked over at Amy, her face glowing with anticipation. The day started with the inaugural parade, the streets thrumming with life as the entire town came together. The sight of children waving their little flags, their faces painted with patriotic colors, brought an infectious smile to our faces. As we joined the cheerful crowd, my eyes were drawn to a man standing at the fringe of the parade. He was wearing a dark suit and a wide-brimmed hat that obscured most of his face, his posture stiff and out of place among the merriment. I nudged Amy, subtly gesturing toward the man. She gave him a cursory glance and then laughed it off. Oh, come on, Michael. Stop being such a mystery novel buff. This is Harper's Creek, not a Sherlock Holmes story. Despite her words, I couldn't help but feel a strange unease. The man's presence felt intrusive, a stark contrast to the jovial mood around us. It wasn't so much his attire, but the way he stood, like a shadow that didn't quite belong, watching with an unreadable gaze. As the day progressed, I couldn't get rid of the feeling of being watched. Every time we moved to a different event, a pie-eating contest, a horseshoe toss, the stranger was always there. He never participated, never interacted. He simply watched, always maintaining a distance, but with a presence that seemed to permeate the crowd. At times, I would catch a glimpse of him, the wide-brimmed hat providing a frustrating barrier, never revealing more than a silhouette. Yet, the sense of familiarity, of recognition gnawed at me, making me question whether our paths had crossed before. That night, as Amy and I lay in bed, the day's events replaying in my mind, I couldn't help but voice my concerns. Amy, I began, that man, he was everywhere we went today. Didn't that seem strange to you? Amy turned to look at me, her expression softening. 
Michael, we're in a small town. It's natural to run into the same people at different places. And about him watching us, you're just imagining things. We're new here. Everyone is curious about us. Despite her soothing words, sleep eluded me. I couldn't help but feel the piercing gaze of the stranger, an unwelcome sensation that crept over me even in the safety of our room. Amy was fast asleep next to me, her peaceful expression a stark contrast to my disturbed thoughts. A strange chill ran down my spine, the thrill of the day now replaced by a creeping sense of dread. I kept trying to convince myself that Amy was right. We were in a small town. It was natural to bump into the same people. And perhaps my fondness for thrillers was making me imagine things. But in the silent darkness, the stranger in the wide-brimmed hat seemed to grow more ominous, casting a long, unsettling shadow that seemed to stretch into the upcoming days of our vacation. In the clear light of the next day, my fears from the night before seemed silly. The warm morning sun washed away my concerns, leaving me eager to dive into the day's festivities. Yet, a tiny knot of unease tugged at my insides. Amy was as excited as ever, her spirit untouched by my paranoia. We spent our morning strolling through the local farmer's market, trying exotic cheeses and laughing over Amy's haggling skills. But even amid the joyous bustle, I felt the feeling of being watched. Sure enough, as I scanned the crowd, I spotted the stranger. He was standing on the other side of the market, his gaze fixed on us, the wide-brimmed hat obscuring his face, making him an enigma I desperately wanted to solve. Every time our paths crossed, a chill ran down my spine. The stranger, like a phantom, appeared wherever we went. At the pie-baking contest, he was there. During the square dance, he was there. The constant undercurrent of his presence was turning our cheerful vacation into a nerve-wracking ordeal. When I shared my growing anxiety with Amy, she laughed it off again, but this time her laughter didn't reach her eyes. Michael, you're letting your imagination run wild, she said. Maybe he's a tourist like us, enjoying the celebrations. But I knew there was something about him that didn't quite fit the tourist mold. The way he carried himself, the perpetual air of mystery around him, it didn't sit right with me. That evening, as the sun set and the town prepared for the nightly bonfire, we decided to go for a walk by the creek. The tranquil water and the rustling leaves should have been calming, but I felt my heart racing as I spotted the familiar wide-brimmed hat in the distance. Under the canopy of the twilight sky, his silhouette appeared more menacing, my mind filled with images of dark crime novels, sending a shiver down my spine. Amy, sensing my tension, squeezed my hand tighter, her reassurances growing less confident. The carefree vacation we'd envisioned was morphing into an unsettling game of cat and mouse. My every step was shadowed by the stranger's unyielding gaze, transforming the charming town of Harper's Creek into a labyrinth I was desperately trying to navigate. That night, as I lay in bed, the moonlight casting ghostly shapes on the wall, I couldn't help but stare at the window, half expecting to see the wide-brimmed hat appear. Every rustle of the wind, Every creak of the old inn seemed to echo the stranger's eerie presence. While Amy found solace in sleep, I was trapped in my thoughts, grappling with the unsettling feeling that we were not alone. The memory of the stranger's constant gaze was like a nightmare that wouldn't fade, a constant reminder that our dream vacation had taken a dark, unexpected turn. The much-awaited evening of the 4th of July was upon us. The atmosphere buzzed with exhilaration, children ran around with sparklers, and the smell of hot dogs and popcorn filled the air. 
Amy and I, despite the unspoken worry, joined the townsfolk at the fairground. As the sun dipped below the horizon, the first firework burst into the sky, a dazzling shower of colors against the inky blackness. A wave of applause echoed through the crowd, the palpable excitement adding to the spectacle. However, the grandeur of the display was lost on me as my eyes involuntarily scanned the crowd. Amid the sea of happy faces, my gaze landed on the stranger. His silhouette, stark under the colorful bursts of light, sent a jolt of fear through me. The proximity was unsettling. I felt Amy's hand tighten around mine, her cheerful demeanor faltering. I knew then that she too had seen him. Our eyes met, a silent understanding passing between us. In that moment, we decided to leave. We maneuvered through the crowd, my heart pounding in my chest, the stranger's presence looming large in my mind. However, as we made our way towards the exit, I caught a glimpse of the stranger from the corner of my eye. He had started to follow us. His calm stride was at odds with the chaos in my mind. A bead of sweat trickled down my temple, my hand trembling as it clung to Amy's. With the stranger behind us, the charming streets of Harper's Creek felt like a sinister maze. The once friendly faces of the townsfolk blurred into an indistinguishable mass, their laughter and cheers echoing hollowly in our ears. As we quickened our pace, Amy's breath came out in ragged gasps, mirroring my own fear. Our once dream vacation had turned into a nightmare. The city we longed to escape from seemed a safe haven compared to our current predicament. We finally reached the safety of our inn, our breaths heavy, our hearts racing. Once inside, we locked the door, the reality of our situation crashing down on us. The presence of the stranger was no longer a mere unsettling feeling. It had evolved into a palpable threat. As we peered out of the window, the fireworks continued to light up the night sky, their radiant colors a stark contrast to the darkness that had descended upon our hearts. The joyous cheers of the townsfolk seemed distant, their celebrations oblivious to our distress. That night, as we sat huddled in our room, the walls of the cozy inn felt suffocating, the cheeriness of the town outside morphing into a mocking echo. The fear was real, the threat was real, and Harper's Creek was no longer a charming retreat, but a stage for a terrifying ordeal we had yet to comprehend fully. The room was cloaked in an oppressive silence, broken only by our erratic breaths and the distant sounds of the continuing celebrations. Amy and I, once eager tourists, now sat huddled on our bed, feeling more trapped than ever before. Looking at Amy, I could see the same fear mirrored in her eyes. The adventure we'd embarked on, hoping for respite from our daily grind, had turned into a horrifying reality. The dark cloud of the unknown stranger's intentions loomed ominously over us. We spent the rest of the night in a fitful, uneasy silence, jumping at the slightest sound. The room, which had once felt like a cozy retreat, now seemed unfamiliar and cold. The hum of the air conditioner, the ticking of the clock, every small sound was amplified in the stillness, adding to our anxiety. Every so often, I'd peer out of the window, half expecting to see the stranger in his wide-brimmed hat lurking in the shadows, but all I could see was the moonlight illuminating the empty streets, an eerie calm settling over the town that contrasted sharply with the turmoil in my heart. Amy, in an attempt to soothe our nerves, suggested we try and get some sleep, but the thought of closing my eyes, even for a moment, filled me with dread. The image of the stranger, standing amidst the crowd, 
his gaze following us, was etched deeply in my mind. I knew that sleep would be an elusive companion that night. The once delightful sounds of nature, the chirping crickets, the rustling leaves, now carried a sinister undertone. The very air of Harper's Creek, which had once felt fresh and invigorating, was now laden with a stifling tension. As the night wore on, I found myself trapped in a whirlpool of fear and confusion. Questions swarmed my mind like persistent hornets. Who was the stranger? Why was he following us? Did he intend to harm us? And most importantly, were we going to make it out of this town safely? Every creak of the floor, every rustle of the curtains seemed to signify impending doom. The shadows played tricks on my weary eyes, morphing into ghastly figures that made my heart race. Despite the exhaustion tugging at my eyelids, I remained vigilant, unwilling to let my guard down. As dawn broke, bringing with it the first streaks of light, a sense of relief washed over me. The bright rays dispelled some of the fear that had clung to us throughout the night. However, the reality of our predicament remained. We were trapped in this idyllic town with a mysterious stranger whose intentions were unknown. The events of the night had transformed our perception of Harper's Creek. The charming little town had turned into a dangerous maze overnight, a place where every alley hid potential threats, and every friendly face could be masking sinister intentions. As I looked at the dawning day, I knew we had to come up with a plan. As the day broke, casting a warm glow on the picturesque town, Amy and I sat down to hatch a plan. Our shared fear had solidified into a resolution to seek answers. We decided to approach the town sheriff. Harper's Creek was small, and we reasoned that a stranger, especially one as noticeable as ours, would have caught the sheriff's attention. The decision made us feel marginally better, like we were regaining control of the situation. With a renewed sense of purpose, we headed to the sheriff's office. It was a small, unassuming building, looking more like a cozy home than a station for law enforcement. Sheriff Davis, a grizzled man with a kind smile, listened to our concerns with an attentive calmness. I described the stranger, the wide-brimmed hat, the dark suit, the unnerving stare. However, to our dismay, he seemed as perplexed as we were. He assured us that such a man hadn't caught his notice but promised to keep an eye out. While we were relieved at having shared our concerns with someone in authority, the conversation did little to allay our fears. The specter of the unknown stranger still hung over us, casting a long, threatening shadow. We spent the rest of the day in a state of heightened alertness. The usual Fourth of July activities continued around us, but we were too preoccupied to participate. Instead, we watched the townsfolk, their carefree laughter a stark contrast to our growing fear. Throughout the day, we didn't spot the stranger. His absence, instead of providing relief, only fueled our anxiety. Each passing hour, each scanning gaze that didn't find the familiar wide-brimmed hat added to our nervous anticipation. Where was he? What was he planning? As dusk approached, we found ourselves back in our room, the day's futile search having drained our energy. We felt trapped, helpless against the unseen threat that loomed over us. Harper's Creek, with its cheerful faces and charming scenery, felt like a beautiful facade hiding a terrifying reality. That evening, as we sat by our window, watching the sun set over the horizon, I felt Amy's hand find mine. Her fingers, though cold, offered a comforting warmth, a reminder that we were in this together. Our eyes met, an unspoken promise passing between us. 
We would face this threat together, refusing to let it ruin our vacation or instill fear in us. We were not alone, we had each other. As night fell, bringing with it the now familiar feeling of unease, we steeled ourselves for the hours ahead. We were no longer simply tourists in a quaint town. We were unwilling participants in a terrifying mystery, a mystery we were determined to solve. While the previous day had passed without a sighting of the stranger, his absence did nothing to allay our fears. Instead, it lent a new kind of urgency to our situation. I woke up with the feeling that we had to dig deeper, that answers wouldn't be found just on the surface. After a breakfast eaten in distracted silence, we decided to spend the day getting to know the townsfolk. If we wanted to learn more about our enigmatic stranger, we had to scratch beneath the town's friendly facade. We reasoned that the people who lived and worked in Harper's Creek would have more to tell us, insights that Sheriff Davis, for all his goodwill, could not provide. We began with Mr. Henderson, the jovial innkeeper. He'd lived in Harper's Creek all his life and seemed to know everyone in the town. As we helped him set up for the day's breakfast rush, we probed him with questions. Yet he too hadn't noticed our stranger. His joviality faded slightly as he saw the seriousness of our expressions, replaced by a hint of worry. From there, we moved on to the market square. Mrs. Hopkins, who sold homemade jams, had lived in Harper's Creek for over three decades. She seemed surprised by our inquiries and assured us that the town had always been peaceful. The stranger, she said, was probably just an unusual tourist. Despite the reassurances, our hearts weren't at ease. The day wore on, the sun blazing in the cloudless sky, but we found no answers. The stranger's presence, or rather his absence, was like an unanswered question that echoed in our minds. The town's quaint charm was marred by our fear. The cheery storefront seemed less inviting, the friendly townsfolk more suspicious. We found ourselves second-guessing every smile, every wave, looking for hidden meanings and harmless conversations. As the day morphed into evening, we found ourselves back in our room, no closer to an answer than before. Our search had only deepened our anxiety, the lack of answers making us feel like we were chasing shadows. However, as we sat in silence, nursing cups of lukewarm tea, Amy spoke up. There was a steely determination in her voice that made me look at her with renewed admiration. She suggested we attend the annual town dance. She reasoned that the event, which attracted almost all the townsfolk, might be the perfect opportunity to observe our stranger. I agreed, although reluctantly. The thought of putting ourselves out there, potentially in the stranger's line of sight, was nerve-wracking. Yet we couldn't cower in our room forever. If we wanted answers, we had to take risks. So, under the blanket of the starlit sky, we ventured out, arm in arm, stealing ourselves for what lay ahead. As we neared the bustling town square, the lively music of the dance band reaching our ears, we took a deep breath. We were not just tourists or unwitting victims. We were a team, and we would face this ordeal together. The town square was alive with music and laughter, the twinkling fairy lights lending an air of enchantment. Amy squeezed my hand, her fear masked by a brave smile. We entered the dance, trying to blend in, trying not to let our fear show. We spent the first half of the evening huddled in a corner, observing the crowd. Our eyes scanned the sea of faces for the stranger. But as the night wore on without a sighting, our anxiety began to rise. The stranger's elusive nature was becoming more frustrating and terrifying with each passing hour. We decided to join the dance, 
hoping to ease our nerves and keep up appearances. As I held Amy close, we swayed to the rhythm of the music, our fears temporarily forgotten. We were just another couple, enjoying the festivities, lost in the sea of joyous faces. But the respite was short-lived. A tap on my shoulder jolted me from my temporary peace. Turning around, I came face to face with the stranger. His eyes bore into mine, his expression unreadable. A cold shiver ran down my spine as he tipped his wide-brimmed hat and disappeared into the crowd. Fear gripped us tightly once again. We scanned the crowd, but the stranger had vanished as quickly as he had appeared. His brief presence had turned our already tense evening into a nightmare. In the face of this threat, we decided to retreat. Leaving the square felt like admitting defeat, but our safety was our priority. As we hurried back to the inn, the echo of the music seemed to mock us. The town square, a place of joy and celebration, was now a haunting memory. Once inside the safety of our room, we collapsed onto the bed, our breaths ragged and our hearts pounding. The room felt smaller, the walls closing in on us. We felt trapped, the unknown danger lurking just outside our door. Yet, in the face of our fear, a new determination took hold. We had seen the stranger, he was real, and he was here. There was no denying his presence or his interest in us. But we were no longer passive victims. We were active players in this dangerous game. As I looked at Amy, I saw the same resolution mirrored in her eyes. We were in this together, and we would face whatever lay ahead with courage. We would not let the stranger ruin our vacation or instill fear in us. We had come to Harper's Creek for an adventure, and an adventure was what we got, albeit a terrifying one. That night we made a pact. We would confront the stranger, ask him directly about his intentions. If he was indeed a threat, we would face him head on. We were determined to regain control of our vacation, and more importantly, our lives. In the cold, quiet room, with only the distant echo of the dance music as our company, we prepared ourselves for the confrontation that awaited us. The stranger had made his move, and now it was our turn. Waking up that morning, I felt a mixture of fear and resolve. Today was the day we were going to face the stranger. The thought was chilling, yet oddly empowering. We were done running, done hiding. It was time to confront our fears. We spent the morning in tense anticipation, formulating a plan. Our decision was bold, perhaps reckless, but we were resolute. We would confront the stranger in a public place, ensuring that we had the safety of numbers. With our plan in place, we ventured out, our hearts heavy but determined. The hours passed in a blur of anxiety. Every corner we turned, every face we saw, we expected to find him, waiting for us with that cold, piercing gaze. Yet, as the day wore on, he remained elusive. The town was filled with the usual hustle and bustle, completely unaware of our silent vigil. As evening approached, our frustration grew. Our resolve, so firm in the morning, was wavering. The fear was creeping back in, the unanswered questions gnawing at us. But then, as we rounded a corner, we saw him. He was standing across the street, his figure easily recognizable even in the gathering dusk. The wide-brimmed hat, the dark suit, everything was exactly as we remembered. He seemed to be waiting, as though he'd known we were coming. Taking a deep breath, we crossed the street. Our steps were slow but steady, our hearts pounding in unison. As we approached, he turned to face us. His eyes, like twin pools of ice, sent a shiver down my spine. But we stood our ground, our resolve stronger than our fear. We need to talk, 
I managed to say, my voice surprisingly steady. He simply nodded, a faint smile playing on his lips. The sight was chilling, yet it steeled our determination. We were not going to back down now. Our confrontation was tense, filled with silences that were louder than words. We asked him why he was following us, what he wanted. His answers were vague, his tone dismissive. He spoke in riddles, evading our questions, his smile never faltering. Frustration bubbled within us, our fear transforming into anger. We were tired of his games, tired of living in fear. Yet before we could press further, he turned away, melting into the shadows as swiftly as he had appeared. We were left standing in the middle of the street, our questions still unanswered. The confrontation had given us no closure, no peace. Instead, it had deepened the mystery, casting a longer, darker shadow over us. Returning to our room that night, we felt a sense of defeat. Our bold confrontation had yielded no answers, only more questions. Yet, as we climbed into bed, we found comfort in each other. We had faced our fear, and though we were not victorious, we were not defeated either. The town of Harper's Creek, once a charming vacation spot, was now a puzzle we were determined to solve. The stranger, our uninvited guest, was a challenge we were ready to face. We would not let him control us, not let him instill fear in us. We were stronger, braver, and we were together. We awoke to a day steeped in uncertainty. Our confrontation with the stranger hadn't provided the clarity we sought. His evasiveness only strengthened our resolve to unearth the truth. Deciding to explore beyond the perimeters of the small town, we planned a hike through the surrounding forest. If our stranger had any connection to Harper's Creek, we reasoned that it must lie beyond the town's cheerful facade. So, armed with a local map and a steely determination, we ventured into the wilderness. The forest was eerily silent, the rustling leaves and chirping birds only adding to the ambiance. The unknown seemed to lurk in every shadow, making us hyper-aware of our surroundings. Every crunching leaf underfoot, every rustle in the trees felt like an ominous warning. After hours of futile exploration, we stumbled upon an old, dilapidated cabin, hidden deep within the forest. The sight of it, hidden away from prying eyes, gave me a chill. Instinctively, we approached the cabin, our curiosity piqued. Inside, we found remnants of habitation, a worn-out coat, an old hat, and some photographs. Studying the photographs, we were shocked to recognize the stranger. But what startled us more was the realization that these photos were old, perhaps decades old. Yet, our stranger hadn't aged a day. Fear and bewilderment battled within us as we tried to make sense of our discovery. The implications were unsettling. Was the stranger a resident of the town who had disappeared? Or was he something else, something more sinister? Our minds raced with questions, each more troubling than the last. Suddenly we heard footsteps outside the cabin. Our hearts pounded in our chests as we scrambled to hide. Peering through a crack in the cabin wall, we saw him. The stranger, with his familiar hat and suit, stood outside, looking directly at the cabin. Fear nodded in our stomachs as he started walking towards the cabin. We were trapped, our only escape route blocked. We held our breaths as he neared the door, each second stretching into an eternity. Then, just as we were bracing ourselves for the worst, he stopped. After what felt like an eternity, he turned and walked away, disappearing back into the forest. We were left trembling, the fear of discovery leaving us weak. Our encounter in the forest marked a turning point. 
The cabin and the photographs it contained had unearthed a part of the mystery surrounding our stranger. The unsettling truth was out there, lurking in the forest, hidden in the cabin, and we were one step closer to discovering it. As we made our way back to the town, we felt a sense of unity. The terror we'd experienced had cemented our bond. The stranger was no longer just an ominous figure. He was a puzzle we were determined to solve. Together, we would face whatever lay ahead, refusing to let fear control us. The day following our cabin encounter was a whirlwind of confusion and speculation. The photographs we found painted a different picture of our stranger, a picture rooted in the town's past. Yet, the revelation raised more questions than answers. In our quest to unravel the truth, we decided to visit the town's historian, a frail elderly woman named Miss Edna. She had lived in Harper's Creek her entire life and was well-versed with its history. Perhaps she could provide the missing pieces to our puzzle. We showed her the photographs, watching as a flicker of recognition passed across her eyes. She confirmed that the man in the picture was indeed a former resident of the town, named Thomas Weller, who had mysteriously disappeared decades ago. However, she was as baffled as we were to hear about our recent encounters. Our hearts thudded heavily as we processed her revelations. Could our stranger be the missing Thomas Weller? The idea was preposterous, yet the evidence was compelling. Were we chasing a ghost from the past, a mystery that the town itself had forgotten? As we left Miss Edna's house, a sense of unease settled over us. The shadows of Harper's Creek seemed to stretch longer, the secrets deeper. We were in the midst of a mystery that spanned decades, tangled in a web of silence and forgotten history. Back at the inn, we found a note slipped under our door. My heart jumped into my throat as I recognized the handwriting. It was the stranger's. He asked us to meet him at the cabin in the forest at midnight. This was our chance, a chance to confront him, to finally get the answers we'd been seeking. As night fell, we prepared ourselves. The prospect of meeting the stranger in the secluded forest cabin was terrifying. Yet, we knew we had to go. We had to face this mystery head on, for our sake and for the town's. With the town clock striking midnight, we found ourselves standing outside the cabin, the forest was ominously silent, the moon casting long, eerie shadows. The anticipation was suffocating, the uncertainty paralyzing. And then, as if on cue, he emerged from the shadows. There he stood, the stranger, Thomas Weller, as real as the fear that gripped us. His gaze met ours, a silent acknowledgement passing between us. The confrontation we had been building towards was finally here. As we stepped into the cabin, our heartbeats echoed in our ears. The truth was within our grasp, the ghost from the past finally ready to reveal its story, and we were ready to listen. The inside of the cabin was lit only by the faint moonlight seeping through the cracks. In this dim light, the stranger, Thomas Weller as we now knew him, seemed more like a ghost than ever. Yet the fear that once gripped us had given way to anticipation. His story was a tale of tragedy and sorrow. He had been a young man in love, planning to elope with his sweetheart on the 4th of July many decades ago, but she never showed up at their meeting place. Heartbroken and confused, he had left town, his disappearance forever haunting the town's history. The woman he loved was Amy's grandmother. The resemblance between Amy and her was the reason he had been drawn to us. He had mistaken Amy for his lost love, causing him to act in ways that had terrified us. In reality, he was a lost soul trying to rectify his past. 
As the truth unfurled, our fear evaporated, replaced by sympathy for the man before us. His actions, however frightening, were rooted in pain and loss. We were not in danger. We were just entangled in an old love story that had resurfaced. Having finally unburdened himself, Thomas seemed to find a certain peace. He apologized for his actions, expressing gratitude for our willingness to listen. With a final look at Amy, a silent farewell passed between them. He stepped outside the cabin and disappeared into the forest, leaving us in stunned silence. We returned to the town just as dawn was breaking. The once threatening shadows now seemed harmless, the secrets of Harper's Creek finally laid bare. We were no longer hunted, no longer afraid. Our last day in Harper's Creek was spent in a quiet reflection, the events of the past days seeming almost surreal. We shared our discovery with Miss Edna, who was both relieved and saddened by the truth. The mystery of Thomas Weller was finally solved, bringing closure not only to us, but also to the town. As we packed our bags to return home, we felt a sense of fulfillment. Our 4th of July trip had turned into an adventure we hadn't anticipated, a journey that tested us, scared us, but ultimately brought us closer. We had faced our fears, unmasked a ghost, and unearthed a forgotten story. The road leading out of Harper's Creek was bathed in the warm morning light. As we drove away, I took one last look at the town in the rearview mirror. Harper's Creek, with its charm and mysteries, had become a part of our story. It was a reminder of our journey, a testament to our bravery, a symbol of our unity. We began our trip as a couple looking for a simple 4th of July celebration. We ended up discovering not just the town's secret but also our own courage. Harper's Creek would forever be a memory of our shared adventure, a story of fear, mystery, and the power of unity. As the town disappeared in the distance, I squeezed Amy's hand. We had faced the unknown together and emerged stronger. We were no longer just a couple on a trip. We were partners, ready to face any challenge, any mystery that life might throw at us. And that was the most profound revelation of all.